The PKD Black Box is a proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. This is the PKD Black Box, episode 38. Welcome back to the PKD Black Box. I'm your host, Sean Pryor, a.k.a. Stan Leroy, a.k.a. Barack O'Comics. This week's episode is massive. We've got a slew of guests on this one. We start off with a conversation with Adam Warrock, a.k.a. Eugene Ahn. We talk to him about the West Coast Avengers mixtape. We also talk to him about his new album, The War for Infinity, in stores now. <laughs> and we also talk to him about the origin of Adam Warrock. We also talk about hip-hop and geekdom and everything in between. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation. Eugene was a wonderful guest, and I hope the world embraces Adam Warrock and his music. So peep that interview. After that, we're going to have a conversation with Jason Wood of the 11 O'Clock Comics Podcast as he and I discuss everything about the Mobile Armored Strike Command, known as MASK. I'm taking you back to the 80s on this one, so you need to roll back with me on this. We talk about the toys, the cartoon, the comic books, everything MASK we talk about. And from there, myself, along with John Carroll, talk with the jack-of-all-trades in comics right now, Chris Eliopoulos. Uh, the man is extremely talented, a letterer, colorist, artist, writer. You may know him from Lockjaw and the Pet Avengers. You may know him from, from his Franklin Richards books. Uh, but we have a wonderful conversation about the art of lettering, the need for more all-ages comics in the industry. And we talk about the drive and determination needed to make comics in today's society. So really hope you enjoy all these conversations. Like I said before, this episode is massive. Uh, so massive that after you sit and listen to it, the next two weeks, We'll have two consecutive weeks of Tales from the Attic, and then the PKD Black Box comes back. I just wanted to have all these conversations on this episode because they're all three different things, But and I, we could have made separate episodes of this, but I feel that you need to hear all of this right now. So we will start our conversation with Adam right after this message. Coming to Discount Comic Book Service this October, it's Oceanverse number four. Continuing the exciting adventures of pulp hero Clayton Hemmings and the crew of the Red Herring, Oceanverse number 4 contains two stories guaranteed to thrill. Fish translators, time capsules, mad scientists, underwater parades, the fish lord, giant crab monsters, what does it all mean? Grab a copy and find out. Written and illustrated by Michael Schwartz, a.k.a. Green Skeleton 2, Oceanverse also contains a fantastic pinup by the incomparable Mike Norton. 24 pages of crisp black and white art, Oceanverse number four's regular price is three dollars and fifty cents, but on DCBS this month you can get it for two dollars and twenty-seven cents. That's thirty-five percent off. Mr. Cooper, watch out for those incentives. That's right. With every order of Oceanverse number four, you will also receive a papercraft red herring model, a funny book fish mini print, and two coloring pages, friends included. If you or your kids color the page, email it to mike at oceanverse.com and it will be displayed on oceanverse.com. And in case you've never read Oceanverse before, issues 1 through 3 are also available on DCBS this month. Number 2 and 3 are $2.27 each, and number 1 is only $1.95. Place your order this October on dcbservice.com. 
Oceanverse, a universe of adventure under the sea. This week's show by a gentleman that I'm sure many of you know of. Uh, you heard some of his um, artistic rhymes on the West Coast Avengers mixtape. You also have probably heard him on the People You Don't Know podcast. You have also heard him along with Chris Sims on the War Rocket Ajax podcast. Man of many talents, ladies and gentlemen, Adam Warrock, a.k.a. Eugene Ahn. How you doing, sir? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for uh, having me on the show. Oh, you're welcome, man. Thank you for coming on the show, man. Really appreciate it. We got a, like a lot of positive uh, buzz about the West Coast Avengers mixtape. And through our Twitter direct messages and stuff like that, we worked out a time to get together and a collabo on this episode. And it's just it's really cool to have you here. Yeah, I mean, I, I reached out to you because I was so uh, touched by your kind words about uh, my music, like we've spoken about off the air. I really appreciate how much... like. If I wanted somebody to describe what kind of thing I was going for with like the geek slash, you know, pop culture hip hop that I make, like you put it very well in a very like succinct, well said way that I appreciated very much. So, so thank you for that. Hey, you're welcome. Not, not a problem. You know, it's not every day that I can fluently put together <laughs> sentences and stuff for a podcast to describe something without, you know, losing my mind. But no, I'm glad it, I'm glad it came out as well as it did. Now, for those that don't know about Adam Warrock's origin and uh, where he came about, I was reading on the Adam Warrock website that his um, beginning came around um, while you were in college at Ohio State, but then he went away for a while, but now he's back. Um, but can you uh, talk to the people about you know what got you into into hip hop and deciding to rhyme? Uh, yeah, I mean, guess going all the way back, you know, I, I've always been part of a really musical family and, and in a musical environment. I grew up in Memphis and I went to a, you know, a school that was almost like half African-American and Memphis had its own underground hip hop scene. Back in the day when uh, Three Six Mafia was Triple Six Mafia and they had this whole Memphis underground scene that is actually really, really good. And it's still really, really great to this day. It's like it's like good Southern rap that will never get played on the radio because it's just not that kind of music. But so like rap was everywhere growing up and you just kind of get into it. And that was also around the early 90s when, you know, you could literally go to the store every single week, point to a random CD in the rap aisle and walk away with it. And it would be like Nas, it was written or Tribe Called Quest, Low in Theory. And that's kind of just how we all got into it back in middle school. When I went to college, I went to a hip hop festival at Oberlin College. And it was this crazy, it's this crazy festival called Six Million Ways to Speak. I don't even know if it still runs to this day or, or not, but Common and Dead Prez and Talib Kweli and The Arsonists and Cali Agents and Saul Williams and all these people performed at it. And it was also this like symposium where people would kind of talk about all these things about hip hop and culture and race. And there was also this huge uh, community of like spoken word artists, right? You, when you're graduating high school, you, you think, you know, if you're at all a kind of literary artistic mind, you think you're a writer and uh, only certain people can go on and actually become writers. And I guess I was in that group and I saw these spoken word artists doing like poetry slams and stuff. And I said, you know, I'll 
that that's what I want to do because you know it's such a visceral thing to connect with the audience because I mean you can make fun of spoken word all you want to I do because I think it's ridiculous that I ever did it and I never really like watching it or listening to it but when you hear a good piece you look around the crowd and like the way that the crowd will be enraptured I was like oh this is like the kind of connection I'd, I'd want to do with like expression and it only made sense to just kind of put it to, to music because I was a rap fan in the, the first place and I just started making music in college and performing and I made like three demos and I had a chance to kind of go and do like recording after college and I didn't because I thought that it was ridiculous to try to make a career out of being a hip-hop artist so I went to law school instead which uh, was ridiculous so during law school and, and, and while I was working as a lawyer, I didn't really do much music. A couple years ago, I, I hadn't done it for so long and I was so miserable in my job that I just started kind of writing songs again. And what a surprise in like the four years that I was gone, technology had like become exponentially better yes. and cheaper and quicker to learn. And so I just had all like so much more power in my hands to like make really dense music. And I'm like, a, I'm a total studio rat, you know, like. There are people who thrive at open mics or freestyle battle competitions or, or live performances. And I love I love doing live performances and I used to do open mics and, and freestyle battles and stuff. But like I, I like being in front of like the computer and being in front of a mic and like tweaking and kind of coming up with these concepts and ideas. So I just started releasing stuff on a website after I was doing that podcast with Chris Sims so at War Rocket Ajax. Because we were doing War Rocket Ajax, I, I was making these joke songs for the show and making them comic book themed, but still kind of trying to make them into real songs. And it just started picking up. And, you know, it's been around a year, I think, that we've been going through uh, posting stuff on the site. And it just, I don't know, it just kind of reached this critical mass where enough people were listening to it that it made sense to kind of do more with it. And then as it kept, the ball kept rolling, I was so miserable in my lawyer job and I had all these other opportunities. And the only reason I wasn't doing it was because I was like, well, I can't do that because I'm working. And it just made no sense to pass up all these opportunities that were coming to me just because I was in this job that I hated. So I'm trying this, this starving artist route for as long as I can do it, and then we'll see what happens. But, but that's the long-winded origin story, I guess, of my music uh, career. When he cried, the sky opened up and sound waves would rain. Call me many names. I fought over the Serengeti plains and swam across the oceans and rested inside of many caves. Inhabited in cities, observed life of those who posed as if their lives were something they lightly chose. I know I'm glad that you're doing this because we know of a lot of people in our lifetime that have talents that go, you know, either above and beyond what they do every single day. And for certain people, they can't you know, walk away from them, walk away from their jobs because, you know, they may have a marriage, they, you know, they may have a ton of bills, they may have debt, they may have a child that they have to take care of. So, you know, they have to, you know, take care of, you know, what's quote unquote priority that, you know, gets taken care of first. So they can't step away from it or they may not have all that stuff and they just might be too scared to, you know, take either take that chance or, you know, be scared to, to, you know, get a reaction as to what other people think about what they're doing. So, and I mentioned that on the West Coast Avengers mixtape review, and and I, you know, I, I give you props for that because you could have just stayed doing what you're doing, and you know, being you know, and being miserable. But in the end, you know, where would that have you know taken you? I mean, I probably would have gotten fired because I was like getting no sleep, showing up to work without having shaved, or my shirts weren't <laughs> ironed. So I always joke because I think that like my employers might have thought that I like developed some sort of like a cocaine habit in like my free time because I just was like all like bags under my eyes and stuff. So, I mean, I, I was just so 
I was just doing too much. Yeah. And I, I had to take inventory and kind of cut out the things that, that weren't important to me. I, I understand that, you know, people can't do that because like I'm I'm not married, I don't have a kid, I don't have a mortgage, I don't have, you know, like all that kind of stuff to to kind of for me to consider. And so it made sense, you know, why why live in this misery when I could be doing stuff that I love and and taking a chance with it. And that stuff will always be there. You know, if I fail, I can go back on my hands and knees to a, a, a cubicle job and and get a steady paycheck. That I, I have enough faith that hopefully the the government, the economy won't tank so bad that that will be impossible in a year or so. So we'll see. Now, I had listened to an episode of War Rocket Ajax, and we were actually talking about this before before the recording. And it was my first episode I ever listened to, and I got real hype when the show started because you guys started playing the uh, the um, segment from uh, the public from Public Enemy where like he, they're sampling uh, Fl- uh, Flash Gordon, and that got me hyped. And then I enjoyed the show even more, especially the big ups to my hater segment. <laughs> but um, it was at the end of the show where you did some rhymes over the death of Auto Tune, and you were talking about you know comics and stuff like that, and you were talking about how you know how some folks with comics were quote-unquote Jeff Lobin too much. <laughs> and I'm like walking across campus at my job, and I'm just like, you know, I'm like, cool. I, you know, I'm like, these rhymes are kind of tight. And when you got to the you Jeff Lobin too much part, like I'm in the midst of like a bunch of students, and like I just get hype and just like start throwing my fist in the air, start fist pumping and getting all hype. And folks look at me like I'm crazy with my iPod on. I'm like, you know, y'all wouldn't get it. You know, just let me be. I'm having fun right now. I'm enjoying this. And so... That kept me, you know, going back to listen to more War Rocket Ajax. And there was another song where you talked about Scott Pilgrim. My friend Julian Lytle was like one of the biggest Scott Scott Pilgrim fans in the world. And he kept telling me I needed to read these books. And when I um, heard your track about Scott Pilgrim, I said, okay, okay. I was like, okay, that's, that's two endorsing votes for Scott Pilgrim. So I went and got volume one. And I'm like, wow, this is the shit. So I went back and got all the other volumes and I've been reading through it. And I'm on volume three right now and i love it so that's like that's what the power of song can do you, you know i mean if a song can if you can do a track about scott pilgrim and get me hype enough to go to a store and get it you know that means something your uh, website has a track log where you do all these types of songs and as we talked about it's not just you know geek hip-hop it's not just nerdcore it's you know it's as I like to call it, it's you know, it's it's just hip hop. It doesn't matter what what you're talking about. It's all hip hop, and and how we get the message out there. And like, yeah, there are some geek centric stuff, but a lot of times you mix everyday life into it as well. I guess my uh, my question before we get heavy and before we talk about your website and track log is, how are you able to you know merge these things together like you know as smoothly as you do? Well, okay, first going back, I think that if the song can also convince people to not read a Jeff Lowe book, <laughs> that's also a service. Uh, a, a, a modern, can I say this, a modern Jeff Lowe book. No. He had good, great stuff in the past. Oh, Anyways, yeah, yes, 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 yes. yes. I, in case Jeff Lowe's listening. <laughs> <laughs> I have Jeff Lowe books, man. There's some good stuff in the oh, past. No, I, um, I got some too. Look, I, I, I admit. I got I got some of that Hulk run when he had when he had when he had Cho and Adams doing like a half a book a piece. Yeah, yeah. You know. Um, oh, go ahead. The the way that it is is that it. Okay, so I guess the way to explain it is that I write and record really fast, and and it's not it's not a bragging thing. It's not a showing off kind of thing. It's literally like I like to create, 
and I don't like spending a lot of time on one thing. So it affords me the opportunity to create like a true music blog. And I mean that in the sense where every song that I post up on the site, and a lot of times it's like two to three songs a week, are songs that as if you went to like any pop culture site and you saw what they're writing a post about, instead of writing a post about, you know, how I feel or this thing that's happening in politics or this thing that's happening in culture that, that is catching my attention, I'm writing a song about it so you can kind of listen to it. And then I get to write a little bit about it on the blog too. So like it affords me the opportunity to do that and in the meantime work on stuff in the background like the album or like professional releases that, that I will sit and perfect and, and tinker. Anybody who's worked with me knows how much I hate doing that because it's just like it drives me crazy to work on one thing for like more than for months and months. But it's just kind of the way that, you know, I, I'm such a music head that I always want to be creating something. And that, that's, that's the cool thing about, about my life right now, I guess, or my career right now is that I get to try to build this thing and I get to kind of use my, all my facilities in creating this stuff. You know, like I don't, I don't sit around and say I need to do, well, okay, sometimes I sort of do, but like I don't sit around and say I need to do a song about this topic on Monday and then this topic on Wednesday. It's just kind of whatever comes up. So like I don't know like how it seamlessly goes together, but a lot of times hip hop gives me the the opportunity to express it in like an, like, you know, like I have a song about the Tea Party movement and it's angry and it gets to kind of bash on it a little bit. And that's great in a hip hop song. And then there's songs about political songs. And I'm a very political, politically active person is very easy to put into a hip hop song. And we've seen that since, you know, I early Ice Cube, Republic Enemy and stuff like that. Yeah. But then it's like the other stuff that's like, sort of like love songy or like culture-y or like kind of taking like a spin on on like a property like a like a comic book or a TV show or something that's me just kind of taking a subject picking a direction and using that subject as like the prism through which like the song is created and i just have fun. it's just fun you know like there's so many people who make music and and a lot of MCs or even a lot of bands i love their stuff but I love this song. But then the next song will sort of be about the same stuff because there's only so many things. You, there's only so many ways that you can make a rap song about how awesome a rapper you are, you know? Right. right. And, 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 and in the beginning of hip hop, that's what a lot of it was about. <laughs> how which, awesome I mean, I for, for good reason, because it was all based on live shows and it was based on competition and it was based on showing and proven. But yes. like it's like almost like a post postmodern era of that stuff that. Now it's just this medium through which you can communicate a bunch of stuff. And like rock music and indie alternative music, you can communicate emotions really well, like love or sadness or, or pain. And then hip hop, you can communicate cleverness and, and winking kind of uh, spins on things and you are metaphors, you know, using this thing as like a metaphor for what's happening in the country or what's happening inside of you. And it just translates really well when I said it's that blank piece of paper, you know, like you sit down with a blank piece of paper and all you know is that you really want to make something yeah. and you just start going and something comes out. And because I have the ability to kind of write and record really fast, like I have the, the unique ability to make this music blog, which I don't really know if anyone else really does exactly what this kind of does because of how quickly I post stuff. But I mean, I guess that's kind of how it goes. I, I can't really explain it. It's, it's all that blank piece of paper, I guess, that's from where it starts. And when I say blank piece of paper, I mean blank text edit document on my laptop because I do everything on computers. I remember back in the day when I used to have all these notebooks and I'm like, I, I don't think I could even write a whole song in a notebook now without my hand. <laughs> I remember in college when, you know, I wanted to rhyme. I'd started off at like one of the, like one of the branch campuses of Miami of Ohio. I went to um, 
and I started off one of the branch campuses and then I went to the main campus and I went to a um, like a welcome party uh, with with like a lot of my friends and stuff. Had a real good time. They had DJ and stuff there and like I was really I really 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 truly wanted to get in get into hip hop and just like want to start rhyming because like I, I make beats and I still do I still do I compose music for the um, comic books that we put together and. And so I would just always get so excited about making beats and I would get like buy all these like notebooks and try to start writing rhymes and stuff. And like I would look at them and I'm like, boy, this is some bullshit. And like tear the paper, tear the pages out, try it again and try it again and try it again. And I remember the concept that I came up with. I was going to call the group Luke Cage and Danny Rand. <laughs> and this right. was like back in like, was it 96? It was like it was around 96. And people was like, who? I was like, y'all know about Power Man and Iron Fist? He's like, man, we don't read no comic books, you nerd. And I was like, oh, all right. So I kind of just put it away, and I just I just keep making little beats every now and then. The one thing I know is like with your track log, like you said, in the process of making all these songs, you have a slew of songs on this site, AdamWarrock.com. I mean, you name it, there's a song for it. And one of those songs is a song called Don Glover for Spider-Man. Now, as, we, as a lot of us know, there was a period of time before Sony decided to hire Andrew Garfield to play the new Spider-Man. Um, there started to be like this uh, little, um, don't want to call it uprising, but, you know, a lot of people were, you know, were getting buzz about trying to get Donald Glover to play Spider-Man. And I'm, I remember even for a second, I saw some people on Twitter, some artists do like their own version of Donald Glover as Spider-Man and stuff. And, you know, I've never seen anything like that before. That type of um, something gets you so hype to do something like that. I've never seen that in my lifetime. I'm like, wow, this is a pretty big deal then. And now, granted, the Internet world is different from the real world and maybe the real world, you know, not so I shouldn't say real world, but just regular society. You know, regular society probably probably didn't even know this was going on. But in the Internet world, this was kind of a big deal. And then finally, they they named Andrew Garfield Spider-Man. And I was kind of sad. But <laughs> <laughs> but um, I remember you posted a track called Don Glover for Spider-Man and how like and this goes for pretty much like whether it be hip hop, whether it be, you know, movies, music, you know, comic books, how tradition, even though it can sometimes be a strong ally, it can also be our worst enemy as well, because sometimes it prohibits us from seeing something that could be even greater that's already been out there in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you, you bring that up because that the whole genesis of that song came from the fact that I write rhymes on la on laptops, because I was listening to somebody talk on some sort of interview or podcast, and it wasn't a rapper, it was actually like just like a web kind of personality and they were talking about how nobody does work on paper anymore and I guess I had listened to some rappers talking about writing rhymes or whatever and how like the the few people I know who do hip-hop nobody writes nobody writes down stuff on paper anymore you know like you you sit and you just type out these rhymes that come to your head and it's like this new school mentality and I came up with the first line in that song which is um, like this is for the new school we, we ain't open yet we ain't got the books we ain't got the desks right mm -hmm. I actually came out with Don Glover for Spider-Man a little late. I wish I, I wish I had released that in the height of the, the fury of that movement. But I get really obsessed with making titles of my songs before I actually start writing the song because, and I actually spoke a lot with uh, Tribe One, who's an MC that I work with, about this very subject. Is that the number one thing that a lot of MCs do? Maybe I'm giving away a, a secret or something, but a lot of thing that one thing that a lot of MCs don't realize is that the title of the song is so important. It's the first thing that, that people are going to see and going to kind of pull them in. I always want the title of the song to be catchy and to be recognizable, but then I want it to go in a different direction than you think it's going to go, you know? So, like, the idea of Don Glover for Spider-Man, 
it's obvious what it's about if you know that movement. But the whole point of Don Glover for Spider-Man is like, yeah, like I would love to see Don Glover as Spider-Man because I think he's hilarious. He's a, he's an awesome rapper mm-hmm. as Childish Gambino. Um, he's a really funny guy. And I mean, the whole bucking of the tradition would be great, too. But that's kind of what it's only about. It's not really about the fa- like a, it's not a song about I want Don Glover for Spider-Man right. and why he should be Spider-Man. It's a song about people need people need to look at things in a new way. And just because Spider-Man, why can't Spider-Man be a black guy? And it's like, why can't we rap about comic books? Why can't an Asian guy rap? Why can't you do whatever you want to do in this new way? And say this this one line, this one campaign sticker line of Don Glover for Spider-Man kind of represents that mentality. So like that actually totally came out. The, the, the genesis of it totally came out of the fact that me and like new, new school MCs, we don't write rhymes in a notebook anymore. There's no pen and there's no paper there. It's just a laptop. And I've actually written rhymes on my iPhone when I'm traveling around and I think of something and I bring up the notes and I type out this like horribly mis like mistyped verse that it's just in my head and I just start like typing it away because it's just like it's a totally new way to kind of think of stuff and even the way that I do the website is a totally new way to think of the music industry. I don't even follow a music industry business model. I follow a web comics business model. So like that's the song. I'm pretty proud of that song because I think it's exactly kind of the along the lines of what I want my music to kind of be like. But the burden lies the heaviest, the broad of the shoulders, because heroes can move mouths while people can keep them sober. And so the day will come when the city needs a light, and thus the hero rises out the dead of the night, and men will fight men, and demons will stay bottled and harm to earth's death. See, and, well, and, that's, and that's a whole other thing, too, when you broke down that you don't follow a music industry model, you follow a webcomics model. I, I think, well, we all know the music industry is 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 kind of you know it's hurting yeah you know for all intents and purposes it's hurting and a lot of this they've done to themselves regardless of 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 how others may feel about it i mean it started with in the 90s when they started to really push you know because singles and cd singles and oversaturate the market that way so then you had artists going their singles going platinum because they were selling for 99 cents but then their actual full full full-length albums weren't selling worth a damn and so, you know, they kind of jacked up the market that way. And then there was the whole thing where we had, you know, we, we, every single time in music history, we've, we've always had a glut. You know, whether it be like, even, like, even I'll be the first to admit in the mid to late 80s when like R&B just became like the shit. And like we had so many fucking R&B groups. I mean, a lot and tons of them were talented, but it was a big glut. And then you had the pop explosion of the, of the late, of the mid to late 90s to the early 2000s. And, you know, now with hip hop right now, it's... We get so much of the same thing constantly fed to us, and then it's like, okay, what's next? So here, here's the same thing. Every now and then we'll have that one lone star that shines, you know, higher than everybody else on radio, but they only allow that one person in until, you know, until, like, you know, they find a substitute. I call that the Erica Badu, Jill Scott, India Ari uh, fix because radio will only play one of them at a time. <laughs> I, I'm for real. I'm serious. I am dead serious. That's the way it was when I it's lived. A, in Ohio. It's the same with uh, it's the same with the male counterparts like they, like D'Angelo, Maxwell, Anthony Hamilton, uh, Raphael like, Sadiq. Yeah, like they none like n- two of those guys are never hot at the same time. They always kind of like they're all hydraulically like tied to each other. One goes down, the other goes up, or whatever. <laughs> but but they'll play Jason Derulo and the Dream on nonstop loop. <laughs> and here's the thing: is that a lot of the people I know who do internet music, their business model is based on the fact that you need to sell music. You need to release pristine studio quality stuff and you need to release it on the schedule of how people do 
how bands do that, how, how, how labels used to do that. And I've actually gotten in heated arguments with people about the business model that I follow is the fact that I'm going to release all this free music because it's a website that you go to. And the only, re- the only reason I want, the only thing I want from you is I want your attention. I don't want your money. You know, like give me your attention and give me your seal of approval that shows to other people that you know that my music is worth a damn. You know, because that, that's more valuable to me than 99 cents. And then it's like these songs I release, they're not going to be perfect. A lot of them, a lot of them are just ideas that I did that are never going to become full songs. Once in a while, it'll become a full like a song like like Ira Glass or something. But when I read a web comic, when I read a blogger, it's not so much about the content that they produce. It's about who they are. And I like seeing them develop. I like seeing them evolve. I like seeing them be human. And I, I like th- to be able to reach out and talk to them. And I'm the same way. Like, you're not always going to hear a perfect song from me on my website. It's not always going to be the best sounding. It's not always going to be a winner. And, you know, I hope that you're at least engaged with the process and engaged with this whole, like, this whole, like, ethos of what the project is that, you know, you can talk to me on Twitter. You can email me. You can Facebook me. You can do whatever you want to. I'm, I'm, I'm totally out there. You, you get to see me try out all these ideas. And if you've actually been paying attention to the track log, when the album that I'm releasing on, on October 7th comes out, I can actually point to specific songs and say, you hear what I'm doing in the song on the album that I spent a year doing that started with this song from the track log because it's the same structure of this song or it's the same kind of hook or the same trick that I used here that's just changed and evolved into something better. And now you get to hear it. And now now I'm asking you to give me like nine ninety nine, And that's kind of like for the new album that I've been working on for a long time. But it's also kind of like support this thing that I'm going to keep doing. I'm going to keep giving you new music all the time maybe more than you want because i think that i sometimes post way too much music <laughs> but uh but whatever you can listen to it later or whatever if you're sick of it that's the web comic model that's the the web presence model and that's that's so opposite of what a music industry person would want from you it's like right. why would somebody want to listen to an artist who releases a song where you can hear a pop in a p like that shows that they're unprofessional it's like no that's just a human and like you go to this site and it's not about the fact that you're listening to Adam Warrock. It's like you're listening to me giving you music that I, that I obviously make in my home and that I'm giving to you for free and that like let, let's talk about it. If you didn't like it, why didn't you like it? And then if you have like there's been so many times when people have given me ideas for songs and I turn them into a song after talking to them on Twitter or on an email. And like it's just this it's it's what the web is all about. Like if you have if you create content, people should be able to know that you're a person as well as just this machine that funnels out this content to waste people's time with every day which a lot of sites do that and i don't like reading those sites you know not only that but like with with your website and with all the songs that you've posted on your website for free um you know and just putting it out there the way you're putting it out there what you know what i see is and it's just like with web it's like with web comics or like comic books in general like when you when like you're the quote-unquote rookie on the block you know the way the way things start out, they may not be the greatest, but there's always that internal growth, which you know not only is internal, but it's also external as well because it's coming out in your rhymes, it's coming out in your you know music selection that you choose for your rhymes, uh, the topics that you want to talk about, and and all that. So not only on this website are they getting music for free, but they're also getting musical growth. If you understand what I'm saying. I mean that's the cool thing about about hip hop as a as a medium. Because, I mean, a lot of people like it's funny because I do I do listen to a lot of rap and I, I do have a history with it, but I probably don't listen to a lot of as much rap as people think I do. Mm-hmm. And I was actually talking to this band who does geek rock 
nerd rock music named Kirby Crackle, who's like one of my favorite bands in the world. And I was I was lamenting them to the saying how like how much I envy that that they can bring out these like bittersweet emotions because it's so hard to do that with hip hop. But the cool thing about it is is that you can say a message and you can establish like this this almost like this political ideology in your music, you know. And then you can see this person, this rapper, grow as a person through like this constant conversation they're having with you through their lyrics, you know, like. A lot of times, admittedly, a lot of times with mainstream rappers, it's a bad progression. You know, yeah. like you go from Public Enemy and it takes a nation of millions to Public Enemy's uh, music and our whatever that. Oh, music and, and our message. I don't want to yeah. talk about that one. I won't talk. Uh, about <laughs> like you go from there and you see this this progression of what they think about musical creation or or or, or Ice Cube from America's Most Wanted to whatever the hell the name of his last album was. I don't even remember what it was, but like. They, they're changing as people because they're becoming celebrities, they're becoming richer, they're becoming in, ingrained into this musical machine and like their natural like speak, what they're going to speak about and the things that they're going to rap about like will kind of tie into their growth as a person and their growth as an artist and like that's the cool thing is that like, there's only so many times a, a rock band like John Cougar Mellencamp, right? His music now probably sounds a lot like his music back when he sang his first single, like Jack and Diane or something like that, you know? Because mm-hmm. it's about love. It's about growing, being from a small town. It's this feeling of nostalgia. It's this feeling of, like, Amer- Americana. And, like, there's only so many ways you can say that in a song. And, and it'll change to a certain degree, but it's going to be the same emotion. And that's a good and a bad thing. And, like, with hip-hop, you can't bring out those emotions. Like, it's hard to make a hip-hop song where you just want to cry after you listen to it, right? Yeah. Um, you do get to see this person speak on so much stuff because you have to fill this with something that their natural growth as a person will always, like, you'll see that progression. So, like, that, that's the cool thing about being able to listen to a rapper through hip-hop as a medium. It's funny that, that that you mentioned Public Enemy and with the you know the music and and, and our message or mess age as they like to as they like <laughs> to call it. I didn't care much for that album either. And but then they came back four years later with the He Got Game soundtrack, which which I really really enjoyed. But Def Jam didn't get behind, and because that was the soundtrack for a Disney essentially a Disney film was Hollywood Pictures, which is owned by Disney. Normally, a Public Enemy album has the Public Enemy, the words Public Enemy, and then the Public Enemy logo. But because it was a Disney movie, essentially, they uh, Def Jam did not put the logo on the on front of the album. I still have the I still have the CD, and it's now on the front of the album. And that's when things between Def Jam and Public Enemy went sour. And this is the point I'm trying to get to. That's when they decided to go ahead and do their own thing, and they started embracing like the digital movement, like back in 1999. So like they were ahead of they were kind of like ahead of the game, you know, they, they, you know, they got in before anybody else got in, you know, digitally. And that was before, you know, the MP3, you know, people really understood the MP3 and, and people really understood like all the uses for the Internet. And and, yeah, you know, they've been releasing stuff like ever since then, like from 99 to like, you know, 2007. And I've got a lot of the stuff that they've put out now, like uh, um, New World Order. Um, beats and places, bring that beat back, and a couple other compilations, and that stuff is great. I really enjoy it. You know, they really embraced that digital age early, and I don't know if if that was you know a good thing or a bad thing for them. I mean, they're still around, they're still doing their thing, but you know, I give props to them, you know, for for doing that. But yeah, it's it's kind of funny. People, a lot of people, still don't understand how powerful the internet can be, and how and how much it can really you know change and affect and 
shape any form of industry, you know, especially with comic books. That's the thing, right, is that I find that a lot of people who have creative aspirations, they're kind of they're kind of turned off by the prospect because like the Internet is so prevalent and it's it's such a huge canvas for people to kind of paint with or paint on that they don't want to get involved because they think that it's impossible to break through. And, uh, you know, I'm here to tell you that like every single person that's ever made any kind of a presence online, whether it's as small as mine is at the, at this moment or as big as, you know, a, an artist like Jonathan Colton or like, you know, anybody like I can tell you this is that, you know, back in the day when the internet was first starting out, there was, it was almost arbitrary who rose to the top and who didn't because it was such a new thing that you couldn't say that, that the best rose to the top. But now, if you put your stuff out there and you you are honestly committed to making a go of it, like if your stuff is quality, if your stuff is good, like it really is a marketplace and it will rise to a higher level if you just put it out there and act like it's as good as you believe it to be, you know? Yeah. Like that's that's the thing that, that I find a lot of people, like it blows my mind why a lot of people are scared of starting something because it's just like, no, it, you know, it, it's a marketplace and like you, you most likely will fail because there's only so many people in the world who have a talent to do certain things, certain genres. Like I couldn't just start painting stuff and then all of a sudden become a, a painter if I had a really awesome Twitter account, you know. Yeah. But if, if you truly believe your stuff's good in an honest like appraisal of what you do, work at it a little bit and, and ask advice of people and if it's as good as you believe it is, it will rise up to a higher level. Like this is more of a, a fair marketplace than it ever has been in the past. And I, I, I find that it's it's the opposite of what you expect because there, because there's so many people. It's now with so many more people and so many like ways that we get media and so much crap out there that yeah. when somebody finds something that's 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 real and that's good and it resonates with them in some way, it will catch on and people will talk about it and it will become a bigger thing. And I mean, in a lot of ways, that's what happened with my first single that kind of blew up was Ira Glass. And like, you can tell people what the idea of like having a hip hop song where you turn Ira Glass's name into a slang phrase and people are just like, that sounds that sounds ridiculous and that sounds stupid. But then it's like when you play it for somebody, I hope that people think that like, oh, this is saying something and then it's an actual good song and it's catchy and it's fun and it's funny. It just kind of blew up to the point where, like, the the, the CEO of Public Radio International blogged about it. <laughs> really? Yeah. And and I reached out to her and I said, "Hey, you just blogged about my song. Do you want to do something like with like this song?" And she was totally like excited. And and this is CEO of PRI. You know, I was just like, "This is this is insane." And she was so cool. Her name's Alyssa Miller, and she was so like open to doing stuff with it. And she got our song on like on like PRI and got us featured on PRI. It, it all started from the fact that like I just put it out there. I didn't even do like hardly any kind of marketing for it. I, I put the song out there and I said, you know, hey guys, check out this song called Hourglass. And that, that was like the, the bulk of my PR and it just kind of went around on its own. Like if it's good and it's original and, and, and you have a voice and you have something you want to say, it, and it, it'll rise further to the top. But people are so scared to do that because they think there's so much stuff out there, but it's not just not the case. No, no, it's not the case at all. And also, I think some people, some people, I think, are also afraid of the, um, of of the fee of the feedback. And what and what I mean by that is, is that we all know we have people that can honestly give true constructive criticism, or they can say, you know, I like it or I don't like it. But then you have those people on the internet that are faceless and will be as hurtful as possible, even though they don't really, even though they don't have to, they just do it on purpose. So, 
and like I don't know if and it takes a lot to like you know build up for some people to build up that stamina and just to like tolerate it. Like we, I'm just, still I'm still sensitive about haters. I, like I'll, I'll totally admit that. Like and like it's I I hate that it affects me. But I don't like I've gotten to the point now where I don't read comments on a single thing that's online about unless it's my site. I, I can't do it because like I just get so hurt sometimes by it. And it's so stupid because it's just these people who like it's so easy for them to crap on stuff. And I've probably crapped on stuff too online as well. Like I totally I totally have. But like it's going to hurt. It's going to suck. But like what you should think about in your head is that if you're a creative person, what you're doing is you're picking up all like you're picking up the bowl of spaghetti, right? And you're throwing every single thing on the wall and you just want one thing to stick up there. Like one like thing out of a thousand things that you might think of to stick. And it's pro- that's like that's your odds. You know, like you're not going to get more than one of those things. And when you when that thing sticks, then you go for it. But like all those other thousand things that you think of that you might think are the greatest things in the world are pro- like they're going to suck. And people are going to say that it sucks. And it's like you just got to roll with it. But like. I, I hate how much I'm sensitive to it. I still totally am. Oh no! Like, I, I get like I get like that too. Seriously, yeah. I, I get like that too. Like, um, for a while I was trying to attract more traffic to the PKD Media website, and um, we started this promotion uh, for we did it for like about I say about a month, month and a half, where we took some of our comics and they were you know full like you know full size you know a couple were full size trades, and we had this deal with MyDigitalComics.com where we had the books. And we said, okay, for a month and a half, you can get our entire catalog for free. It's like four books, probably close to 300 pages worth of material for free. And I said, it's, you know, hey, you can download it. You can get it in CBZ format, PDF for- format. Just go to the site and go get it. And I, ha- and I had the article on our website. So the, um, so the Reddit link, yeah, Reddit, the Reddit link was, was right there. So they, people on Reddit would click and they would go get stuff or whatever. And, I mean, some of the comments folks made, and these were people that probably didn't even download anything. And they're like, oh, you know, they would say things like, oh, so this new little teeny tiny startup has their entire catalog, which only consists of four books for free. This is garbage. <laughs> and, 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 like, at first I, I just got heated. And then I remember somebody posted, like, a little bit later. Oh, they said, oh, okay, this sounds like a pretty cool idea. I'll go get these books. And that was, like, at, like, 9.25 in the morning. And then two minutes later, they write back, I just looked through these books, and these books are garbage. I'm like, how can you read 300 pages worth of material <laughs> in two minutes? Seriously? Really? I got so heated, and I got so mad that like, I just say, okay, I'm not, I'm not fooling with this anymore. When you go on a site that has reviews, star reviews, like I, I can't remember who said this like, when I was listening to it somewhere. Like, you only read the, the, the two and three star reviews. You know, mm-hmm. like you don't read the five star reviews. You don't read the one star reviews because because that's what everybody says. It's one or the other. You want the people that are going to give it a three star review or two and a half star review. And they're just like, you know, these are the problems that I had with this. But these are also the reasons why I got it. Like those are the people who actually are going to give you actual uh, like criticism. Like that's the kind of criticism you want from people online. But like everything is going to either be a one star review or a five star review on like iTunes on a podcast or something like that. So it's just like. I've gotten better about it, but like there, there is no amount of great, there's no amount of good comments that you can get that will overshadow that one person that just like shoves the knife in on your side a little bit. You're just, you're just like, God damn it, man. Like, you know, I hate this faceless person is just giving me so much stress about this thing when I've got like all these other people telling me that they like this stuff. And it's just like, it, you know, you got to just kind of block it out and only focus on the positive, which is like it's tough to do in anything in life, you know. Oh, it's real difficult. And and like you, I'm still I'm still learning it, too. You know what I mean? 
and yeah. and but yeah dude there are just some days like i just swear i just want to be like like bill cosby and ghost dad and like just travel through the internet and choke <laughs> that per- and just choke that person but, but I'm it like, makes you but it makes you a better consumer you know because yeah. it makes it makes me now not be like this looks like crap because it's like man i'd hate for somebody to like come to my site and be like oh there's a typo in this post and you know like i i'm such a better consumer about it now because you realize how much how easy it is to be like a troll a trolling dick online and like yeah. you just hope that like you just like the best thing you can do is just not be like that or like if you see something that you really like or that you like and have some issues with like you can actually explain it to the person like a lot of times i'll send an email to people who's like music or content that i'm really like that i know and that i really like and then i'll say like you know, give them like actual constructive criticism. And like, that's like the best thing you can hope you can hope for basically. Let's talk about some comics um, for a moment. You do War Rocket Ajax, y'all talk about comics on there and stuff like that. But like as of this moment, like as far as comic books go or web comics or just anything in general, what are you reading right now? What are you digging? I've always said that my favorite ongoing series comic is Chew by Image Comics, which is um, it. Do you know? Are, are you familiar with this one? Oh, no, I'm familiar with it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, for those who don't know, it's this high concept comic about this guy named Tony Chu, who's a, a sybopath where like when he eats something, he can mentally or psychically know the whole history of that living being and he is a an agent of the fda and chicken is outlawed because of the avian flu it's this crazy ass like detective cop comic but also has these ongoing stories of like supernatural things in it too it, it's the art so good by uh rob guillory i think and then um i believe his name is john layman is the, I, the I, author i think so yes and that's that's probably my favorite ongoing series right now, and I I look it's like I palpably look forward to it. Other than that, there's like there's a lot of um, creators right now who I, who I'll read anything that they put out. As uh, Jeff Parker's Atlas series, he's moving on to do Hulk and uh, Mad Fraction, like Ed Brubaker, people like that. Chris Robertson's I Zombie is a really great uh, book that's coming out right now. I'm forgetting a ton because I ha- actually have not kept up with like ongoing issues right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because it's like it just gets it's the most exp- it's like the inversely like productive thing where like the more you miss, the harder it is to get back into a regular schedule of picking up weekly comics because you're just like, I don't even know what's going on. Like, you know, like it just gets it's like you get buried under this this uh, being having to catch up. But uh, I'll, I'll say this is like web comics wise. Um, there's a webcomic out there called Johnny Wander. If, if you don't read it, it's at johnnywander.com. It's by um, a couple, uh, their names are Ananth and, and Yuko. It's an autobiographical comic about uh, this couple and their friends who live in Brooklyn and are, are artists and writers about comics. And it's such a great comic. They just released their first volume. It's a comic that makes me smile more than it makes me laugh. And that is like one, probably like the highest compliment I can pay to them because you read that book and you're just smiling. It just feels like it's like it's like seeing old friends. A lot of comics can, can have like goofy jokes and that make you giggle and make you chuckle. But like it's hard for like a comic to really make you smile and like make you feel like this like warmth in you. And like I love it so much and I, I really recommend it to everybody out, out there to go get that first volume. Like you'll be hooked. It's the first year of their comics. So. Oh, cool. And you and you did a that's right. You did a track on Johnny Wanderer as well on your track. I on, did. Right? 
I did a track after I read their first volume in one city and after I bought it completely on I, I'd never read it. I bought it on a recommendation from my friend. It was like, oh, you should really get this. It's a really great book. And I sat there and talked to them for a little bit about it. It's it's an awesome webcomic. I, like I I'm completely a fan. But like I read a ton of webcomics more than I could sit here and talk about forever. But like <laughs> Chu and Johnny Wander are probably like the the ongoing series comic and webcomic that I would I would mention off the top of my head. I've been like everywhere i've been like all across the board new school yeah. old school but i mean like a lot of it right now like i said is scott pilgrim i've really been all about that still reading uh, johnny hero by fred chow and that came out through ad house books Lo- i love that book i'm like through like part two of that ogn yeah or- fred chow who's who's actually a really nice guy i met him on a couple occasions at, at conventions and he's he's awesome i met him at heroes con back in 2000 and uh, in 2009 Really nice guy. I took a picture when we rapped for a while, and he like gave me like this really really nice sketch. And then we uh, talked again during a Super Show CGS Super Show in 2010, and I was like, "Hey, can you um, do a um, a commission of of the G Force?" And like he got so hype, he was like, <laughs> you know, he was like, "I used to watch that." Like you know, and he called, he picked up his phone and he called his mom. And he was like, "Hey, Sean just asked for a sketch of blah 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 blah," and you know, he said you know, and he said them uh, called them by their original name. And he got all hype and is still like the coolest like commission, one of my cool, the coolest commissions I, I ever got. And it's the whole team, including little Keop over in the corner. Yeah. Marvel did a, a trade paperback, which basically is a collection of the very first four issues of the West Coast Avengers limited series. And it has like random Avengers issues and, and an Iron Man annual in it. And I can't put that down. Speaking of uh, West Coast Avengers, that leads us to the West Coast Avengers mixtape. What I want to know, and for the and for those that haven't listened to it yet, if you go to AdamWarrock.com, you can find it, and there's a link for the the uh, West Coast Avengers mixtape there, and you can cop it because it's dope. What was the inspiration to actually do this mixtape? I had gotten back from recording the album uh, in Dayton, Ohio, at Ruckus Robotics, who's my DJ. That was an album that I spent like a year doing, writing, conceiving, getting the beats done, and then um, recording it over the span of a week straight uh, every day for like like 14 hours a day. I was just burnt out. I kind of didn't want to post anything on my site for a little bit. And I, I kind of had this panic because the album itself is, is very serious. It, it's not like starkly serious, but it's definitely like, it's not goofy. That's the word to say, right? And so I said, you know, oh, man, what if everybody hates the fact that this album is so serious? Because obviously, like a lot of what's on the track log is sort of goofy or lighthearted. And I said, uh, you know, I should make like a a mixtape, you know, the way that like that, you know, Wale or like Lupe Fiasco or Kanye West, like they make like mixtapes before their like album drops and they release it for free. And it's just uses all these famous beats. Right. Right. And like. A lot of times, and I hope that's not the case in mine, but a lot of times the mixtape's better than the album. Uh, <laughs> like that was the case for Wally's mixtape about nothing. That was the case for Lupe Fiasco's, touch, um, whatever his mixtape was called. Uh, Kanye's Touch the Sky mixtape before that album, whichever college themed title it was, was amazing. So I said, I kind of like wanted to make it where it was, it was very comic book based, right? Yes. And I, that was like after um, the siege in Marvel where all these Avengers titles were coming out, right? Like, <laughs> there's like Avengers Academy, New Avengers, Secret Avengers, whatever, new, Mighty Avengers, like ev- like eight Avengers books were out. And I saw that A everywhere, right? That Avengers A. And I was just like, 
it, it just got in my head where I was like, I would really love an album where that that was on the cover, that A, and it said Adam Warrock, right? I was like, so what if I make it a West Coast Avengers thing? And then I was like, I could use all these West Coast gangster beats because I don't often use West Coast beats for anything that I do because I'm, I'm such an East Coast guy when I grew up, like New York style, like Wu-Tang and all that stuff. And I just make every single song a title of one of the West Coast Avengers. And it was originally going to be like six songs long, right? Because right. I was just like, I'm so burnt out, I'm not going to do this. And then I, all these people, when I announced it, all these people kept tweeting at me and they were like, is Tiger going to be on it? Is Firework going to be on it? Is Vision going to be on it? And I was just like, oh my God, like all these people like are expecting every single one of these people on it. And I'm like, I barely even knew the roster of the original West Coast Avengers. I was like, it's Hawkeye and Mockingbird and Vision and Wonder Man and War Machine. Like I was just like, that's all I remember off the top of my head. So like I, I, I wrote out a list and I was like, all right, well, let's try to knock this out and see what we can do. I, I basically just sat there for like two days just like listening to all these West Coast songs and kind of came up with the list. What really started the whole project rolling was I found this Iron Man freestyle beat by a guy named DJ Polar Hercules. It's it's I found it totally by accident. I don't know. I should probably contact him at some point. I, I gave him full credit everywhere. His name's his name and the link to his site is everywhere. <laughs> He's like user free. So there's no copyright infringement. I'm not profiting off it anyways. But um it was this uh, like fast beat using the riff, the, the Iron Man riff from Black Sabbath. And I kind of made this intro song and I wanted to call it Iron Man, obviously. And that kind of was like the first song on the mixtape. And from there, I just started making more and more stuff. And I kind of ran with all these ideas and kind of got to do all this like really interesting stuff. Like, you know, War Machine was about the Iraq War and Living, Le- uh, Living Legend. Living Lightning was about uh, Proposition 8 in California because he's gay. And I got to kind of make it about re- Wonder Man was like a beef track by uh, Living, Living Laser. And uh, <laughs> was it Kang? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Kang the Conqueror. <laughs> I can't even remember all the top of my head. There's like so much stuff in there. Like Spider Woman was like one of Kang the Conqueror's uh, henchmen falling in love with Spider Woman as Spider Woman like kicks his ass. Like it was just like all these. Like every single ridiculous idea I could come up with that had any kind of tangential link to the name of the of the the song, which was the, the name of the hero, I was like, done. I'm doing that. And I just kind of ran with it and just did it. And a lot of that's why a lot of the songs are like a minute and fifty seconds long, because it's like I like there is no way I could have extended that that concept more than just that um, like a verse and a chorus, you know? Oh, no, but and, but I'm sorry, not to cut you off, but like with a lot of mixtapes, though, a lot of the songs are short. Right, right, which which worked out well. That's kind of how it all started. And I, I in my head, I was like, okay, so if people get this mixtape for free, then they can have this mixtape for free and then act like they're, even if they don't like the album, they won't feel like they're gypped because it's like they got the goofy thing and then they got the serious album and that together is worth your like 10 bucks for the album or whatever. And it just kind of became its own thing. Like it, it, it got pretty big, and like I actually contacted Laura Hudson, who's the editor in chief of ComicsAlliance.com, who I know through Chris Sims and other people. And I said, "Hey, you know, I, I, do you want to put this on your site because it's totally comic book related? Like, I would be happy to let you guys have exclusive rights to it." She was totally into it. Like, Comics Alliance does really interesting original content like that. They hosted it, and and people enjoyed it. I, I guess, right? I to this day, I. Like when well, you listen to Wonder Man, you you are hearing you are hearing the voice of a man who's clearly losing his mind after burnout of uh, months and months <laughs> of doing the same songs over and over again. 
it was it was that was it it was me burnt out and just wanting to do something that just was like a total release from like all the serious songs that i did on the album you know oh yeah i mean but like a song like vision I, you know I, like i said i love because it's just like you just put it all out there right and vision actually vision is the only song on there that was not that that was a song that was written separately from that mixtape Huh. And I, I, it just happened that it has that like line about I can't because I couldn't like use my eyes or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that'll work. Vision. Because like Vision is like the name Vision. I wanted it to be one of the last songs of the album because it sounds like a very inspiring song title. Right. Right. And I, I didn't want to make it a song about a robot because it's just it's just kind of too easy. So like um, I just kind of like retrofitted that into being on there. But that that's actually one of my favorite songs that I've ever written. That was like the frame of mind I was in after I'd come back from this album because you you spend all this time on this thing and then you leave and now you're waiting for like a DJ to mix it and an engineer to master it and then it to be produced, which I'm still waiting for like the manufacturing process to be done and then and then it's for sale. It it's like four months of time or three months of time where you you don't get to do anything and you're stuck in with this memory of like, oh, I just did that. What if it's terrible? What if nobody likes it? Like, what if what if I messed up? What if it's not as good as I thought it was? Or what if it's not as good as my the rough drafts, like the the studio versions, you know? And like, I had one of those days where I woke up and I was just like, man, I like, I feel like, I feel like this is not gonna work out. And then I wrote that song to kind of make myself feel better because it's it's the song about, it's not about this one moment. It's not about this one thing. It's the total. It's the big picture, you know. The spoken word audio sample at the beginning of that song i know i've heard it somewhere but i can't remember it and it's just been killing me it, it, it's uh it's it's uh robert guillaume from sports night thank uh, you uh it was the episode christmas episode where casey is buying him a cheese grater and his partner uh doesn't know that casey turned down a job in the past to go work on a network and they're having this fight and robert guillaume's giving him this advice and he's saying you know because Casey's like, why do I have to? Why do I have to tell him to make him feel better? Like he gets me anyways. Like we're friends, or whatever. And Robert Guillaume's advice is like, you know, it's a small gesture. Like you do this because he is your friend, and it means the world to these people that you care about. So like, it, it's one of my favorite lines from that whole series, and I've always remembered it, and I'm happy I could use it. So roll credits on these Jersey Shore girls. They can break the fourth wall. We break the fourth world. Painting pictures jumping straight from the page And I'm the man of steel damage in your paper mache Whether you get the singles or you wait for the trades The Silver Age MC stay saving the day We take your name of major labels for practice for radio We're about to get into the War for Infinity CD A uh, thematic rap space opera that tells the story of Adam Warrock and <laughs> Demonos um, Now, this also, also ushers in the Silver Age of hip-hop as well And so, um, I'll tell you what uh, Can you tell me and the listeners a little bit about the uh, war for infinity and what the silver age and hip hop is all about man it, it sounds so uh so ridiculous when you say it out loud i i always love when i was talking with my dj ruckus roboticus and we were talking about how to adjust it i was like can you make it sound like he you know he's supposed to be doing this and then this guy flies in and then this guy and then an explosion happens and i was like but it's supposed to sound like it's all being seen from a guy in space and he's like okay i got it and i was just like this is the most ridiculous conversation we're having <laughs> okay so the war for infinity is a lo- it's a it's a thematic story album and i started calling it rap space opera because that just brings to mind like people identify with that more but it's it's a thematic story album that's loosely inspired by 
Marvel Comics Infinity Gauntlet Saga, which, um, you know, if you read comics, if you read Marvel Comics back in the 80s and 90s, like, this is, is a huge crossover event where there's this evil uh, villain named Thanos who, in order to pr- impress Lady Death, he uses the Infinity Gauntlet to wipe out half of the sentient life in the universe. And then all these heroes come and attack him, and he's fighting with Adam Warlock. It's the, where Adam Warlock comes from, right? Right. So the idea is that it tells a story in 17 total tracks, or 16, I guess, when you don't count the Silver Age, which is the single. When you lay these songs out in order, they, they go through this very like linear narrative, right? But it's not like two people are talking. It's not like a musical where everything is like being wrapped to each other. It's just songs that represent different things that are happening in the story. And they're told from different perspectives and they use different um, characters. But you can pull out each song and listen to it on its own and it should be able to stand on its own with the exception of maybe one or two that are very transitory or transition-y or whatever. That's the idea. And, it, it, and it's, it's told in a serious way. and It's kind of this allegory or this metaphor for staying true to creative, your creative expression, like what you want to say, and the easy way out of kind of being gimmicky and, and giving into what people think are, are like easy things to, to rap about or make art about, you know? I, I realize how ridiculous this all sounds because it's so hard to explain to people unless you actually just sit down and listen to it. And it goes back to this era in the 90s, you know, back when like everybody was making these these thematic concept albums or these very theatrical albums, like all of Wu-Tang's solo albums, like Ray- Raekwon's Only Built for Cupid Links. That whole album has like a skit every other track that's telling some sort of story. I'm not exactly sure what it's about. Or <laughs> De La Soul is Dead is a story about, you know, their rejection of the flower power mentality they made on Three Feet High and Rising. And then like Prince Paul's A Prince Among Thieves was yes. a, a, an album that was the, the, the number one inspiration for my album, which told a story of these two, these two fr- childhood friends who one of the guys is a rapper who wants to kind of come out and the other guy's this kind of, you know, he's involved in the drug game and they kind of weave in and out of the city and keep experience, keep meeting up with all these different characters and Prince Paul is kind of running this huge space opera and it's a hard album to listen to because it's like 22 tracks long and the story is like a little bit too, like it's too detailed, you know? Mm-hmm. But it is like one of the most ambitious albums by a guy who's a, a, a genius, who's a, a hip-hop genius, Prince Paul, who, who did De La Soul and he did Grave Diggers and all this stuff. Oh, no, see, um, I, I, ha- I have Prince Among, the Prince Among Thieves album. And as a matter of fact, what's funny is before we recorded, and this is no lie, I wrote that down. <laughs> on our on our paper with like the list of everything we wanted to talk about in regards to uh, the War for Infinity. Yeah. So. I, that it, that was an album that has surprisingly been forgotten about, and I've actually stopped talking about it in interviews because I like it just doesn't come up anymore. But when I first started telling people about it, I kept telling people like, "This is this is a Prince Among Thieves, but it's about a com- it's with comic book tropes, right?" Right, like that's exactly the way I want it, and it's not as dialogue-y. There's not like two guys in a car just talking to each other in rap form. Like I don't like that. But um, but that album's amazing, and it, it I, I wish I had the capability to bring in as many guest stars as like Prince Paul does, because like he brings in Cool Keith, who's a guy who sells drug uh, guns to people. Uh, Everlast is like a racist cop, yes. which is a, an amazing song. Uh, Exhibit and Sadat X from Brand Nubian are cellmates in prison. Like when uh, one of the characters goes to prison, and it's just like, it's just this uh, De La Soul. They're like junkies on the street. Like, yep. like it's such an awesome, it's an awesome album, and I love the idea that when 
you know, because on, on the track log on the site, I can make a song about whatever I want any day of the week, right? I can make a song about Harvey Dent or nostalgia or falling in love or whatever. So if I'm going to make an album that I sell to people, that's this thing that I work on for months and months and months. Like I want it to tell a story and I want it to be linked together. I want it to be cohesive. And I don't want it to just be a collection of the track log songs. And so like that's kind of where it started from. The idea that it's the Silver Age, I have to give it up. It's, it's totally to the MC that worked on me with uh, this project. His name's Tribe One, a.k.a. Niles, uh, who's an MC from Atlanta with this group called The Remnant. They're amazing. You should check them out. We were sitting around with the, the last song, which was the single, which was supposed to be like after the song is over, you listen to this single. And the single is kind of like this palate cleanser after this ridiculous space opera has just happened. You just have this dope ass hip hop song blast out, right? Right. I had written out this whole song to it. And I, we arrived in Ohio to record. And I, I told Niles, I was like, I don't like what I've written. Like, it, it's got to pop. It's got to be like memorable. It's got to have a hook. I was like, we need a name for ourselves too. Like, we don't have a name for ourselves yet. And Niles was just sitting around. We we're just, just shooting the breeze. And he was like, we should call ourselves like the Silver Age. It's like, it should be something about the Silver Age. Like, we should be, we are the Silver Age, you know? Like, that's the name of our group. And I was like, oh, I like it. And then we kept talking and he, and he was kind of like, the music that you make and the music that Adam Warrock is, is like, it, it embodies a lot of things that the Silver Age comics were all about, which was like the period of comics that started, you know, with Stan, uh, Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, and a lot of those guys started making these crazy space sagas and these crazy villains and these crazy superheroes that use these insane ideas you know and just like stretch the boundaries of what comics were because before then it was like superman you know like saving a woman from falling or it's like captain america punching a nazi you know like yep. and then it's like fantastic four battling galactus who has the silver surfer next to him while the celestials are flying in and it's just crazy shit it's like that's awesome in every single way and so it made sense because this, the music that Adam, that Adam Warwick stuff is, it's hip-hop, but it's hip-hop that expands the boundaries of what you think a rap song could be about. And at the same time, it's this postmodern era of rap that comes after the golden age. So after the golden age of rap, which was in the late 80s, early 90s, like you can call this the silver age of hip-hop, right? Right. And the, the two things kind of weave together, and then we kind of wanted to have, like we just got obsessed with the idea of saying something like about Stan and Jack, right? In the song... And we wrote this song seriously in like two days, like like not even two days, like two sittings because we only had time in between songs like when we were eating or something to like sit around and write. I always give Niall shit because I think that his verse is so much better than mine on the song and it's supposed to be like my album single. <laughs> and I, like, I'm just like, man, you outshine me on my own song. But it's such an amazing verse and it's such a perfect representation, like the way he comes out with that song. I've never been part of a better song than the Silver Age. And, and part of the greatness of it was like we recorded that song last after six straight days of doing 14-hour days of recording and writing and, re and tweaking and, and, and all this processing and stuff. We wrote it on the spot and we were still excited about it because we had just wrote it that, like, that, those past days. And we were so like I, I like reserved the URL to Silver Age Hip Hop, which had .com. And like, we're going to do more stuff with it. But like, it was such a perfect way to kind of describe what this music was all about. It's, oh, it's all not Niles Gray, man. The, he's tribe one of, of the remnant. And he's, you know, I, I wrote about this on the site. He's somebody who came in after uh, somebody else I was working with couldn't kind of do the album. And he became such a big voice in it. And I'm so thankful for his presence in my life as a friend and, and somebody who is a creative input because he was there the whole time. And just the, like 
he would tell me things like, say the word like this. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was like, that's exactly what it needed to be. Like he made the album a hundred times better. And I like, he is so like, he is a co-equal partner, like 50, 50 partner in the silver age, that single and making it as good as it is. Like I, I want to give him all the credit in the world. And, and for those that don't know about tribe one, if you get the West coast Avengers mixtape, listen to the moon Knight track where regulate is sampled and, and tribe one is rhyming on that. And, his rhyme flow is so tight. No, the dude is serious. So no, take a listen to that. You know, if if you want to hear about Tribe One, take a listen to that. But then, you know, go invest. Please go invest. But um, now Warm Infinity drops October the seventh. Now, where is that dropping? What, what markets will that be dropping on? So it'll be out digitally on iTunes and Amazon for nine ninety nine, right? Right. Uh, you can order a copy of the album, like just the CD, for nine bucks from the site. Uh, AdamWarrock.com, or you can buy for twelve bucks a deluxe version, which is uh, the CD, immediate digital download, and then you'll get a button that Rusty Sh- artist Rusty Shackles did for us, uh, which is Pip the Troll from the Infinity Gauntlet, looking like Flava Flav holding a clock. <laughs> it's such an amazing picture. I like. I love Pip the Troll. Like he's one of my favorite characters in the world. And then um. I actually worked with a guy named DJ Empirical and he mashed up a bunch of acapellas from the track log into like electronic hip hop beats and made it into this continuous like 50 minute mix and then also uh, sliced it up into the individual songs. And we're calling it, um, it was like that when we got here, volume one, because he's going to keep doing it as we go through the track log. Like we're selling that on, on my Bandcamp site for three bucks, right? But if you order the deluxe version, you'll get an immediate download of the tracks and an exclusive, uh, the 50 minute continuous mix, which has stuff that's not on the, the thing you buy in the Bandcamp and you can't get anywhere else. So I think that's the way it's gonna come out. At this point, I have not set up the whole store, so maybe those prices might change a little bit. Like, <laughs> they might become like $8.99 and $11.99 just to make it look like more business-like, which mm-hmm. I don't understand why I do that. But um, that that those are the three things. and like. Digitally from iTunes, single CD, just for people who just want like extra copies of the CD if you just and don't want to buy another deluxe edition. And we're doing that like that because when you buy it from iTunes and Amazon, this is something you got to think about for independent creators. Apple takes a 30% cut. Amazon takes a 30% cut of all profits that you sell on there. So like mm-hmm. that's a pretty decent chunk that a lot of these smaller websites are kind of going around. So actually... You know, I know how easy it is to click that buy button on iTunes where your credit card is preloaded. I do it all the time too. But if you have any way where you can directly download it from an artist, you should think about that because like three bucks per album is a huge ass chunk of profit that that independent artists definitely need. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah it's it's tough. And I mean, like, you know, if you hear somebody from like, if you hear of an artist from Pitchfork or you hear an artist on a blog or something, you know, look at their website and buy it directly. Like I, I started doing that. I started doing that with web comics who release books too. Buying it directly from them, like it's, it gives, it keeps it going. Cause like, you just think about how much like Apple's making and Amazon's making off of like, just like a, a Justin Bieber album. You know, like a million people download that out of the, like the ten million dollars revenue. Apple's getting like three million dollars profit from just hosting it on their site like that's that's pretty crazy you know that is crazy you know what's even more crazy is the fact that justin bieber has done a remix with raekwon and kanye west (laughs) hey man you know i i don't i don't have as much hate for justin bieber as other people do because i I like a good pop song and i think baby with Ludacris is an awesome song i actually used that beat to make a song too and uh 
I don't have, you know, like it, the Raekwon, I read an interview with Raekwon explaining why he did it. And it was pretty much like, I don't know. Like that was like, that was his explanation. He's like, why not? I don't yeah. know. Whatever. <laughs> well, see, you know, my thing is like, I don't hate the kid either because every, like I, I, I had mentioned this in a, uh, in an earlier podcast where every single era or every single generation has that dude. Or you know, or or that or, or or that lady or that girl, whether it be music, comics, movies, wherever, we've all had that person. So you know, for this generation, it's it's Bieber. But um, I just remember the first time I heard this song, I heard Raekwon on it, and then I heard Kanye, and then I hear you know I hear Bieber, and you know I hear the the Wu Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with sample. I just didn't know how to take it. <laughs> my my mind, it's like my my brain just literally just stopped for a moment. And like I just tilted my head to the side like Puff in a music video with Biggie, and and I just didn't know how to take it. And I'm like, am I supposed to like this? And that's the first time I've ever done that. Normally I'm like, okay, I dig this, I don't dig this, or you know maybe I'll like it later. But I just stopped. I'm like, am I supposed to like this? I don't know. I really don't know. Have you heard that? Uh, you heard that Kid Cudi song, "Erase Me," right? Um, it's been a while, but yes, I have. Yes. Do you like that song? That's okay. Man, I love that song, man. I like, I, I love Kid Cudi. Like, I think he's he's one of the guys that I could listen to. Like, I get excited for his new stuff, and it's a very short list of people who I get get excited for their new stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, like I, I definitely, I definitely don't don't hate on the guy at all. I don't. I, yeah. know, I, I find I find him to be extremely talented. But you know, I think that song is alright. I think it's going to be one of those songs that is going to grow on me. To be honest with you, it's it's going to it's just going to take a while because I'm always. Like sometimes, like I'll get set in my ways with certain songs. I'm just like, okay, I'm just feeling this sound and this vibe right now. So if somebody else comes in with something, I'm like, okay, I'm not feeling that. But like after I get out that vibe, I can go back and say, oh damn, this is dope. I really slept on this. What the hell is my problem? I just love like in Kanye's verse in that song. He like what's the line is like? She said, "Hi, I'm Maria. No, you an angel. You wave hi to Aaliyah." And it's like the concept of that is that he's like. She's like, hi, uh, my name's Maria. And he's like, no, <laughs> you're an angel. You wave hi to Aaliyah. It's just like, no, that's not your name. No, like, he's just like correcting her. Like, that's how ridiculous Kanye West is in his mind. I love, like, yeah. I, I, I love, I love it. Speaking of hip hop, and this is something I need to talk to you about, and I want and I want to you know blame my friend Julian Lytle for this, but it's in a good way. Rick Ross is now officially like my new guilty pleasure in music. <laughs> and here's the thing, here's the thing, <laughs> because when when Rick Ross first started, I'll be honest with you, I was not feeling him. I did not really, I honestly did not care. I was the same way. I was the same way. I did not care for like, you know, like hustling and all this other stuff. Even though Jay-Z came in on the remix and Jay-Z's verse was cold, I said, okay, I'm good. I'm done. Right there. I'm good. Everything else I didn't care for. You didn't care about how he has two microwaves that cook a brick at, brick at a time? No, I didn't care. <laughs> I didn't care because I just, you know, that doesn't do anything for me because, you know, we've had MCs and rappers before talk about this stuff, you know, and so like to me, I'm like, okay, I've heard this before, but then somewhere when he came out with Magnificent with John Legend and that production quality just somehow upgraded and I just said, okay, this song is dope. I'm like, no, it's not, Sean. You know you shouldn't like this. I'm like, I don't care. I got to listen to it. I like this. I like this. Well, and, and, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, 
Rick Ross is part of that like that that crack rap regime, mm-hmm. but he's like on he's like he's like right at the top where like that bubble is right about to burst into like like pop rap, you know, like he's yes. so close to it. Because like what's so fascinating about that crack rap regime, and this is something we could talk about all day. Because I actually like I almost went to instead of becoming a rapper, or I probably still would have done it. But I almost went to get a master's degree or PhD in cultural studies about hip hop and race and politics and stuff. But um, like that crack rap re- regime is so fascinating because you think about it like this, right? Where like it's a generation of people who grew up where rap was no longer like an interesting thing. It, it was no longer like this. It was no longer this like special thing, this new thing that people were excited about. It was just always there, you know? Yes. And it was so commonplace that NWA or Ice Cube were like, uh, I guess it's the same thing, or like, uh, you know, Wu-Tang and all that stuff from like back in the day, like that stuff wasn't, wasn't tough enough. It wasn't, it wasn't street enough that they got, instead of getting, going past like gangster bravado, they they withdrew and became this weird kind of apathetic dead inside rappers like the clips or like young Jeezy. Like these are guys who rap in this, like it's like, they're not even bragging. They're just telling you how much ice they wear as like, whatever, who cares? And I kill this guy, you know, it's like this cold, like the wire style kind of like telling. And like, that's so fascinating to listen to as like this postmodern rap, right? Because it's either gone off in this indie kind of sincere way or it's gone off in this horribly apathetic way. Like the clips is one of the most fascinating rap groups of all time. I think to listen to it and just to study why they exist. And Rick Ross is like right at that bubble where it's like about to get back into to puff daddy. And I can't figure out if it's because it's a, it's like a conscious thing that he does where he's like, I'm going to do this, like this, like crack rap swagger, but make it pop. Or it's because that crack rap, rap swagger is going around this circle and coming all, all the way back around to where like this like lush puff daddy no way out style like big horns and strings and like swelling kind of orchestral ridiculous shit like music is being formed that it's like so it's so big that you can't help but like be pulled in by it and it's still fascinating because he's still rapping about this like horrible horrible like depraved stuff you know oh, oh yeah definitely I, I just know that when he came out with teflon don and julian was like yo you really need to listen to this because like he's he, in in julian's own words he's like he said it's basically uncle phil from fresh prince but he, <laughs> but he's gangster and he's just telling you what he does and, and, yeah. he's, and he's got money and i and, and i never thought of it that way i was like he's right because when ashton martin music on oh. uh, on Teflon Don starts and Drake start you know and like they got auto they got Drake auto tune singing and then the music comes in and it's it's like this with like a lot of like uh, Rick Ross tracks or some of Drake's tracks on um, Thank Me Later, like it's just like mer- emerge like reemergence of like eighties R and B sounds as well and so like I'm like okay who told them to like listen to Alexander O'Neill albums. And like you know, and, and I'm not saying that they they directly sample Alexander O'Neill albums, but like just stuff from that period, and like you know, kind of convoluted and twisted up a little bit, and just makes this like sound and this production quality that pulls you in. You know, so, so sometimes I will disregard the lyrics because the production and the music is so beautiful. My my favorite album by him. I mean, I I like Teflon Don a lot, but like Trilla is such a great album, and I know that a lot of people don't like it necessarily as much as the first or the third, but like. It's because it's so like weirdly pop. You put on a song like his song "This Me." If if you ever heard of that song, like that is like an anthem of like 
I'm the shit in like the most like lackadaisical way of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm the shit. You know, like he's just like whatever. But like it's so fascinating because it's like um, like I was listening to that like Das Racist, right? Like those three Indian dudes who are now making this like weird absurdist slash nonchalant rap. And it's almost like I feel like they're the next they're after this crack rap genre where now it's it's guys who, who aren't black and aren't from the streets and they're not rapping about crack. They're rapping about nonsense, but they're rapping about nonsense in this very la- like apathetic way in the same kind of style. And it's like that's the offshoot of what's happening from that crack rap postmodern style. And then what happened after in the other direction from like indie rap is now like the sincere kind of geekier rap like what I'm doing. You know, like that's the complete opposite direction. But like I love Rick Ross man. (laughs) I will I will bump that stuff. You, You can't help but feel like a badass if you like if that's your soundtrack when you walk around like in your headphones. Like you, you feel like a, you feel like a Don, you know, it's such a perfect like way of, of making you feel what it's trying to make you feel like, you know? Oh, no, I know. Oh, trust me. I know. Like, dude, anytime I'm driving to a convention, I put Magnificent in the playlist Yeah. and it gets played at least four times. I love Aston Martin music, Maybach music, Billionaire. And like people never believe me, and I'm always like, man, you guys have no idea. Like you gotta know how to listen to him, like how to come into him, because it's like you can't expect him to be one way or the other. He's just so, it's stupid, yeah. But it's also really smart in this like really unexpected way. Like well, I, I, I love it. Well, you see, and to me, like I, I feel that like he's one step closer to you know that because pop music is is just homogenized. I mean, it's everything because now they accept almost everything because radio is so homogenized because it's so corporate owned and you know you're going to hear the same thing on like 50 on the on 50 radio stations across the country but you know he's about to get to that level when he shows up in a nike commercial and nobody says anything (laughs) which would be fine with me man i wouldn't have a problem with it i I just like his the visual of him he has that one uh there's this picture of him online where he's he's big and fat and he's got a bald head and a big beard and he wears these big shades and he's got a chain and the chain has this gigantic golden head, his head, <laughs> on his stomach. And it's like, what possesses you? What possesses a man to have a, a gold chain of his face on his chain that's right next to his head? And they look like – and he dresses exactly like the thing on the chain. It's like – it's so awesome. <laughs> It's so awesome. He's so awesome. Like, how can you not love this guy? Come on. I don't even care if, like, he's been investigated for crimes or whatever. He's just so, <laughs> he's such a ridiculous figure that, like, he used to be a cop and now he's, like, rapping about cocaine. It's just, like, whatever. Yeah, this it's is so ridiculous. It's beyond ridiculous, but. Um... I reminisce for a spell, or shall I say think back 22 years ago to keep it on track The birth of a child on the 8th of October A toast, but my granddaddy came sober Count all the fingers and the toes now I- Before we close up this interview, two, two, thing, two other things I gotta talk to you about And one of these things might take a couple of minutes And I mentioned it when I sent over the email about some things we could possibly talk about um, because you listen to like you know hip hop, especially in the '90s, there are a lot of forgotten MCs and forgotten artists that like nobody talks about anymore. And I just wanted to rap to you about some of them to see if you knew knew of any of them, or if you had some, um, if you could like you know shoot them over, that'd be cool. But one of them, and we talked about it actually, you know, before the show, before the recording, was A Plus. Yeah, that was my dude. 
<laughs> when, when you know back in back in the early '90s, he he sampled a Shalimar song, and uh, you know he's, he's like you know he's a little kid, he's probably like you know 15, 16 at the time, and that song was a big hit, and the album sold. But he came right during that period of time where hip hop was once again about to hit that um that what, what I call the puffy transition when when Puff like just took took everything over, and he was getting like turning to be like 17, 18. So they changed up his style, and the second album was called Hempstead High. Yeah. And like he's and on the front of the album on the front of the album cover, he's essentially giving you the finger, but they put a hat over his hand, so so you couldn't see him. So you know you couldn't see him giving you the finger. And his first single, I think, sampled like um, some type of '70s disco symphony, uh, symphony. And like the video was like all flashy, and he had like these fly girls playing the violins, and he had like the shiny puffy outfit on, and he was like dancing and stuff. I was like, oh no. He's not um, gonna make it. The thing about A plus was that he was a really great flower and rhymer, but his lyrical content had not yet developed into like that cleverness yet. Right. So like he was good at putting them together, but he had this one line about how. Uh, oh yeah, here he goes. <laughs> okay, here we go. They told me to lie because they don't want to hear the god spit. Chop my hands off at the armpits, but I regenerate limbs like starfish. Coming at you with the hard shit. Swallow my beeper and page myself so I can communicate with a dolphin. <laughs> lyrical, lyrical arson, ru- crush the planet, rush the planet like a million Martians committing arson. Committing arson. This is probably wrong, but like me and my friend used to laugh about that all the time because it's like, really, like I understand, like you cut your arms off and you regenerate them, that's cool, but like you swallow your beeper so you can communicate with dolphins. Like, <laughs> what is that? What does that have to do with anything you're talking about? Like, why do you need to communicate with dolphins? And why would you swallow your beeper? That, that, that's not a tough line. That doesn't make no. you seem like a cool guy. No. Um, but uh, I remember that, that track, that that like. Yes. Yeah. And it was not a good song. It, it sucks because he used to run with the Lost Boys crew um, back when the, the Lost Boys kind of had cannabis in their crew, like Mr. Cheeks mm-hmm. and... Uh, that other guy that died, that the, uh, the freaky ta, yeah, freaky ta, and <laughs> I'm like, love, peace, and happiness was like one of my favorite albums back in the day. It was such a great album, but um, I I totally remember A plus, and he was like, he had such a great voice, and I don't know what happened to him. One of the guys that comes to mind, there was, it, it, he wasn't popular, but it was a, it was a guy named uh, Law the Dark Man, and he was in the Woo. Mm-hmm. He had this song called Devil in a Blue Dress off of uh, one of the Soul Assassins, uh, DJ Muggs Soul Assassins compilations from uh, Cypress Hill. Yes. And he was like, he had a solo album that came out and he was so like gutter and he was so like raw and such a great like street rapper. And he was like produced by all those like, like all those like guys in RZA's crew. I don't remember all their names, but it was like all those underlings underneath RZA that were producing stuff for like Killer Army and stuff like that. I actually saw him on a blog with his new single and he now raps like he raps in this like southern bounce flow style now and he was wearing like a shiny Kevlar vest what? and like and like chains and stuff and he's he looks like he looks like 50 cent now and it's like it was so weird to see him be like that because I remember him being part of the woo but like all the forgotten stuff that I listened to back in the day was probably a lot of stuff from like the Wu Tang like solo acts that never really blew up, like Killer Army and Sons of Man and stuff like that. Oh, I remember Killer Army, <laughs> and uh, I love man Killer Army. I love that their first single, their first CD, and then um, the the T Dot guys were really good, like Chocolaire, Socrates, who's a guy that's still sort of around. 
and Cardinal Official, who blew up a little bit with some club hits, but he they used to be like straight up golden age rappers. Chocolair was was nasty on the mic, hmm. and he used to be so good. And then there was a bunch of like first wave white MC indie MC guys that were from all of like I, I remember listening to all those guys. Like um, there was this group called Fermented Reptile, which was really good. They're from Canada. Um, there's a guy named ADM who's still sort of around. Like the, a lot of the Anticon guys were guys I listened to too. But like I'm gonna go and download a bunch of uh, Chocolair. <laughs> Cause I don't know, I'm saying that because I don't think you can buy his albums anywhere unless you like eBay them or something. Because yeah. I don't I don't even know if he's around anymore. Yeah, you got to look. It's like it's like trying to find a Prince Paul album on iTunes. It's it's freaking impossible. You you cannot get Prince Among Thieves on iTunes. And I'm glad I got the CD. But um, no, I um, I remember there was a there's this white guy that was endorsed by Parrish Smith from EPMD. His name was JT, and he had two songs. One was called Swing It, and I forget what the other one was. But for some reason, in like the three or four months that he was popular, because BET would play his videos like on Video Vibrations and sometimes on Rap City, but MTV wouldn't touch him. But in like these three or four months that he was popular, somehow he got a shoe endorsement deal with a company called High Tech. And the commercials played on BET nonstop for like three weeks. And then he just disappeared. <laughs> you know, he just disappeared. Was this was this in, in in PMD's like hit squad, like when he broke off from Eric Sermon? Um, I think it was around that time. Yes, yes, man, yes, it was. I lo- like all. Uh, speaking of the forgotten MCs, you just reminded me of, t- of two groups. One was uh, DOS FX from PMD, which mm-hmm. I mean, it, you, everybody should know that, but I guess it's like gone long enough that there are a lot of young people who don't remember Diggity DOS FX, <laughs> and then um, Channel Live who used to do a lot of stuff with KRS-One back in the wow. day were guys that I used to love their, they had a solo record. And the reason I bought it was because like KRS-One was like all over it. Mm-hmm. And this was back when KRS-One was like still pretty good. Yeah. Like I haven't heard them in a while either. And like back then it was like if you went to college, there was probably a record store somewhere in your college campus. And like there was probably like some weird indie dude behind the counter. And like the guy at Ohio State would always order this crazy hip, like ridiculous hip hop. And I would buy all of it because I just loved all of it, man. I ate up all that stuff. Oh, yes. And so did I. I. I just remember after the after the Lost Boys, like, you know, they went their separate ways. And Mr. Cheeks, his first <laughs> solo album came out. And he had that once he had that one song that everybody loved. And it was a big hit. And then I think he had another song after that. But the album did real well. But his second album came out. And... I want to say because both albums were under, were under Def Jam, his solo records. And the second album came out, and like on the hook was Floetry. Floetry was on the hook. And the song was called like Let's Get Wild or something like that. And it was, it was a smooth song. It was tight. And nobody felt that song. And nobody felt that album. And like I liked that album more than I did. I thought the first album was awful. But the second album I thought was dope. And nobody bought it. And like he even did um, his version of "They Reminisce Over You" when they reminisce over you, and brought in, um, and brought in CL Smooth, and it wow. was it it was it was dope. And then like the last song on the album, he sampled um, "Sunshine" by Alexander O'Neill, and then brought in Alexander O'Neill to kind of like sing on it. It was a really really good album, and nobody bought it. So you know he's been independent ever since. I wonder if I still got that somewhere. I gotta find it. I have to, I have to find it now. I gotta listen to it. This like just litany of of acts left and right in, in the in like the late eighties, early nineties. I mean, dude, they were everywhere. And oh, dude, it was it was. I awesome. remember uh, Jamal. Uh, that was actually 
one of me and my friend's favorite MCs back in high school and early college was Jamal from the from the Def Squad with Eric Sermon and Redman. He had a song. He had an album called. Um, Last chance, no breaks. I right. think. Right. Yes. And he, what was the single? Because the fades, s- fades them all. Yes, because he sampled. They sampled Biggie on that. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Th- I I rock lyrics up and on like a light, light switch. switch. Yeah. Yes. That was like that. I still have that album actually, and I still listen to it all the time. It's such a great. It's such a great album. It's ten songs, and I don't think he's ever done anything else before. Like after that, but he's he's like what he was like one of the best MCs back in the day. Like he was so great. Like nobody remembers him. Yeah, he was part of illegal. Yeah, yeah, with uh, that uh, when they were like sixteen-year-olds. Yeah, because they were like the anti-crisscross. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and he was the he was the guest MC on Countdown off Def Squad when PMD came back together, and oh. it was that uh, he had that ridiculous verse. He's a he has a verse on Redman's Muddy Waters called on a song called The Ill Out. Mm-hmm. He's the last guy on that song, and his verse through and through is like to this day is one of the greatest. The greatest verses you will ever hear. Like it's it's such a f- amazing verse, and like I used to listen to that album all the time. You done got me all hyped. <laughs> <laughs> you done got me all hyped up. All right, all right. Well, it's about that time for us to uh, close up to close up this session. But um, before we do that, once again, I want to say thanks, um, thanks Eugene for uh, being part of uh, the PKD Black Box and uh, coming on to uh, talk about the War for Infinity. And um, the West Coast Avengers mixtape, everything, man. This is actually, this has been a fantastic conversation. So, um, thank you for that. And you got anything that you want to plug? AdamWarrock.com. There's always music up there. The War for Infinity. You can get it from there as well, or you can get it on iTunes and Amazon. Um, at the website, there are T-shirts also. And in 2011, I'll give a quick plug to my friends uh, Kurt and Chris at Let'sBeFriendsAgain.com. They run a web comic. I'm going to be tabling with them at like every major convention in 2011. And there will be plenty of exciting stuff, like exclusive stuff that I'm going to be releasing at shows and we'll be all over the country. And then um, I think before uh, the end of the year at AdamWork.com, we're also going to have some sort of like this big charity event thing that's going to happen that I can't talk about yet. But you should check back because it's going to be a pretty big thing. And then um, just the album right now. I guess that's it. I'm so blown away by all the. 90s MCs we just talked about. I, I can barely think straight because oh. I'm, I'm I'm trying to remember all these all these, all these rappers I want to go get their albums of now or like get get them from my binder and rip so I can listen to it. <laughs> I, I'll get you a copy of uh, Helter Skelter uh, with I ain't having that when they sampled Hot Sex on a Platter. Oh man, I I have that. I love that. I have that album. I love that album. I I, I listened to all that boot camp quick stuff, man, back in the day, like Smith and Wesson. Oh, and, oh, oh yeah. Oh no, because <laughs> Smith and Wesson had that one track Awake with a Raekwon. Oh, that was after they became the Coco Brothers. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Because they had to change it because of the copyright. But it, uh, Black Trump, which is one, of, that's one of the best songs that nobody rem- ever remembers. You that know? was my joint, though. Oh, that used to get me so hyped. Yeah. Oh, so it's a hyped. great. It's it's got that West Coast organ in the back of that. Like mm-hmm. it's such a great song. Such a great song. I just remember in Helter Skelter, for I ain't having that. The last line and in the song in the song was, "Use a tic tac. Your breath smelled like ass crack. Fuck that." <laughs> <laughs> hell yeah man that works for me that was, that was fucking awesome <laughs> no in all serious in all seriousness man eugene thank you for being a part of this episode man thank you for having me on
On the line right now is a good friend of mine, fellow podcaster. He also has written articles for iFanboy. He recently uh, had some uh, writings in the New York Times about fantasy football. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Jason Wood. Jason, how you doing, sir? What up, what up, what up? I'm good, Sean. How are you doing, man? Man, I'm fantastic. Wonderful to have you on the show, man. It's always good to talk to fam. It's great to be on. I tell you, I uh, I shouldn't be surprised because you you uh, with your smooth melodious voice, you you had that was quite an intro you had for me. I, you give me a better intro than my own co-hosts do. Oh, on, on <laughs> well, well, thank you, brother. I appreciate that, man. Hey, and I got it on the first try. You would not believe how many times I've jacked up intro, sir. Nice. Nothing makes me happier than getting a little behind the scenes look at how other podcasts that I like to listen to or I work. I think people have a perception of. Of all of us being like professionals, you know, in, in radio mm-hmm. booths and all this mad editing. And, I, you know, I know at least for our show, we get questions all the time. Like, how long does it take you to edit? And how many times do you take things? I mean, literally for us, it's it's literally we show up, Vince, make sure we're all there. It's like everybody go, everybody take a pee, everybody have a drink, start recording. And it's it's one take. Every now and then we might edit something out because of uh, some kind of audio technicality, but we never redo it. I was wondering about you if, if you did the same, but uh, oh yeah, no, there, there is plenty of editing. Please believe, nice, because um, nice. I'm like you know I'm anal retentive when it comes to like you know sounds <laughs> and stuff like that. Well, I'll tell you what. One thing, uh, number one, I love your show. Number two, I think you know as well as I do because because even though we we're up to 125 episodes as far as comics podcasts go, you know, starting one in the last you know year or two, I, I would say is a tougher hill to climb than starting one five years ago. It just because there's so many more out there you're competing against a lot of entrenched listenerships i mean i know you don't like to toot your own horn but i will say that from what i can gather out there in the community your uh, your podcast is gaining some pretty nice popularity and i think aside from the fact that the content's really good and you guys always talk about great stuff i think one of the things that you have and we do too and i think one of the, one of the things that's really requisite for shows to gain popularity now is good sound quality and I'm stunned at how many times I'll try a new podcast out. Not just comic podcasts, but mm-hmm. but other things too, like football or you know other kind of. And I get a sense that the hosts are charismatic, that they have stuff to say, that uh, you know that they have interesting takes on things. But the sound quality is so bad that it's just hard to really commit to it. You don't want to listen to it because you don't want to struggle and trying to figure out what they're saying. Oh yeah. And uh, you know your show. I mean, it sounds like you're sitting in a recording booth and putting it together. So plus you have killer intros and outros because you you know as you know I'm a hip hop fan and you know Vince my you know our our host with the most he 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 rarely if ever hooks me up with some hip hop. So <laughs> I got to listen to Black Box to hear hear the hip hop intro and outros. I appreciate that, man. Now, now I really do. And the reason why I appreciate that so much is because from my background, like I've I've been many a places, you know, in, in, in my, you know, small period of life so far. And one of the things I did before I really got into like, you know, IT work, mm-hmm. um, I was an intern for a uh, it was a computer. It was a compu- local computer magazine in Dayton, Ohio. It was called like PC Review or something like that. Okay. Now they were based in a radio station, and they had like they had an AM talk show that came on like three days a week, and on AM radio. So I was okay. in, I was intern for them. I wrote articles and stuff, and I also became their IT guy. And I nice. also learned a lot about um about like studio stuff and like sound quality and things like that. And being like like a perfectionist when it comes to like sound, to me it's like you, you to me it's like you have to have the best product that you possibly can put out there in order to make this all work. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have that then people won't come back. And if, and if I can't have people come back, then I feel as if I've done something wrong and I've offended somebody. So I always want to make <laughs> sure that I give 
the you know the best podcast possible i mean like say for instance even if it's a topic somebody might not dig i still want it to sound pristine right as far as like the hip-hop and the r&b beats man you know i love it i love music i remember one time listening to 11 o'clock comics and the, the music came on after the after the intro and like the music right. i was playing in the background was buster rhymes woo ha and like i had to stop yes. i was walking i was at work and i walked in the middle i was in the middle of the street and i stopped because like it just like caught me off guard I was yeah. like, I'm about to get hit by a car. <laughs> I, I know, right? <laughs> I got a good story for you uh, before we get into the topic at hand about Buster Rhymes and that song. Okay, so... I know maybe people that, that listen to my show or, or know me from the boards and stuff know, you know, I'm a, I'm a hedge fund manager, portfolio manager. And, you know, I take finances seriously and, and, and whatnot and, uh, you know, handle my business. But uh, like everybody, I, didn't, I wasn't always responsible with my money. And so in college, I was a passenger in a real bad car accident. An 18-wheeler fell asleep at the wheel and slammed into my buddy's car. And uh, you know, really jacked the car up. Uh, basically, we were we were in bad shape, and uh, and there was a a settlement. You know, there was a, a legal issue, and there was a settlement. Yeah. Now I was a 19 year old dumbass college kid getting a cash settlement. You know, a big cash settlement. Now you would like to think, knowing me now, oh, Woodrow probably put it in the stock market and made mad money. Yeah. Well, of course, that's what I should have done. But at 19, <laughs> you don't do that, right? No. So no. what's the first thing I did? <laughs> well. We had a, a, a nice off-campus house we were, we were renting for our, our next year in college. Yeah. So that summer, I called up my boy Cookie Head Jenkins. I said, <laughs> Cookie Head, I said, uh, we got to roll to uh, to Best Buy. And he's like, all right. So we rolled to Best Buy. I walk in, and I, I got money burning a hole in my pocket. And I yes. said, listen, I said, I got a house next year. I said, I need I need some bass. I need speakers. <laughs> yes. The dude's like, starts showing me the speakers. I'm like, no, 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 son. I'm like, I need like speakers, like legitimate speakers. So he's like, oh, okay. Takes me into the back, you know, the like the audio file room, you know, the the, the room like where you reserve for the for the cash money. Yes. And I walk in and it's like mecca. It was, I mean, I'm I'm 35, so this was, you know, this was a while ago. This is before you had you know really good miniaturized technology. So when big speakers were big, right? Yo, yeah. So I walk in and we're looking around. All of a sudden, I see these two gigantic. Probably like five foot tall Kleepsch speakers. And he's like, oh, those are Kleepsch. Those are nice. And he starts cranking it up, right? Puts a little public enemy on for me because he asked me, you know, they're, they're good salesmen. Like, what kind of music? Like I said, hip hop. Puts a little PE. He's cranking the bass. I'm like, oh, this is going to do it. So I drop an obscene amount of money on these two speakers, way more than any responsible college student should have spent, right? right? But I was like, oh, whatever. So those speakers were the centerpiece of our entire junior and senior year social life because we would have uh, house parties. And we would clear out our two living room areas, and I'd set the two cleeps up on opposite ends of the room, mm. and we'd run long monster cables to my stereo, and we'd, we'd, get, the, we'd get the bass bumping. And, you know, we'd get <laughs> hundreds of people to come and pay $5 at the door. You know, it was great. I mean, it made us money. We had a good time. Yeah. When that song came out, when that Bust the Bus song came out, <laughs> I, I got, like, obsessive about it. So it became, like, a ritual. And I'm not a superstitious person, but it became a ritual where... I had to play that song for like 10 straight times at the start of every party. Like I just had to my friends who I'm still tight with a lot of my, my college buddies hate that song because oh. when they hear it, they want to punch me in the face because they remember all the times I played it at our parties. But oh, it, I love that song. Yeah. So now, did you play the remix with ODB? Well, the remix came out sort of right after that whole 
house party phase okay. ended. So okay. no, it was the original version. But yeah, so I'm I'm a huge fan of Bus of Bus. I even liked him when he was uh, Shaft's sidekick uh, <laughs> he, in, in Move Shaft. So yo, yeah. most definitely, man. See, you done took me back. See, that was during a period of time. Like I, I bought because I made sure I bought the Busta Rhymes CD, but I was also during that period of time big into CD singles. Oh yeah, and because you had your CD single, and then you had your CD maxi single. Because yes, your CD maxi single, you would it would copy with that remix and that instrumental. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I bought I bought the album, I bought the CD, the whole Busta Rhymes CD, and then I looked and I saw they had the maxi single at Camelot. Boy, that, that's, oh yeah <laughs> that's old school oh, yeah. right there oh yeah yeah at camelot and they had the maxi single normally like 6.99 it was like 2.99 mm-hmm. and so oh. like i ran and i grabbed it and it had the odb remix on it it had like like awesome. mad instrumentals man i tell you i was I, I was a cd maxi single fiend back then man i got man i got in- instrumentals and remixes to stuff i didn't even know i had oh that's awesome I, I, that's I lo- awesome i loved it that was that you know that was a real good period in music yeah absolutely and bust a bus i remember uh senior year in high school scenario was a big hit i was at a friend's house it was the summer before we were starting college uh we were hanging out having a few beverages we had the arsenio hall show on yes and arsenio brought on he brought out Tribe and, and Leaders of New School to do Scenario. And that was our jam at the time. Now, you know, mind you, uh, as people may gather, I'm a rather pale six foot three white dude. You know, I happen to like hip hop. That's right. Most of my friends happen to, except for my buddy Cookie Head Jenkins, were also uh, white dudes. So, you know, we were a bunch of white dudes, you know, dancing around like fools, rapping to Scenario, which I'm still, I will still do to this day, by the way. If anyone ever wants to see me rap, they can put on Scenario at a party and I will rap to it. For, for future reference, if any of you see me at a con. And I tell you, man, so, so Busta Bus has always had a, a smooth thing. And even so much that where we live now, we just, we just, like two days ago was our two year anniversary of living in this house. I got to tell you that no small part of the reason I live here now is because when we were looking for places to move, when my wife was pregnant with our third child. Yeah. When we were looking around and we, were, we ended up seeing this house, the a real estate agent who was showing me around was driving me around the neighborhood. And I swear to you, she says to me, oh, there's a house up the road that uh, a, a guy, a rapper, you may know him, Busta Rhymes, was looking at a few weeks ago. And I said, what? <laughs> and she said, yeah. I said, wait a minute. You said, and she's like, yeah, he didn't end up buying it, but he came here to look at it. And I said, oh, hon, I said, we got st- I said, this is it. I said, that's a sign. I said, we got to buy a house here. There it is. I said, there it is. It don't get no better than that. See, that's, no. see, that's the power of hip-hop. People don't understand. People do not understand the power of hip-hop. We need to tell the people what we're here for today. Yeah, we're not here to have a hip-hop show, contrary to the way it's starting off. <laughs> but um, we are here today to talk about one of our favorite um, cartoon-slash-toy franchises, the Mobile Armored Strike Command, known as Mask. What, what? Yes. I found out, Jason Wood told me, he came, you know, we, we were talking at Super Show, and we was talking about stuff, and like somebody brought up Mask, and like my eyes lit up, and Jason's eyes lit up, and we was just like, we got to do a show on this. Yes. You know, we got to have some it's real like, talk. I guess it's sort of like the, um, I mean, it, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know, like the Airwolf to, to, to G.I. Joe being 18, right? I'm at, like, yeah. I mean, like it's, I think, pretty popular for a certain window of time, like our age group specifically. But I don't think it had the, it never it never quite caught on into the, the public, the mainstream. Like the rest of the world never really caught on to it as the zeitgeist like 
Transformers and G.I. Joe did. Oh, right? no, 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 no. I, I, no, I agree with you 100% on that. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the reasons why for that was because that was during a period of time with uh, syndicated cartoons. You, right. hit, you hit that cap. Once you hit 65 to 70-something episodes, mm-hmm. the rule was you couldn't make any more money after that. So you capped it there, and then you just um, replayed them over and over again. Because if you yes. kept making them, so somehow you would lose money, which doesn't make much sense to me. Yeah, I don't get that either, yeah. How does it depreciate what you do? You, you know, I know, because you would think they could still make episodes, and then they could introduce new product i mean new new more and more lines and characters and that would sell more to i don't know but yeah, yeah. you're right it's, it's mm-hmm. just it's just weird yeah man but like saying because of that short run it ran for two seasons in 1985 and 1986 mm-hmm. so you know you had a total of i think like 65 to 75 episodes and i just remember when the first time i saw it like me coming up well, i was you know raised in, in ohio it only came on like 7 30 in the morning for like the first year so I had right. to watch it right before school, and I always missed, like, the last five minutes. <laughs> and, and, and I would be so heated. I mean... You never knew how it ended. No! <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I, then, I, then I had a friend. His mom, like, gave him a VCR for his birthday. Now, let's see here. Nice. Like, 85. Mad money. Oh, yeah. Man, he was, like, so popular. Because, <laughs> like, see, 85. I, I see, I was 10. So he's, like, around 10 or 11. So he had a VCR. He's like, yeah, I tape him. Won't you come on over? And like one Saturday morning, I went over his house, man, and we watched Mask for like 10 straight hours. Oh, nice. It was right there and then I was hooked. But but how about you? I mean, similar thing, man. I mean, I I think we're roughly the same age. I I mean, I was in 85. I was uh, I I was 10 going on 11. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, that's about that age where you're kind of in the toys are the thing, right? You're not really quite into girls yet. Yes. When sports haven't really taken over your life, so I was like, that was my thing with cartoons and, and, and toys. I don't really remember because back then, I mean, these days it's like my kids know what cartoons are coming out a year before they come out because they see like the commercials and the internet and stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't remember knowing that it existed until one day just just turning on the TV, and it was probably because it was coming on before or after another cartoon that I already watched, mm-hmm. and I was just like, Whoa! you know, because you had the twofold thing. You had you had the the coolness factor of the vehicles, which are always cool, that transform, which was like a hook. Oh, yeah. But then inside, there weren't just dudes, I mean people, but they were people that had masks that did shit too. Yes. And uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, until you said it was only on for two years, I would have guessed it was on for like four or five years. Because I remember, I feel like I remember, as we get ready to talk about this, like a lot of different episodes, a lot of different characters. And like you said back then, it was all about the syndication and the toy tie-ins. Um, I was from a divorced family and... You know, my dad had me on the weekends and usually like, you know, I mean, in retrospect, probably he spoiled me. But, you know, he'd take me, roll, roll me to Toys R Us on the weekend and like look around. And I remember like kind of it was one of that kismet things where the cartoon, I had just seen the cartoon and was loving it. And then he took me to Toys R Us and they had Matt Tracker's vehicle. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. And he bought it for me. And then I was done. You know, then it was like I couldn't I couldn't wait to just every time I'd watch I'd watch the cartoon to see if they had. A new character or vehicle because then i knew that sure enough soon we'd be seeing the toy okay. yeah i loved it i thought it was great oh yeah same here and you know what's funny is like uh, matt tracker's uh matt tracker's car the um uh, the, the thunderhawk that was your first that was your first mass vehicle see that was mine too mm-hmm. and what's crazy is okay this is what's crazy like the camaro by the way oh right? no, a fly camaro too yeah because uh, z28 with with the uh, yeah with with the uh su- not suicide doors but like the fly doors mm-hmm. oh mm-hmm. dude that's that was my stuff what was funny was one day my dad took me to children's palace see because we didn't have in the 80s we did not have mm-hmm. toys r us in ohio it was uh, okay it was all about children's palace 
It was okay. Children's Palace and its offshoot, Children's World, and that was it. One time, he took me to Children's Palace, and and like, because I, I think I had, you know, I had a report card, did pretty good. He's like, okay, we'll, we'll go to Children's Palace, and we went. And he's like, well, okay, you got like, you like, you got seven dollars to spend. That's what you got. You got seven dollars, and that's all, and that's that's it. I'm not going over. You got seven dollars to spend. I'm like, okay. So you know, we got to go to the action figure aisle. That's 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 where all the fun's at. That's where the heat mm-hmm. is right there. Oh, of course. So I'm walking down the aisle. First thing I see is Secret Wars. And, like, I flip out. I mean, I flip out. I'm like, oh, I got to get that Captain America. I got to get that. Yeah, I got the hologram shield. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I got to cop mm-hmm. that. And then I look to the other side of me. There's Knight Rider. There's Kit with Michael Knight. And I'm like, oh, no. I was like, I got oh, to have that's that. that's crazy. Yeah. And then I look straight ahead, and there's the Thunderhawk. Mm-hmm. I can either get two of these Secret Wars action figures I can't really get get uh, Michael Knight and Kit unless I beg and plead for it. But I right. know I know I can ask for two extra dollars from my dad to get the Thunderhawk. I know there I can. Go. And I was like, Dad, I want that. He was like, well, it's a couple of dollars over, but you wash the dishes and do some other stuff. Nice. Like, I was like, all right. You, don't, you do not understand how much I played with that car. Mm-hmm. Thunderhawk was the shit. And Matt Tracker's gray and red uniform with the helmet. I know. People don't understand. I guess we can assume if people are listening, they might know what Mask is. But basically, it was, like you said, Mobile Armored Strike Command. Yes. The premise was Matt Tracker was sort of like, you know, he was the billionaire. Well, a millionaire probably back then, but like the rich dude looking to form a team to fight injustice. They had these vehicles that looked like normal vehicles, and they could transform into these badass battle vehicles. But then they also had these helmets that had powers. Each one could do its own thing. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but like the more popular guys because of the toy lines a lot of the guys ended up having multiple vehicles and multiple masks and stuff but matt's first vehicle was the thunderhawk which was a camaro that turned into a jet and then his helmet was uh was it the spectrum Spectrum, right yes yeah and it had like uh lasers right yes it did yes yeah so and it could do other things too but it was like one of those like and he was sort of like he was the fuel commander but yeah that was crazy man oh yeah crazy because like every cartoon back then had that duke like character Yep, and, and Matt Tracker, and he even looked like Duke, sort of. He had the blonde hair and the the pronounced chin, like the military-looking chin, you know, the cleft chin or whatever it is. Yeah. Oh yeah, and they all and they all like chilled out at this um, headquarters called Boulder Hill, which on the mm-hmm. on the outside looked like a looked like a gas station, but on the inside was their um, was their you know, command center. Yes. To me, back then, that was just like Superfly. It was one of those gas stations in the middle of nowhere where, like, you'd be driving cross country in, in the desert and it'd be like, you know, 90 miles to next gas station. You'd have to roll into there to fill up your tank so you didn't, like, die in the desert. And then it could transform into this battle area. And it was kind of cracked me up because I was like, like, it was cool that it was their base and you think, like, oh, they're going to go on to the. But then I was thinking, like, what's the gas station you need to turn into, like, a battle bunker for? Like, it's kind of, isn't it supposed to be a secret location? Like, well, I was always like, why has it got to be a battle? Like, why has it got to transform into a defense? Like, because then that kind of means jig is up, right? Like, right. We, <laughs> no, no doubt. I'm like, everybody yeah. knows then. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, or, or yeah. better yet, I'm like, do they pay for their own gas? See, and those are the kinds of questions that I would ask when I was little. And like, my dad's like, right. can't you just have fun with this? I'm like, I am, but seriously, 
they they have to pay they pay their own gas. I'm like, who's funding all this? I know Matt's, Matt Tracker's got dough, but how do you yep. get this dough? My dad's like, you got it in the stock market. Shut up and watch the cartoon. Nice, nice. That's, <laughs> your dad's a lot a good man, logical man. As a kid, I didn't notice, but in retrospect, <laughs> when I knew we were going to be talking about this, like the a lot of the characters were like horrible stereotypes, right? Of, I mean, very like very much like racial stereotypes, which is not uncommon, as you talked about with the. The Chuck Norris Karate Commandos uh, or uh, thing. I mean, a lot of the the, ca- the characters in sporting cast were, were very much stereotypical. Oh right? yeah, I mean, like uh, dudes like Bruce Sato. Yeah, yeah. Um, and who was his? Who was like his his wise second in command? And he used to he had these like Confucius like sayings that were very cliche, right? Like oh, like true. broken English. Yeah, he spoke perfect English during the cartoon, but then he'd break into these like ridiculous Confucius like words of wisdom, you know, sort of like parting words, and you'd be like. I mean, as a kid, you were like, oh, this dude's wise. He's wise and learned. But then I think back and I'm like, wow, that's really, really racial. Oh, that's yeah. racist. <laughs> you know, like, yes. That's racist, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, no doubt. No doubt. It, it's, it's wrong beyond beyond wrong. But back then, that's just, that was stat quo. Yeah. And he, he was a toy maker. Like his alter ego, he was a toy maker. Yeah. Oh, I forgot all about that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he had the rhino, right? The rhino. Yeah, because yeah, him and Matt Tracker um, with the toy had the had the rhino, and the rhino was for for those that don't know, it was this um, oh, it was a eighteen uh, wheeler. Yeah, a truck. Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a big truck, and then mm-hmm. it would transform, and the um, I guess like the the back part where you would actually put a trailer to it would, would like detach, and that would yes. turn to a vehicle with like a, with like laser cannons. Mm-hmm. Oh, see. Then see that was my stuff. That was the one I always wa- the vehicle I always wanted, but I right. I just couldn't get. But like my friend Adam down the street had it. So mm-hmm. anytime we play mask, he bring that rhino, and he and he had yeah. like he had like a ton of figures. I'm like, how do you have all these figures and no vehicles but rhino? That's funny. <laughs> That's know? funny. How did he? Oh, he just took them from people. Yeah, <laughs> you know uh, what was real. Now I remember what was really really cool about the show. Uh, and, and something to this day I still love in comic books uh, was every episode they had to pick the team. And it was this yes. presumption that there was like this huge global network of mask agents. Mm-hmm. And they handpicked each agent for this, the skill set that they needed to solve the mission. Right. And it was always so cool to see who they were going to pick. And that's how they worked in new characters, new toys. You'd be watching them and you'd be just like bated breath like seeing like, oh, yeah, okay. All right, there's my tracker. Okay. Oh, there's Bruce Sato, Okay. And then all of a sudden it'd be like, there's Gloria, okay. And then they bust out like some new guy you never saw before. Like, oh, oh, stop. And like, that means there's a toy coming, you know? Oh, no, no doubt. I remember the one time, um, oh, was it the dude that had, because um, he also had, had kind of a big rig, like an 18-wheeler uh, called Bulldog. And um, the driver's name was uh, Boris Bushkin. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And his mask was like a, a bear mask, right? Yeah, yeah. Because like, um, yeah. his mask was called like Comrade. Because mm-hmm. Boris was Russian. <laughs> yes. And, yes, you're right. And when they would do stuff like that, it would like freak me out. Cause I'm like, you know, cause you don't you don't see this stuff coming, you know, you don't see that coming at all. And I'm just like, man, this is off the chain. And and I think it was during the period of time because like there are two different mask series. About 55 episodes are the standard mask where you have your GI Joe type battles between right. mask and venom. Right. And uh, Venom was led by a cat by the name of Miles Mayhem. And Miles Mayhem had the had um was it the Viper? Was yeah, it? absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah, he had a Viper, a helicopter that turned into a, a no, he had Switchblade. I'm sorry, it was Switchblade. And um Switchblade the Switchblade turned into a helicopter and a jet. Mm-hmm. His mask was called Viper and like when he would shoot things it would melt stuff. Yes. 
there was another vehicle, another truck. And as a matter of fact, I want to say it was like a couple of series down the line when it became a racing show instead of a mm-hmm. G.I. Joe-esque type show. Right, and, it became like wacky races. Yes, and that I didn't really dig too much. Me neither, yeah. That was the end of the road. Yeah, and I, and I was finished with it, but I still wanted the toys. I just did not want to fool with the... Uh, I just did not want to fool with the whole, um, you know, cartoon anymore. But there right. was a truck called Goliath, and Go- oh, yeah, yeah. and Goliath could hold like this other car. It looked like an Indy 500 car yep. that turned into a jet. That was yeah. the shit. You couldn't tell me anything. I wanted that one. <laughs> Never found it. Never ever got it. But um, but yeah, man. Yeah, that was nuts because it was like, um, and that was well, that was Matt. Matt Tracker was was one of the guys that came in with that. Yep. And uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, I know who the other guy was. I knew it was it was it was, uh, it was our, our Native American friend Nevada Rushmore. See, <laughs> see, that's that that's that stereotypical stuff, right? right there. Nevada Rushmore, right? And he had the to- he had the the a mask that shot out again. <laughs> his mask uh, shot out uh, totem pole shaped grenades. No, it didn't. Yes, it did. <laughs> yeah, totem pole shaped grenades. That is foul. Right? That, that is yeah, so yeah. foul. But that was a hot vehicle, too. Yes, it was. Um, but, yeah, I agree that once they went to the racing thing, I wasn't really feeling it anymore. That was kind of like the end of the road. Now I was also probably, like, going on 13 at that time. So it was yeah. kind of when I was moving away from toys anyway. But Oh, most definitely. And, and again, talk about product of the 80s. The hotness for me uh, was, uh, I'm trying to think uh, what the name of the vehicle was. Oh, it was, uh, it was uh, Fire Force. Now, which, which one was, was Fire Force? Uh, dude, it was, this is why, it was, it was a Pontiac Fiero. Oh. Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. There was nothing hotter for those, like, two and a half minutes in the 80s <laughs> a Fiero. And my stepmother had a Fiero at the time. Yeah. And that was like the hotness. And, you know, at the time, that was a big deal. Like, that was like, whoa, she's got a fear. You know, and, and talk about a vehicle. I mean, that's one of those vehicles now where if you see it on the road, mm-hmm. you know, it brings you back. I mean, it's unmistakably like 1985, right? There's nothing like Fieros didn't last too long. Oh, yeah. But it was like a, and uh, yeah, and that was uh, that was Julio Lopez was the driver of that. Mm-hmm. that is I'm cool. trying to think what his mask was. His uh, mask was, um, there's a website that I just found called matttracker.com. Matt-tracker, and that's tracker with two Ks, people. Okay. Uh, .com. Fire Force was with Julio, Julio Lopez and Clone, and his mask was called Streamer. Oh, nice. And this Fire Force, like, and this was part of the Split Seconds um, mask series. This was toward, toward the end of its toy line run. And basically, the chassis of the Fiero became a jet. And, under, yeah. and I mean, I'm not. I'm sorry. The chassis, the engine became like a motorcycle, pretty much. Yep. And, and like the um, the casing of the car became a jet. Exactly. Exactly. That I love crazy. that toy so much. I can't even explain it. No. 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 See, I tell you what. There were there were two. There were two that like one I had and one I wanted so bad that I can never get. Besides Rhino, mm-hmm. the one the one I had. And it's funny because like like I don't mind flying, but like I have like a, a fear of heights to a certain point. Okay. And like I have the only vehicles I ever had were all the flying vehicles, which I just find hilarious. <laughs> but the one ve- flying vehicle I had, I think it was my third mask vehicle. It was called Raven. And uh, Raven, I think, was either a Pontiac or it was a um, it was some other type of sports car. And basically what it was, it could either fly or it could um, or it could float. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was is that the okay you'd have this you have the car and then you would take where the engine is and you would flip it you push a button and it would flip to where um, you know it, could, it would be a boat and then the doors would fold down and then the back the back tail would pop up and it could be a jet and then where the where the wheels where the wheels were located on the rims lasers could pull out you could pull out okay. lasers yeah and it was like all black and I can't remember who who drove. Um, the, uh, the, uh, I can't remember who drove it. And like the website doesn't have any of the series two toys. Cause that was series two. But, um, mm-hmm. that was, was it the, uh, was it, uh, the wolf beast? It may have been, it, it may Cause have I remember been. that was, but see that one I remember as being purple, but it popped open. You flipped the, you flipped the, the bottom over and it was a vehicle. And then the top, you, it was like a flying thing and you could pop out where the wheels were. Cause the wheels are at the other part. Pop out in their lasers and stuff, but Word. that was a uh, Miles Mayhem. That was a Miles Mayhem vehicle, though. Okay, cool. See, I, for some reason, I always thought that was a mass vehicle, but I love that car. And, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Let's see. I, I found another site that has a Raven page. And, okay. Um, yeah, this was off the chain. Uh, it says right here from the Raven archive, the pilot was Calhoun Burns with Gulliver mask. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, he shrunk things. Yeah. This, with Gulliver's travels. Yeah, yeah. This is crazy. Yeah, and and like it's even got a picture of the box. Oh. They got some wild 80s colors on it. So, yeah, it's kind of a blackish purple, but they right. got some, like, crazy, like, laser racing stripes down the side. Mm-hmm. And um, and not, not only that, but in the front, you could put in, like, this little plastic disc that was supposed to be, like, a little mini buzzsaw. Right. A buzzsaw blade, you put it in, you push a button, and it would shoot out. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that because that's one thing I know from being your friend for these last few years. I know how much you love masks, as I do. But I also find it funny because you went on a rant a while ago about G.I. Joe and how you knew G.I. Joe had jumped the shark when they started doing the Wacktacular 80s, you know, crazy colors. Yeah. And you had, like, the Ninja Squad with, like, the fuchsia and the, and the bright green. And you're like, what kind of ninja has bright green? And I was always thinking about that relative to Mask because Mask was always out there with the crazy colors. Oh, oh no, no like, question. Now, admittedly, they weren't, like, military. They weren't trying to be stealthy. But, they, I mean, they did always have the nutty colors. I mean, it was always sort of like, wow, you know. I mean, another product of the 80s. But the Fire Force was the one I dug because the Fiero. But... The one I always thought was the coolest, and I don't think I ever had this one as a toy, was the, uh, but but again, talk about 80s. There was no, like, high-end car cooler in the 80s than a Lamborghini Countach. Yes. And, you know, we all had those, those po- the obligatory in your room poster of s- some version of the Lamborghini with some mm-hmm. teased-out 80s gorgeous hottie sitting on the top of it, right, or, like, bending over it. Yes. And so it was the stiletto, right? And yes. that was the Lamborghini Countach of the, of the set. And it came with, uh, it was Gloria Baker who was the resident hottie of the of the mask team she was the good-looking female of the of the team and that was her vehicle and uh and it, it much like many of the vehicles it it was a lamborghini by day but it could convert into a a plane and a chopper when it transformed and uh i don't think i ever had that one but man I, that was my i love that vehicle yo stiletto was the one that i couldn't get there you go that was that there was you go. that was the one i couldn't get and i was so heated um you know because i love the colors and i just love the vehicle itself Oh, yeah. and I just saw a picture on the uh, Matt Tracker website for Wolf Beast. That car looks crazy. Oh, I remember seeing that one in the store. See, mm-hmm. man, and it, it, you know what? It kind of hurts me. I mean, but I, under, I understand because, see, that's got some crazy colors. Wolf Beast, that's got some crazy yeah. Joe colors. Um, Detonator, which was like green and purple. Come on now, how how you going? How you going? Like be how, how how can you be disguising yourself in the general public? How can you disguise yourself in the general public with a green and purple car? You can't. No, no. Although in 1985 you might have. 
That is true. But that's just as bad as when um when Toy Biz first got the Marvel uh Marvel license to do toys, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they and they had the their first wave of figures was just god awful. But I remember they had a Punisher van, and when okay. you pulled it out of the box, there was a sticker that you were supposed to put on the car that said Punisher. Now. <laughs> <laughs> now, if I'm a kid, I'm not doing that because I'm just giving this away to the bad guys that the Punisher is coming. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's like shoot, say like blow, blow up this truck right now, please. Yes, and I'm like, you're not you know. helping. You're not helping. Like all '80s cartoons, you had the obligatory, like kid sidekick and robot too. Yeah, it was Scott and T Bob. Yep, and, and they, you, there were toys of Scott and T Bob. Yes, there were. And now, you did, know. did you have Scott and T Bob? I did. See, I, I did. I, I made a trade with a friend. I traded my second series Snake Eyes, which I still oh. regret to this day. Wow. For, uh, for for those two figures, and then you know. The older I got, the more I realized how much I disliked both of those figures. Yes. Yes. You know, because in, in the cartoon, I couldn't stand them. I couldn't. It's the thing. It was obligatory back then. You, had, I guess they figured kids would relate better to the series because if there was a kid on there, you could project yourself as being that kid. But I never quite got it because I wasn't really interested in the kid, right? I was always like, well, I want to see the badass super agent dudes doing their thing. Yeah, no doubt. And they always would get in the way and get into trouble. And, you know, and then like, and as a kid, I'm like, you know what? I've seen bad episodes of Speed Racer. I know what happens when the little kids get involved. Keep them out mm-hmm. of my show. I mm. want more action. I want Matt Tracker in that Spectrum mask, like blowing up stuff. I want to see my You're flying right. Camaro. Don't save T-Bob and don't save Scott Tracker. Just let them be. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And my mom was like, why are you so mad? I'm like, because they're ruining my cartoon. <laughs> that, that's well, why I'm mad. Here's the thing. I mean, I think like all good toy lines, they hit a point. Uh, and, and I have that book. I think I bought the book after you talked about it on one of your early episodes, which is that official guide book to the G.I. Joe toys. Yes. And I bought that, and uh, and, and you, you know it has a chronological page-by-page color uh, pictures of every G.I. Joe toy. And you can go through, and you can see it's cool, 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 cool. And then that one series, you hit that one series, I think it was like series six. And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, neon colors, Raptor, yeah. oh, you yeah. know. Uh, Zartan's brother and sister, and you're like, all right, that's when it jumped the shark. Mm-hmm. I think the same thing with these guys. It was a, it was a shorter time window, but I remember, like as we said, a couple of the guys had lots of vehicles and lots of masks. And I remember when I went to the store, and Matt Tracker, he he didn't have a he didn't have a truck anymore. He didn't have a Camaro anymore. He didn't have a tank. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. What he had was a crate. <laughs> And, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a time where a crate is cool. No. Even if it transforms. And so it was the Hornet, and the Hornet was a big old crate that transformed into a jet. And I remember thinking, like, that's just not cool. No. That's like back in Big, in the movie Big, right? Yes. When they're trying to make Transformers to compete with Transformers, and they come up with the the buildings, the Transformers and and robots, and and Tom Hanks is like, but that's not fun. What's fun about playing with a building? (laughs) And they're all like, well, but it's a building that Transformers. And he's like, well, yeah, but who wants to play with a building? And that's how I was like, who wants to play with a crate? Like, oh, cool, it's a jet, but then it transforms into a crate. Like, why does Matt Tracker have to hide it in a crate? He's Matt Tracker. He's got a mask. Oh, yeah. Man, I used to hate that. Uh, That, it was like that one. Billboard Blast and um, oh, Billboard Blast. Billboard oh. Blast was awful. I'm like, yo, Billboard Blast was the toy, 
every, every, every oh. it was the mass toy every kid got that their parents couldn't afford mm-hmm. like the real mass toy so they had to get like the small small little ones you're right and so you know you like you know you appreciate it don't get me wrong you appreciate mm-hmm. it you get mm-hmm. it but it's like okay i got billboard blast how, how can i participate in playing mask with my friends yes it, how, it was just like yep it was just like in gi joe when they'd have like that that random like little missile launcher you could buy for like three dollars or like the you know it was just like a little plastic missile launcher yeah. didn't have anything else and like you said if you get this a gift from a relative you're like oh that's cool but you're thinking to yourself like wow this is like the it's like the bobo shoe version of a gi joe toy <laughs> that, that's what that that's what the billboard blast was or it was like the bobo version of mass no doubt and like billboard blast came with like one of the weakest characters dusty Hayes. dusty and, Hayes, yeah and his mask was called vacuum hilarious <laughs> dusty vacuum come on that's crazy it's just straight up whack man it's straight up yeah whack. now we, that's crazy we've been given a lot of attention we've been talking about the toys a lot and like the cartoon series for anybody that can find the episode sometimes you will find um legit versions of mask available on dvd sometimes yeah. on ebay or on uh, amazon.com because it was mm-hmm. released um, English versions were released by a company I think called Madman Entertainment, who actually bought some DIC, some uh, some Deke properties uh, for, oh, yeah, yeah. For, for video purposes, as well as some Marvel animated stuff like uh, Gem of uh, Vision. Oh, nice. <laughs> Man, <laughs> yo, I ain't even going front. When I was a kid and Gem was on, I watched that shit. I'm not going to. I will Me not too. So everybody that was that's our age, please do not act like you did not watch that. You're right. Because if, if if Marvel made a cartoon, you damn sure as hell watched it. You ain't lying. And um, but it was like that. They had that. They have that on DVD. Visionaries, which was like another toy that like only I think like five people know, and I'm one of the five. Nice. And um, some other stuff. What was like, that? What was that cartoon? Not to go on a tangent, but what was that cartoon? Ah, uh, man, I don't remember the name. Maybe you will. Where um, I remember they went underground, and it was like these giant monsters and humanoids. That, there you go, sir. Unheard of in humanoids. That's right. And that was a Marvel comic too, right? Sure was. Like, ah, so uh, yes. That was during a period. I got Donnie has got some in a, in, a, in a short box somewhere. Oh man, hey, I'm, I'm trying to make him bring those to Super Show 2011. What you yes. talking about? <laughs> I might have to buy him preemptively so he doesn't sound like somebody else. Yo, like, in, on on a real tip, that was during a period of time where like Marvel was not only trying to put out. Um, comics, but they were also pitching this stuff as animated properties and toys. Yes. So, and that's why humanoids, like when what they used to do, and it was kind of slick. What they would do, like with Jim in the beginning, Jim was part of a show that was like some type of block. You would get like a mm-hmm. ten minute Jim. You would get like ten minutes of Jim. Then you would get like seven minutes of something else, and then you would get like um, you know eight more minutes of Jim. Yes. And they would mix it up because, like, I remember, like, in one hour, I could watch Jim, Robotics, Bigfoot, and the Muscle Machines. Ooh, you're you know, right. In humanoids. And I'm like, this is heaven. You're right. <laughs> and I was happy. You know, now granted, I'm sure some of that stuff does not play well nowadays. But that's all right. But back then, you couldn't tell me nothing. You're right, man. But um, There's no question about it. Oh, no doubt. But no. Oh, no. oh I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, sir. No, I was going to say you. Were, I believe you were you were segueing to uh to to uh, I assume you were going to bring up the uh the other side of the of the of the mask world, right? The, yeah, yeah. Like uh, the episodes are still available. They sometimes are hard hard to find on Amazon. Um, you know, it's it's like any cartoon from the '80s. Um, it's pretty much a standard for a standard format. You know, you got your Venom did something. We got to go stop him. We stop them. Venom will be back to fight again. As long Mm -hmm. as you understand that, you're fine. Don't expect anything more and and, and you'll be good. But they are available on DVD. Now, they were also 
they also, for a short period of time in the United States, had a comic book by DC Comics. Yes. Um, artwork by Kurt Swan. Really? Because see, I didn't read it because I was more of a, I was a, like a hundred percent Marvel kid back in the day. I didn't really get into DC till later. So yeah, Kurt Swan did the artwork really. Yeah, Kurt Swan and wow. and and one other gentleman. Okay, ran for nine issues. Pencils by Kurt Swan, inker Kurt Schaffenberger. Mm-hmm. Those are some like DC legends right there. For sure. And yeah, they did nine issues, and I used to, I had all nine. And over in the UK, it ran for about eighty issues. For real? For reals. Oh, I might have to track some of those down. I wonder if I can get some of those off of like my comic shop or something. Yo, he, he, here it is. I on um because I, I I did my best to do my research because I didn't want to let you down, brother. I expect nothing less. <laughs> on masksite.com, they have a fact fiction page. Okay. And the rumor was it says the mass comic book in England and other countries lasted much longer than the American version. And it says the answer is true. While the DC Comics series only lasted nine issues, there was a British Mask series which lasted much, much longer, 80 issues, before migrating over to Eagle Magazine. And it says they also had much better artwork than their American counterparts. Now, how they going okay. to dog, dog Chris? I know. I, do, I know. Yeah, whew, that's rough. That, that is rough. But, uh, yeah, dude. So, you know, and those were probably part of um, those anthology books, that a lot of those yes. anthology books over in the U.K. But, yeah, if you ever find those, let me know. One thing, too, I'll say about the cartoon is, and again, I could be misremembering because it's been a long time, but I always thought that the animation in the cartoon was tight. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say I think the animation in the cartoon superseded the quality of the sculpts of the toys. Like, I mean, now the vehicles were super cool, but I mean, for people that that don't know, I got to say the... The, the figures with the toys were, were pretty weak. Like, the, the if people go online, you can see, like, the masks, I mean, the faces. The masks were cool. Like, when the figure had the mask on, it was cool. But, like, when you took the mask off, like, the the, the face, the the, uh, the the head sculpts were, were pretty bad. Like, there was no articulation. They didn't bother, like, painting in eyes or painting in lips. Like, they were pretty much, like, almost nebulous globs of... of of, of just colored plastic that, that really didn't show out of detail. Right. Um, but, but they did a nice job with those masks, and obviously it was all about the masks, so oh. you pretty much, but, you know. But, uh, yeah, the, the, I remember the cartoon, and again, I could be, you know, it's been a while, I could be romanticizing it, but I remember the cartoon as being pretty good animation for the, for the time. No, the animation was solid, because a lot of that was due to the producers, like uh, Andy Hayward, um, mm-hmm. Andy Hayward and uh, uh, Tetsuo uh, Katayama, they were both executive producers, so what they would do is they would just make sure, because this was during a period of time where um, the last an, uh, the last American animation film uh, animation studio was Filmation, and around around that time right. they were about to go out of business. So, like all the other American animation companies, like DIC or Deke sure. and everybody else, they just shipped it overseas. But what right. happened is is that Deke made sure that they gave Mask and a couple other cartoons that they gave it to the best animation houses overseas. Cool. So, yeah, sometimes you might see some diff- like some differences in characters, like in one episode. Um, Thundercats was notorious for that because what would happen is they would literally would have three animation houses working on one episode. Oh, for reals? Okay. Oh yeah, dude. Like there are some episodes where they and like this is within like one scene, like in one in like in one moment, uh, Lion O, you know, looks you know standard buff, you know, ready to scrap, and then right. like a second later, he's like super buff. And like, okay. And there's no, and there's no like flowing continuity, and the, yeah, because they literally would ship out one episode, three houses, get get this done. Oh, as I didn't as know possible. that. That's Boom. interesting. Yeah. 
Um, I actually found that out in a book that actually has an article on masks. And this book is kind of, magazine is kind of hard to find. The back issues are, it's called Serial Geek. Okay. And Serial Geek is all about 80s cartoons. And, mm-hmm. um, and like every issue, I mean, like they're pretty expensive. But like it has like artwork from various artists, and I swear, like even like artists like Adam Hughes has like did like you know like pinups, color pinups for right. his magazine, all types of artists. And the one, the one issue I have talks about like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles every mm-hmm. like, and they give like a synopsis of every single season. Nice. And I had no idea that cartoon was on that long. Yeah, yeah, that was on forever. Yeah, it was insane. But they, they have an issue where, if like for a moment, they spotlight on mask for a minute. If I ever find that issue, I I, I got to, I got to get you a copy somehow. But, oh, absolutely. Um, but it's called Serial Geek, and they they talk about a lot of stuff. But it's now in previews. Every couple of months, an issue will drop in previews now. Okay. So, um, but like finding those back issues, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so, oh yeah, but no, it's pretty dope. But um. A lot of the quality is due to Andy Hayward and uh, Tetsuo Katayama because they put in that work. Now, I'll tell you what else is crazy, though. Speaking of this cartoon, one of the writers of the show uh, was Chuck Lore. Okay. Chuck Lore is the guy that created Two and a Half Men. Really? Yes. This shit is Hmm. crazy. This dude started off writing episodes of Mask. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> well, I got to say, he's probably making crazy paper from doing Two and a Half Men, mm-hmm. but I don't know that I don't know that I prefer his current work to his prior work. Put it that way. <laughs> oh no, I, I feel you. When, when I think of Two and a Half Men, and I've, I've honestly the only time I've ever seen it was on a, on a flight somewhere. I don't know where, and they were you know how they show those blocks sometimes when you fly. Mm-hmm. They show these blocks of TV shows, and they were showing like a block of Two and a Half Men, and uh, it was enough that I decided I never wanted to watch it again. <laughs> but I just remember thinking like how that kid hit like the lottery because. He's a pretty goofy looking kid. Yeah. Like he's not like it's not like he's a cute like a handsome kid, right? He's like kind of a goofy looking kid. And I was just thinking like, boy, like he hit like the lottery. He's on like this big hit show. Mm-hmm. And I gotta think if he were like just a kid, he wouldn't be getting laid. But seeing as how he's probably got mad Hollywood paper. Oh yeah. And he's been on the show forever and ever, he probably gets like laid a lot, even though he's a goofy looking kid. Oh no so, doubt. And he's pretty much grown up now. So, but he's still goofy looking, right? Oh yeah, he's still goofy looking. They might yeah. as well just call the show Three Men. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> but you know, but no, but for, but for real, it's it's kind of crazy where like some people get their beginnings on tele, you know, as far as like doing right. television stuff, and and to come from Mask to now like making all this paper, making shows for CBS, he's basically the the new age sitcom Stephen Bochco. Okay, okay. That, that's what Chuck Lore is. Because there was a, a a little minute there where sitcoms are considered dead on arrival right where there was no sitcoms out there no hits yeah. and then they made a little bit of a comeback of late and i, I think i read an article not too too uh long ago where they were crediting this guy uh with um, i've forgotten his name but it's this guy with basically helping revive the sitcom as a, a viable uh, network option so yeah Something else that's crazy, though, about about Mask. One of the voice actors, the voice actor for uh, Scott Tracker, Matt's son. Yeah. Brennan Thick, Alan, and Alan Thick is his dad. Okay, but Brennan's not the Thick who's the singer. No, no, that's right? Robin Thick. Robin Thick, right? Okay, yeah, that's yeah, Robin Thick. So I, right. didn't, I didn't know the Thick family rolled that deep. Yeah, well, it's funny too, because when I think of Alan Thick, I think of when you're talking about. People that start on TV and then make it big. I think about Leonardo DiCaprio being their adopted, you know, 
homeless son. Yes. And then now he's Leonardo DiCaprio, right? Word. I mean, oh yeah, and see that once again, know. that's jumping the shark right there. You knew that show. Sure. You knew that show was over when that happened. Well, and plus, when I think Alan Thicke, his name was Jason on that show. Right. And it backed me out because even though Jason was a super common name when I was, you know, born, like there were a million Jasons when I was born. Yeah. Um, it was one of those common names. I always was so wigged out because I didn't know any adults named Jason. And I used to remember thinking about like, am I going to be called Jason when I'm an adult? Because there are no adult Jasons. And then I remember starting to watch that show, and he was Jason Seaver, and I was like. Oh damn! There's an adult named Jason, and it was so I was identified with him because of that. Cool. Yeah. Now, you know what's all? See, there's so much stuff that Mask had that I didn't even know existed. You know, they had like three Commodore 64 games. I didn't know that. Yes, they had three Commodore 64 games, like Mask. I forget what Mask Two was called. Mask Three was called um, Venom's Revenge, and mm-hmm. you know, you get to drive the vehicles around, check some stuff out, and uh, that's pretty much it. Um, you know, because it's Commodore 64. And then there was all this. I think there was also a board game um, that Kenner or that Kenner did back in the day. Okay. And okay. Let's see. I'm trying to think what else. Now, what's funny is, is that in the United States, from '85 to '87, we had mask mask toys, and that was about it. It continued over in Argentina. Argentina. Yep. Argentina, where all Kenner toys go to die. Yeah, um, no kidding. <laughs> and um, seriously, they um, constantly repack repackaged. Um, mask figures and masks and mini vehicles, um, okay. so you could get that. Um, you could get that um, big billboard sign again <laughs> if you wanted to. And they would constantly re- they would constantly repackage them, repaint them, and ship them over there. So you know, Kenner made money off of this stuff overseas long after um, we got tired of it. Yeah, there you go. Just gonna say uh, the the I was thinking about stereotypes with um, w- with some of the characters. And do you remember Ali Bombay? Oh, I forgot about him. Oh, yeah. boy. Talk about unfortunate stereotypes. Yeah, no doubt. See, well, actually, I guess it was Ali Bombay, but it was Ali Bombay, and he was part of that, but he was part of that whacktacular racing part of the show. Yes. I don't think he was around before that. No, no, I don't and, think he uh, was either. You know, he was like, again, stereotype. He was from a, he was from a small village in India. He had a turban. <laughs> yes. And uh, he had, the, you know, the bad sort of stereotypical Indian accent. And uh, but he had a dope vehicle. He had the bullet, which I did have. It was like probably the last toy I got, which was it was like a street bike, mm-hmm. but it popped into a hovercraft. Oh, see, so like split open, you know, like the wheel, like split open the wheels, split open. It was kind of like the hovercraft thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was tight. It was tight. And he had the vortex mask. You could uh, like you know create like uh, you know a vortex obviously. Oh, but. oh yeah, but of course yes. Mm-hmm. See, but that was the cool. But see, like I said, that was the one, the one, one of the many cool things about Mask. I mean, the vehicles, even though some of them were silly, the fact that they they were able to create this in the '80s. It's like you know, like Transformers, Mask, the technology to make and create toys now is so advanced. I mean, shoot, we have yeah. action, we have action figures with like 90 points of articulation, which is ridiculous. Yes. Yes, <laughs> you know, but but back then to, to to be able to basically make customizable toys, yep, you know that had that had to cost some scrilla, uh, you know, for these manufacturers to make these molds and stuff and, and all this beta testing to make it work, and yeah, dude, it's it was awesome. Although absolutely, I will admit there was <laughs> another vehicle. There's a vehicle called I want to say the Outlaw. The Outlaw was an oil tanker slash mobile headquarters. Yeah, it was uh, it was one of Miles Mayhem's vehicles, right? Yeah, and I'll tell you what, man. Now that I'm older, there is so much sexual innuendo with this vehicle. With this vehicle, because with the oil tanker, when the back of the tanker lifts up, there's like this um, there's this missile with like a red tip, 
And, okay. and if you got a dirty mind, you already know where it's going. It's, it's just like, nice. I'm like, look, this ain't right. And like, then it says snake oil on the side. <laughs> it, it, it oh boy it ain't right you know they knew what they was doing when they when they made that one uh, so i mean we, we've talked a lot about about uh about mask and, and, and uh the the heroic side of things but obviously they fought venom all the time yes and uh venom venom was the same setup only they were evil guys you had miles mayhem who was the leader mm-hmm. and uh and he had a mask and then he had the same thing he had a crew of of uh ne'er-do-wells and, and their mass and vehicles and uh I was just going to ask you, like, if you had any, you know, particular favorites on that front, you know, any on the bad guy side. My my particular favorite with Venom, and even though I didn't like the dude that uh, that drove the vehicle, but I liked his mask. Um, he had this black truck called Jackhammer. Mm-hmm. And Jackhammer was smooth because, like, the the back of the truck would pop up, and you would have like this laser cannon, and then the front of it, like, the grill would like drop down, and that would have laser cannons. Yeah, and like um, the ma- the mask was basic. It was just like a gray mask, but it had like that that kind of like Iron Man design. Yep. So like I always thought it was like the the Mark One armor helmet. Yeah. <laughs> so that was dope. But like the cartoon, I hated. Um, his name was uh, Cliff, Cliff Dagger. Dagger. Yeah. Couldn't stand couldn't stand him because they made him a, just a complete and utter dumbass. He was a dope. Yeah, he was a dope. Yeah, but the truck was dope. That it was, was a Ford Bronco, man. It was O.J. Simpson style. Yes, yes, it was. He was ro- mm-hmm. he was rolling. Yes, he was with with cowlings down the street. So and he uh, and he he shot fire from his mask. Yes, he did. Yeah, the mask yeah no, he was cool. How about you? He, I mean, I, I I definitely again. I think uh, I think Vanessa was the Vanessa Warfield was my favorite Venom. I mean, she was the the hot evil dominatrix chick, mm-hmm. and even even I mean, she had a mask that uh, you know fired out whips. So. Uh, <laughs> You know, and she had the Manta, which is that again another another definitive '80s vehicle that was super hot at the time, the Nissan 240. Oh no! Yeah, it was a Nissan 240 that turned into a jet plane. Mm-hmm. And again, like I mean, if there's any young listeners to the show, they're probably like, "What's a Nissan 240?" Google that shit because that was a hot vehicle. I mean, that was like again, if you were rolling to school and like somebody's dad rolled up in a Nissan 240, he was a baller. That's yeah, like, exactly because you, you had know. you had to pay money for one of those. And yeah, exactly. And you had to have a mechanic in the trunk. <laughs> that's the truth that's the truth <laughs> you're right about that but that was hot but um i think i mean that was probably my favorite character but i think probably my favorite vehicle there was a what was this? oh miles mayhem who was the leader of venom yes i don't know if you remember he had a twin brother what? named max mayhem <laughs> and basically again he looked exactly the same twin brother but he was the leader of the team in the the third the, the racing car part of the, okay. the show yeah and he had the buzzard, which was the indie race car, and it converted into like three different things. It was like it could split up and be two attack things, but then it could combine and be like a jet, and that was dope. Yeah, that I, was real. Dope. I just saw I just saw the picture for that, and okay. uh, yeah, that is dope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is off the chain. Yeah. See, you got your money's worth with these toys, man. You did, you did, especially like you said for back then, because there was a lot of I mean, moving parts in the. I mean, it was it was definitely. Uh, it, it, it was it was definitely I think ahead of its time. I mean I think again to, today's day and age probably not all that impressive relative to what they can do with toys. But oh, no. but back then I mean that was pretty crazy. I mean you know this thing could uh, you know they, they, it was cool man. It was that was the thing. You know you, these vehicles you got your money's worth. And as I recall they were kind of expensive. I mean I don't think they were the cheapest toys. No no, no 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 especially but, uh, Rhino. Rhino cost a grip. Yeah and what was that one? Um, oh, man the other one I really dug. Uh, oh the volcano. The volcano, sir. Oh, that was hot. That was the Bigfoot truck, 
and, the, and it would like split open at the top and it would like it would lift up and then like in the, and then right in the center it would be like it was Matt Tracker and he had like a laser cannon. Oh, see, yeah. I, I know. I never had the opportunity. I had never had the opportunity at all to even get close to seeing one of those. Ever. No, that was good. You got to look it up. It was, uh, but it, yeah, it was a blue, almost Bigfoot looking. It was a van though, but it was like a Bigfoot van with the big tires and stuff. And then you press the button, and then just like it split in two, almost like cracking an egg, and then popped up like this orange little like uh, turret. And uh, and Matt Tracker was in that, and it was Matt Tracker, and he had his lava shot mask. But then like all the bigger vehicles came with two guys, and this one came with Jacques Lafleur and his Mirage mask. <laughs> and uh, again, like hilarious, right? Like Jacques Lafleur. Stereotypical French dude, French accent. He had the Mirage mask, but uh, yeah. but it worked at the time. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> See, but you know what's, what? What gets me is that there were not a lot of of Venom, you know, Venom characters. You pretty much had Vanessa, Miles right. and Max, Slyrax, which is a yeah. terrible name, and terrible. like uh, Lester Sludge. That's really about it. Yeah. Well, you, there was uh, Nash Gorey who who came with Outlaw too. No, that's right. That's right. He was the mechanic, but yeah, Bruno Shepard. He was the Cliff Dagger after Cliff. He was sort of yeah. like the, the the dumb goon yeah. that came after him. And uh, but yeah, for the most part, it was a much smaller cast because again, I think with the mask guys, you had the coolness of every week they would pick a team to fight the battle. Whereas I guess it was always implied that Venom was always the same group of thugs working for Max, oh, just yeah. trying to do something. One thing I wish I, I could have done as a child. But unfortunately, I was sick. I was sick on this day. I lived growing up. I lived in Middletown, Ohio, which is in the greater Cincinnati area. Okay. And in Cincinnati, that's where Kenner was. That's where that, that, mm. that's where that's where you know Kenner Toys was located. Oh, okay. And so you know, anytime you bought a Star Wars toy or Kenner toy or anything, it said you know made mm -hmm. made by Kenner, Cincinnati, Ohio, blah blah blah. Nice. So one day, our school is going to Kenner. You know, like they're taking like a select group of people to go go to Kenner and like take a tour. And I was mm -hmm. on that list. And like the night before, I got sick. I mean, mad sick. And the next morning I woke up, I mean, super fever, you know, just like, like the vapors sick. Or? Like, yeah, like the vapors. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the Bismarck and the remix on top of it by Snoop. OK. All I, right. I was in a world of hurt and I said I didn't care. I, I put on my clothes. I was burning up. I said, Mom, I got to go. She's like, no, you're not going anywhere. I was like, I got to go. It's the only chance I'm going to be able to go to the Kenner, to the Kenner <laughs> Toy Factory. She's like, baby, you're going to be able to go some other time. It's going to be okay. I'm like, no, Mama, it's not okay. I got to go. She was like, take your butt back to bed. I was like, <sighs> so then I went back to bed. And, but I was able to finally watch an episode of Mask from beginning to end at my own house. But, oh, man, I was so hurt. And then, like, those select group of kids came back the next day and was talking about it. I was envy oh man that's yeah i don't even i mean that, i can only imagine as a kid into those toys to be that close it's almost like um buying a powerball ticket right and getting everything but the magic number or something oh yeah it, it, like it, you feel like you're so close right oh man it, so close so but yeah so far away Have you gone back as an adult now? Because one thing about us being comic book geeks, we and nostalgic. I mean, we 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 do all do have that collector's mentality, and it doesn't take a lot for us to start collecting things. Um, have you gone back and bought any, not just masks, but like do you do you have any toys or action figures from the day? Like just even like I know you've got a couple of GI Joe figures, but like do you have any that you uh you've reaccumulated just because uh you know just to have that little bit of uh, of nostalgia? Do you um, do that at all? Just a couple, just just a couple. Mm -hmm. I mean, for there's periods of time. Right? 
What you say? Hondo? Oh man, see, I'm looking for I'm looking for a Hondo McLean and his truck. Yes. That's my homeboy. Like, um, mm -hmm. I always I always joke to myself, I say, if I ever made a live action mask movie, Lawrence Fishburne is Hondo McLean. Anyway. Nice. <laughs> but well, I the, I would say but the 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 uh the nineteen like ninety two version of Lawrence Fishburne, not the not the 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 uh, big belly uh, jelly roll CSI version. <laughs> no man, see I don't know I don't know who that Lawrence Fishburne is, sir. <laughs> nice. I, I I don't know that Lawrence Fishburne, but no I, um I do I do still have uh, there are some things I, I I have looked for and I was able to acquire, um you know like say for instance I was able to get a Superpowers Firestorm. Nice. Um you know and I got it on the cheap I got it for like six bucks. Wow. Okay. Cool. It, it was out. It was out of package, and it was it was just beautiful, and nobody, everybody just slept on it. So I said, okay, I'll get that back because I had one. I used to have like three fourths of the Superpowers line and the Hall of Justice. Respect. And so you were more of a DC kid growing up, I gather. No, 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 no. Actually, this is the way it worked out. When I was a kid, I thought mm -hmm. when I was when I was a kid, I thought Marvel Comics were the greatest thing in the world, and DC Comics were terrible. Even though I watched Super Friends every single weekend. Okay. Didn't make you know that doesn't compute in my head. Then one day. What changed all of that and what made me change, like, just to read, like, everything I could possibly find. Um, I was at my grandma's house. And my mom got home from work. And she, like, went to, like, like a, like a newsstand store or whatever when those, when those still existed. And yeah. she just picked up a bunch of random comics. And then she, handed, she came in the door and handed them to me. And the, the comic on top was a DC who's who cover, covered by John Byrne and Superman was on the front. Oh, son, you! I think you know this already, but for your listeners that don't, I am a comic fanatic today because of uh, official handbook of the Marvel Universe for Hot Room. Mm -hmm. See, and there you go. And when I saw that, I was like, "What's this?" And like, I opened up that first page, and I'm like, "Oh, it's talking about all these superheroes and supervillains, all these characters." I'm like, "This is wild." Second, yep. the second book was a, Mar a Mar official handbook of the Marvel Universe. Oh boy! And I was like. Oh, so then I started looking through that, and like they had a book. They were talking about like all these different types of like weapons and vehicles and some characters. I was just like, yeah, able to lift forty tons under optimum conditions, right? Yeah, there. and it was just wild. And and then like it was like some type of independent comic. I, I don't want to say it was Boris the Bear. I, I can't remember, but and I just it like it flipped that switch. Yeah. And then I just literally like found everything. But toy wise, it was superpowers and Secret Wars all the way. But, okay. but yeah, I mean that's the way it was back then. But like I've tried to find some some Secret War stuff. Almost mm -hmm. got almost got my Daredevil back. Mm -hmm. Used to have Daredevil, and um, foolishly I sold it as a child. But one toy, and I will admit that I went to cop because you know even though the show was silly, I ain't gonna front. I watched it as a teenager. I don't give a damn. Green Ranger and the Dragon Zord in box. I don't give a damn because I love that fucking design. Oh, there you go. First season Power Rangers, I, I freaking love, and it's awful. Right. But I'll man up and say I copped it. Hey, you gotta own. You gotta own it. Own it. So that and my last thing, a Toy Biz ten inch War Machine still in the box. Nice. Now I'm, I'm looking I can't right front at on it, that. Man. So my, I can't what, front on that. But what about you, man? You know, it's a little different for me. I, uh, I, you know, I know you don't have kids. I have three kids, three boys. So in a way, I get to cheat. Because I get to buy lots of toys and action figures that under the auspice of for them. Yes. But then I get to play with them too. <laughs> um, but when you do have three boys, it's pretty much impossible to have anything that they don't like lose their minds and want to play with. If 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 you know, so it's hard to explain to them that like, no, daddy wants to keep that in a box in his man cave and you can't touch it. Yeah. So 
Um, I really don't have too many like toys from our, our childhood that uh, that I have on display. Although I bring it up because ever since I got that GI Joe book with all the toys that ever were made and the, and and you know with the with the all the tales, I have to say I've been trolling through eBay looking for a few. You know, like I said, we moved into this house two years ago, and it took a lot my sweet ass time. Uh, one of the one of the rooms was de- designated as my comic room man cave, and I'm finally to the point where it's pretty much set now. So I've been like, I bought a few, I've been like getting some accoutrements for us. I, I bought a couple statues. So I'm looking for things to put in there. And, and one of the things I'm looking to do now is to buy a few select GI Joe and Transformer, you know, characters and vehicles just just to put in there, just a few, just to sort of like, you know, little little set pieces. But uh, but no, I mean right now, I mean we, I, like I said, I, I any any Star Wars or, or GI Joe or Transformer or or, or Marvel uh, superhero figure that's out, I'll, I'll it doesn't. It takes the boys, but to like ask in a, in a half a second, I'll buy it for them so I can play with it too. But oh, yeah. but no, I don't really have any nostalgia toys. It's uh, it's it's all pretty much comics for me, you know. I feel you, man. I feel you. Got you, know, you got to balance it out. I mean, I I've you know sold I've sold like a bunch of uh, toys I've collected o- o- over mm-hmm. over the years. I mean, because I don't there's I don't purchase like you know for me it's probably like one or one or two toys a year, whether it be an action figure or a vehicle or sure. something. Where it used to be, like, I would go to the store, like, once every other week and see what's out there. And, like, you know, if I liked it, I'd go cop it. You know, I mean, I still have my original Star Wars action figures. That's good. And my, and my, and my Vader case. And actually, nice. I forgot my my 12-inch Han Solo I got for my fifth birthday. Respect. Still got it. The only thing that's missing is is the is the medal, the, uh, the um, celebration medal for it. Okay. And, okay. And it's sitting on a mini Eagles helmet. Oh, dude, that's my you're my boy. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm actually uh, so it's Kismet. I'm I'm uh, for Halloween. I'm going as Han Solo. Words. Yeah. That's well, my boys, my my five year old, my seven year old are, are are Star Wars crazy because of Clone Wars. So I mean, they are crazy for Star Wars. That's their number one thing. And uh, so the the seven year old is going as uh, as a uh, like a uh, he he bought. I mean, we let him pick their costumes each year. He picked out a uh, like a, a, a I don't even know the name of it, but it's like it's basically a stormtrooper outfit, but it's it's all black. You know, it's like a stealth trooper. You yeah. know what I mean? Yes. So he he loves it because it came with the blaster and it's all black. It's like you know, so he's like he's calling it the ninja stormtrooper, but you know, it's really not. <laughs> and then and then my middle my five year old he is going as uh, as Commander Cody from the from the clone troopers, from the Clone Wars. You know that he's one of the the, the heroic clones. Word. And then uh, and then they insisted, and it's awesome. So our, our we have a twenty month old. He's going as Yoda, okay. which is off the chain. Nice. So they were like, "Daddy, who are you going to be?" And I was like, "Well, I don't know if I'm going to get a costume," but they insisted. So uh, my wife's going as Leia, and I'm going as Han. That's some family love right there. Well, that's and, and you know, you know, there are advantages to deciding to go like that because then I get to hang out with Leia. You know, after hours, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and there There's you go. nothing wrong with that. Talk <laughs> no. about childhood fantasy. <laughs> All right, well, before we end this uh, episode about the Mobile Armored Strike Command and everything that it entails in our history of childhood, um, Jason, can you let um, the people know um, where they can hear 11 o'clock comics and where they can, um, you know, also find you on the internet. Sure, man. Um, yeah, so, so our show is 11 o'clock comics and, uh, you can find it on iTunes. Obviously probably the most easy, uh, easy way if you want to listen to it. But, uh, our website is, uh, two, two URLs. Uh, it's, um, 11 o'clock comics, which is the number 11 
oclockcomics.com. All uh, you can, that'll get you where you want to go, or you can go to bullpenbulletinspodcast.com, and that's uh, like Marvel Bullpen Bulletins Podcast, and that's because uh, just the history of it is that that David and Vince used to do a show, as you know, that was focused on Marvel called Bullpen Bulletins, and so when we first started, we we just kept the URL and that sort of thing. So you, either one will get you where you got to go, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it, it's uh, it's it's myself. Uh, Vince B, David Price, who also co-hosts Marvel Noise or hosts Marvel Noise, and Chris Neesman, who many people probably know from you know the uh, the longtime host of Around Comics, and uh, it's the four of us. We record every Wednesday night uh, for you know probably about two hours. We get uh, nice and liquored up and talk about just about anything that comes to mind comics related. So, uh, um, but uh, you can find us there, and we have a, a pretty robust and active uh, uh, forum community, um, which is at forums.bullpenbulletinspodcast.com. Um, uh, you can you can find Sean there on occasion. Yes, you lots will. of other people you probably know, and uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And and if you're into fantasy football, um, you know I, I am one of the uh, the senior writers of uh, Football Guys, which is uh, footballguys.com, a very popular fantasy football site. So if you're interested in that, not comics related, but as Sean and I were talking off air, there is some overlap uh, at least with us. We're into both, and uh, so you can give that a try too. Cool. It ain't nothing wrong with that either, man. Hey, you know, look, there's nothing wrong being, there's nothing wrong with getting your geek on, there's nothing wrong with getting your sports on. So uh, true. Oh, and and I should say, you mentioned it in the beginning, but I also should say because I forgot, uh, I do uh, also write a, um, a a a column about the business side of comics. Um, I took month of August off because I had mad other stuff going on, but it will be back this month uh, okay. uh, on a regular basis, a weekly basis at ifanboy.com. Uh, awesome. Is, uh, yeah. Very awesome. Now I, I got to give eleven o'clock comics. I got to give y'all y'all you know proper respect and props because, you know y'all put on a good show and you guys also really open up. You open up you open up listeners to books that they may you know may have never given a shot on, and you know and it's just it's honest you know, you know like just those back you know those conversations on the porch you know, everybody's just chilling with like a brew sometimes you know Vince just has his Pepsi Max but. Um, <laughs> but you know it's just nice you know just truthfully honest fun conversations about comics and, and, and what not and y'all, y'all do a great job with it and your forum boards every time I'm on there you know I've, I've never been in a situation where it's you know flame wars and stuff like that it's always mm-hmm. it's always civil and, and, I, and I like that and I think that's good you know for I, I think that's good for, you know for comics and I think that's good for people that want to get into comics and that's good for people that like peruse on forums and listen to podcasts so you know y'all got something real good out there and, and you know we appreciate that appreciate it man yeah I mean it's it's we do take a lot of pride in the forum community um, we definitely have a, a no assholes rule and <laughs> uh, and it does seem to stick and, and I agree because unfortunately, there are too many internet places where people can be douchebags, and uh, pardon my French, and uh, and we really try to, to not have that. And uh, and I think you'd be amazed if 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 you if you set the tone, if if the hosts act a certain way, you, people be surprised at how how much a forum can 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 stay takes on the demeanor of the of the hosts. Um, so uh, it's not like we actively moderate it or, or or you know delete posts or we don't really do really any of that. It's just that uh, people kind of. Know that if they're going to set foot in, in 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 the community, it's 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 all about the love and the karma and the positivity and uh, and, and respecting each other. So yeah, man. All right. Cool. Well, I tell you what, Jason. Thanks again for coming on the show, man. I, I can't say thanks enough. Um, I appreciate it. And uh, you know, hopefully in the near future, we'll have you back on again, sir. Well, hey, uh, mutual mutual love to you. You know, I've I've been a big fan, and it's been a lot of fun getting to know you the last few years. And uh, 
And uh, we've actually been on, I think you and I were on um, uh, Ian Levinstein's Comic Timing a while ago together. Yes. So this isn't our first podcast together, but uh, I'm, I'm psyched to finally be on your show. And uh, and, and uh, I'm sure I'll be seeing you uh, uh, sooner rather than later. And you uh, you keep doing your thing because, you know, I, I got nothing but love for, uh, for the entire PK Media Black Box Empire. Oh, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. It's Amber Love with a reminder that bidding is already underway for this year's Wonder Woman Day comic book art auction benefiting domestic violence organizations. You can see all of the art that's up for bid at comicfusion.com. Click the Wonder Woman Day link and email your bids to bids at comicfusion.com. But better yet is to stop by the store and examine the pieces in person because the scans that we have simply don't do them any justice. We have art donations from Billy Tucci, Neil Vokes, Tom Smith, Michael Golden, and Sergio Aragones, to name just a few of the 80 pieces available. The event at Comic Fusion is October 23rd to the 24th, where we will host Jamal Igel, Ken Hazer, Nick Makoviak, and Charles P. Wilson. They will only be doing a limited number of in-store sketches because we have over 80 pieces up for auction which need good homes, but you can purchase comics for them to sign. Get your picture taken with the 501st and our superheroes as well. If you visit Facebook, search for Wonder Woman Day V because it's the fifth year. Or again, our site is comicfusion.com. To get your interest really peaked, visit amberunmasked.com for interviews that I will be posting daily until the event. Thanks for your time, and I'll see you then October 23rd and 24th at Comic Fusion in Flemington. We are joined via the Skype line this evening um, with a gentleman that many of you uh, may know of, his talents. Um, he is a very versatile uh, man in the comics industry. He is not only a letter, but he also writes. He is an artist, anchor, and colorist. He has uh, participated in some of your favorite comics, including the uh, Franklin, Franklin Richards series, Lockjaw and the Pet Avengers, Tales of the Pet Avengers, World War Hulks, Spider-Man vs. Thor, Secret Invasion, Siege, uh, he is also a 2006 Will Eisner uh, nominee, and he is also the creator of the webcomic Misery, Love Sherman. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Eliopoulos. Chris, how you doing? Man, I'm feeling old now after that list. <laughs> God. That's like, you know, like the Lifetime Achievement Awards. They just go down the list and say, okay, we're done with you. Go home now. No, 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 no. See, it could have been worse. This could have been the Kennedy, the Kennedy Center honors. Then we just would have put you in the grave after we did all that. We <laughs> had <laughs> <out> to pasture. <laughs> yes. Nice. Thank you for coming on the show, though. My pleasure. Fantastic. Um, we got like a, a list of questions for you. Um, I tell you what, you know what, John? Because I always start off the questions. How about why don't you go ahead and start this time? Okay, this is one of the reasons actually I wanted to get you on because unlike a lot of the people that I know that we probably have listening uh, that are longtime fans of comics, I actually didn't get into comics until I was twenty-five. Yeah, I know that's that's weird, and. I've heard a lot of people talking about buying like uh, font packs and stuff like that. And also, what exactly is the work of a letter on a book? I mean, I, I do realize you do the word balloons, and I know you do the, the letters in the words. But is there anything else that a letter tends to do on a book? And also with that, 
when did you uh, i know you probably are one of the guys that started out in hand and moved to digital when did you do that transition wow okay that was 10 questions in one <laughs> i know uh, it's a long one okay yeah. let's see okay well lettering uh, involves uh the the word balloons that you see uh, as well as the sound effects and even at times sometimes anything you see in a background that happens to be type um sometimes it's done by the artist but most of the time it's done by the letterer I tend to do a lot of uh, the design work as well. So if you see like recaps or next issue pages or other design pages, they're usually done by me. I did start off hand lettering back in the the monastery when I was a monk, and um, <laughs> working on know. Savage Dragon. Yep, Savage Dragon. We we did that a lot in the in the monastery. Uh, I started. I got into Marvel as an intern in at in, in 1989. And um, soon thereafter, started working on lettering, and then got into there. They had an in-house lettering department. Worked there, um, hand lettered, and then saw the writing on the wall that things were going to go digital. So I kind of joined the bandwagon and started playing around with the computer and learning how to create fonts. So most of the books, or all the books that you see that I've worked on, and and the people that work for me um, work on, are fonts that I've created. What other questions do we have in there? Uh, and how do you create a font? I mean, oh what is boy. Exactly- that's a that's a whole big thing. Um, usually, it starts off with me either like hand lettering things or just you know doing stuff on a piece of paper, and maybe there's a, a style that I like and I play with. Um, I usually then go over to um, a program called Illustrator and sort of work out the look of it, and then um, eventually import it into a program called Fontographer. And once I do that, I still tweak it some more. It it's, it takes a good 40, 50 work hours getting this thing, a, a, a standard you know, balloon font uh, up and running and usually needs some tweaking even after that once you start using it day to day. It involves programs and just basically knowing what you're doing, you know, le- learning letter forms and spacing and you know, what looks right and what looks wrong. And it took me a long time to, to learn – uh, what I'm doing, and now it's so so natural to me. Now I don't even think twice about it. It's either it looks right or it looks wrong. Mm-hmm. I can't usually describe why it's right or wrong, which irritates the hell out of the guys that work for me. When I try to train them and show them what to do, uh, no, this is wrong. Why is it wrong? I, it just is. Just don't do it like that. Right. Um, it's stuff I've developed over the years, but sort of you see what looks wrong, and you never do it again. And that's what I do now. Um, in cre- in creating fonts and, and being a letter and and everything, um, I take it you are also like many of us. We do not. I don't like the Comic Sans font. Uh, is that font banned um, from your rotisserie? Oh yeah. Okay, oh, just yeah. checking. Just checking. I, yeah. No. It. it um, well, uh, you know, obviously, it practically comes installed on every computer there is. So I, I, I have it. I don't ever really use it when it's uh, you know for comic book stuff. It's not. That's the sure sign that, that it's amateur hour if you're using a font like that. But mostly I use uh, just the fonts I've created. But, you know, they, obviously there are, you know, even even the, um, the font that uh, was used on Avatar. Why am I totally forgetting the name now? Remember the ones that just every every home computer has? Papyrus, that's it. <laughs> Everybody's got it, and it's the worst, stupidest-looking thing in the world. And they used it on there, so it looks like it was done on a home computer. There's certain fonts nowadays you just steer clear of, and that and uh, Comic Sans are. Blech. Yeah, I I kind of learned that lesson the hard way. One of the first books um, put together it was like a twelve a twelve page zero issue for a sci-fi book, 
And when because the, the, the artist provided all the work, the coloring and the lettering. And when I got the when I got it, I was all excited. Then I looked it over um, a while later. I was like, wait a minute, this is Comic Sans. And then, and I just remember hearing like all the complaints from friends and stuff. They're like, well, the art is cool, but boy, these fonts are terrible. This lettering's awful. You know, we can't stand it. I'm like, I didn't know any better. <laughs> so, uh. then, so, but, but, but then that just led me to actually start talking to people and getting, and getting advice before, you know, taking things straight to a printer. So lesson yeah. learned, Comic Sans yeah. is not my friend. Yeah. You know, and that's the problem sometimes. Like yeah, I, one of the biggest ones that happened recently was, um, uh, the Twilight comic adaptation. Nobody really notices lettering until it's really, really bad, uh, and then it really pops out, and then people start to talk about it. And that's the case, you know. It can ruin a book. It can literally pull people right out of a story. I've heard people just stop buying books or reading books because the lettering was just so god awful bad. I mean, that's an extreme case, but you know, usually when things are all working well together, you know, the book looks seamless. But when you have something as glaring as, as, as that, people tend to notice and get really offended almost sometimes. Mm-hmm. I was reading a Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney um, a manga, a volume one, uh, actually last night. I've been dying to read this book for about, I don't know, almost a year, year and a half. Um, I, I played the game on um, Nintendo DS. I played it on the Wii. Um, really, really excited to actually read the manga it was based off of. And then when I opened up the manga, the lettering... Because I'm so used to just like reading, you know, I've read a lot of manga and the lettering in this book was just bad. Yeah. And I was hurt because I wanted to open this up and just enjoy it so much. And it really took the fun out of it for me. I got halfway through and I said I couldn't I couldn't force myself to continue reading it. Yeah. And and I love comics and I never want to try to force myself to read a book. So I just I had to put it down. Yeah, and I, I mean that. Yeah, that happens a lot. Even even in you know movies or anything like that, or or you know or something else, it just pulls you right out. And there's just nothing you can do to enjoy the reading or the or watching a movie when something like that happens. Staying with the lettering, uh, John had mentioned uh, that you had, that you had done a lot of lettering for uh, Savage Dragon, mm-hmm. and and during your run, I want to say it's about a hundred issues, um, if memory serves me right. You hand lettered that book mm-hmm. um, now, and and that includes during a period of time where you know so many were making that transition to doing things digitally, but you still did it. You still did it the old school way. And this is probably an easy question, but which style do you prefer um, between like a hand lettering or computer or just like a little bit of both? On my own work, I prefer hand lettering. Nowadays, it's so much easier, quicker, and um, to, to go digital. And especially the way most companies work nowadays, there's so many changes and corrections made even after a book is lettered that it's a necessity now to, to, to have it digital. So I do prefer it when I'm working on other books and, 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 and for companies and stuff like that. But like in my strip, I still hand letter it just because I like the feeling of the lettering working with the art. Like it, it seems to kind of mesh much better for my stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was do- the, the stuff I was doing for Eric when I was hand lettering it was basically because he wanted it. Okay. And um, he's an old school guy and wants his book to look that way. And it got to a point where I was I was lettering um, a whole bunch of books. It was the last book I was lettering by hand. And I was um, doing um, a lot of books digitally. And I was lettering in about four hours uh, an entire book. And it was taking me almost three and a half to four days to hand letter his book at, by that point. 
um, just because I wasn't doing it as much anymore and I got kind of slow. You know, the more you do it, the, the faster you are. So uh, he was like the last one and eventually I just said, look, I can't do this anymore. It's it's killing my schedule to, to kill four days. You know, I, and in, normally in four days I was lettering four books, five books, six books. It was killing me to just do one book. So uh, I eventually said, that's it. I'm done. I've seen like the list. I checked Comic Book DB and saw the list of books you've lettered over the years. And I mean, and it's a slew. So yeah, uh, yeah that would definitely put a crimp in trying to get things out on time. And, and in the comics industry, even though a lot of people make jokes about books being late and stuff, you know, there are plenty of people that go in, work hard with the intention of not getting behind. But something like oh, yeah. that, I could definitely see, you know, putting you behind schedule. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there was a, there was a point uh, with the hand lettering, and I'm surprised I don't have carpal tunnel where I was um, – it was a brief period, but it was a few months where I, I was actually lettering 30 books a month by hand, which is just absolutely insane. So if, think about that one. If, if there's 30 days in a month, you're doing a book a day by hand. I was working probably from seven, eight in the morning until ten, eleven at night every day. Now, and I just take about. was that before you got married? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Oh, please forget it. You know, I mean, I'm much better now. Like I've learned. Uh, you know, I've got a company now, and I've got people working for me, so I'm I'm doing far fewer books myself. I tend to have a lot of guys working for me, and I oversee everything they do. So I'm I'm sort of still there, but yeah, no, nothing like that. I'm an old man now, you know. I can't keep the pace. Oh no, I understand. You're not old. You're you're not you're not old. Sidney Poitier is old, and he <laughs> and he still looks good. So, well, you know, I was I was at the New York Comic Con this past weekend, and Stanley was running around, and and he he laps me. I mean, you know, so and he's what eighty nine, eighty eighty seven, something like that, and he's flying. So you know. I don't know how he does it. Stan, Stan Lee is like the Ric Flair of comics. He, I think if he stops doing it, I think he'll die. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean I'm not saying that to be mean either. It's just that no. You, no, you, know, it's you, true. You, you see that love, and it's, it, it, it's what motivates him and moves, keeps him moving every single day. And you know, he has his hands in so much stuff now. I mean, more stuff now than, than a few years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, like, because I remember during the, um, during the internet boom bust, um, you know where he had a uh, Powell Productions, and he had his he had his hands in all these comic books that he was about to drop, and then the internet basically all those new companies just like folded, and he went away for a moment. But like I see more coming out from him now than I did years ago, and the fact that at his age he's still able to move and groove, more power to him. Oh yeah, he's just uh, he's a ball of energy. I don't know. I, I you know I hope I'm as energetic and raring to go as he is, uh, even in five years. I mean, he's just, he just goes and goes and goes, so. John, before we kick to, so I'm going to let you have next question, but before we do that, I'm going to put, uh, throw in some Twitter, th- Twitter items. Matt Burden, who was a guest on our show a little while ago, um, just sent me a private message via Twitter that says uh, that he read his son Joe, Pet Avengers. And mm-hmm. it says, please tell him uh, he has helped a seven-year-old get even more into the medium his dad loves. Cool. So that, that is awesome. Yeah, that's sort of my new, um, my new cause, my new, you know, I just, I've been really depressed lately looking at, at numbers and looking at what we're doing as an industry. And ever since a number of years ago, I started Franklin. When, when It was after my kids were born and I realized there was nothing I could give them to get them reading comics that I needed to do something. 
and it just it just seems to be getting worse and worse. We're not putting out books that are all ages friendly, that are new re- reader friendly, and that are kid friendly. And I I just love those are the kind of messages I love. I love to hear parents giving books to kids that they can read and enjoy together, and maybe starts getting them the next generation enjoying comics and sort of keep this business going because you know right now we're sort of eating ourselves alive. I love those little comments like that. I love hearing from parents. Awesome. Um, and I definitely want to talk to you a little bit more later on about about you know all ages comics and uh, and mm-hmm. things like that, and leading to that conversation that you were just talking about a moment, things that you were talking about a moment ago. But um, we'll get back to that momentarily. Okay. Um, <laughs> go ahead, John. It's on you, man. I was going to say that's one of the reasons I wanted to do this because I knew about your love of all ages comics. My frustration with them not having all ages comics and Chris's frustration same. Mm-hmm. But uh, I actually wanted to ask you about Misery Loves Sherman. I was mad that you ended it. Um, it's fun. not ended. Put it on hiatus. Put it on hiatus. Yes. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, I, I'm, I, the reason I did that is because I'm putting my money where my mouth is. I've been doing the strip for three years now. We're, we'll be, it, would, it would be three years in December. Like I said, I was getting really frustrated that I don't see a ton of all-ages comics being put out there. And my theory is that we need to put a new kind of comic out, uh, like a 120-page graphic novel for kids that you can put into – you know, six by nine that you can put in a bookstore right next to other kids' books. And right now, the big comic companies aren't doing that. And I think that's where we need to be going. I decided that I needed to go off and write and draw a book. So I needed to give myself a few months to really write it down and get it going and then get back to the strip. So it, it'll be back. I, I'm not – I love that strip way too much to, to just walk away. So I was about to say as a father of a five-year-old uh, who loves uh, G-Man and – all the distinguished competitions, uh, Tiny Titans. Mm-hmm. It's good. I, and he and I've read him uh, Pet Avengers, the mm-hmm. lo- the first one. I haven't got the second one yet, and he likes them. And of course, he also. And that's one thing I've noticed. He, he to, I'm not bagging on Marvel here, but DC does have a little bit. With Johnny DC, does have a little bit better licenses for some right. things. Then again, that's yeah. because of Warner as a you know, and the, oh, Disney sure. license, and the Disney licenses are over at Boom, so. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if moving forward things are going to change or not. I don't know, but, you know, I would think with Disney involved, there might be something going on, but you never know. I mean, it seems like they've got a contract or something with, with Boom for a while, so, you know, which is great. I mean, as long as they're producing good books and, and getting it out there, um, I don't care where they come from as long as they're, you know, out there and. I just know that these big companies need to sort of lead the charge a bit more and um, getting stuff out there. So, I mean, they've got the you know they've got the weight behind them of the big corporations and you know the parent companies. So, hopefully, well, hopefully. not o- not only that, but um, with Marvel and DC, and I granted, I know like everything splintered off as far as like ownership goes, but like Time Time Warner and Disney, they have two of the biggest publishing firms in the country. Right. right. Um, so, I mean, that, I mean, if anything, that would that would help. As far as getting, like, say, for instance, a 120-page, um, you know, OGN-style kid or all-ages book into your Walmarts, into your other bookstores, into, um, you know, just, just everywhere. Um, yeah. I come from an age where, like, during the 80s, I mean, I've said this on previous shows, my parents got me into comics. Um, my dad read comics as a kid, um, and my mom, my mom read comics <laughs> for, like the, for the longest time. 
um, she was the one that took me to comic book stores all the time. And like when my parents were divorced, my mom would take me to stores, you know, near her workplace. And my dad, when he would come pick me up, he'd take me to bookstores and we read books together. Now, and even then, yeah, a lot of the books were all ages and a lot of them were one and done stories, which had some type of underlying theme underneath. So eventually, if they ever wanted to trade it, they could. Yeah. They seldom right. did, but they could. Right. And but the thing is, there was everything. And and like, you know, my dad would let me read stuff I shouldn't read, like the Mike Grell Green Arrow <laughs> and, and, and the um, and the Dennis Cowan question. The nice thing about the about books back then, and this is even before books got event heavy and we're talking like Secret Wars, too which we won't talk about. Um, (laughs) There was still, there were books that my dad could read and I could read together. There's that disconnect right now. I I, I liken it to professional wrestling. Professional wrestling grew up with its audience. And yes, they still sell toys and stuff like that. But the shows like on USA and on sci-fi are catered for adults. Right. But how do you bring that balance back? Because yeah. I even read, I read you know Miller and Mazzucchelli's Daredevil as a kid, and technically, if you really think about it, that was more adult matter than kids matter. But every now and then, they would slide something in, they would slide something in to, to remind you it's all ages, even the, in the most brutal um, goings on of Matt Murdock's life. And yeah. it, but it was there, there was this balance, which I talk about almost every other week on this show. That balance and that balance is gone. I mean, it's you know what it is. We've come to a second generation, another generation of comic creators who grew up reading comics, and much like the fans, they want comics to grow, mature, and be as you know serious as they are now. And I think um, you know, and there's definitely a place for it. And I think there's a place for both, you know. But we do need to sort of remember that we have to get people. Who don't normally read comic books into reading comic? I mean, we you know look at it. I mean, we came out with billion dollar box office movies, and it did nothing to get new readers in. Yep. You know, number one, because as I've said, trying to find a comic book store is the hardest thing in the world. Number one, most people don't know that there are actually comic book stores. So you know, when I when people ask me where they can pick up my book, I try to say, well, you know, go you know eight 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 comic book, you know the the the, the number, or go online. And they all go. I mean, they're actually comic book stores. I can't just go to the bookstore or the or the or Seven Eleven. No, you can't do that anymore. And even if they go, you know, some of the, some of them now, not most, not all of them. You know, there are some really good shops, but there are some shops where, you know, I've gone in and you know they're they're blasting heavy metal music. It it looks like it's a dungeon, and you know, and the kid comics are are like four books shoved in the back corner not in any particular order and it's not really conducive to to bringing in new readers new kids so you know we sort of have to look at that too and they're not coming to us we have to go out and get them you know there's a reason that archie does so well and and that they they put their books right on the shelves at the supermarket you know you're checking out and boom there's a book the kid sees it oh okay so uh, we sort of have to have material that is all ages and friendly. I mean, I even had um, – I was down uh, a month or so ago. I was down in Disney World, and um, now that you know Disney owns Marvel, they obviously are willing to put product in their stores in in the parks. And I was walking through one of the parks, and there was a store there, and I went in, and I actually found Pet Avengers there, which I thought was awesome. But a lot of the other ones, you look around, and you just go, I, I, if I never read a comic book before, would I be able to pick this up and know what's going on? You know, would I be able to pick it up? Would I be happy to hand this to my kid? You know, I had um, a friend who went to Disneyland, and she said that she said, "Oh, look, I found they had Franklin Richards on the the rack there." 
she grabbed the last two that were there, went up to the clerk, and clerk said, wow, you know, this this book is like our best-selling book here. Everybody is buying this book. And I thought, well, see, you know, if you get it out to them to where they are, they're going to pick it up. It's just a matter of providing the material and putting it out there. We can really blame the distro wars and the and the implosion of the early to mid nineties for a lot of stuff. Oh, we can. I mean, no, you can sit there and point fingers all day, but that that doesn't yeah. solve anything in terms of what do we do now. I mean, yeah, it, we're we're here now, and now we got to move forward. And and I think well, I'm blowing my you know my horn, but you know, again, I'm not in charge, and you know, I've got friends who are you know at the top of friends who are at the top of Disney and and I hope they listen to me at some point but you know what it's it's a business decision that they have to decide to do and you know as much as I say it you know they could have a whole different plan but I honestly think that moving forward we really should try to move our our product out and get it into the hands of people who wouldn't traditionally seek out books I know that there's a Marvel Adventures line Mm-hmm. I, I know that, and the reason why I know that is because when when I was buying books, when I was buying books, I would get the Marvel previews, and there would be a Marvel adventure section. And I'll be the first to admit, there was a good period of time I read Marvel Adventures Avengers more than I did regular Avengers books. Mm-hmm. And and that's not a disrespect or a slap in the face to Brian Michael Bendis. I think he's a great writer, but I just I didn't get bored. It's just that I was tired of. I was just tired of reading it. And so I said, you know what? Not, I'm not going to spend my money on this for a while. Let me go check out Marvel Adventures Avengers. Event, Adventures Avengers. And I had mm-hmm. a fun time. I had a, I had a fantastic fun time. That's what I want. I wanted to have some fun. Sure. And then well, that, you know, then everybody's got different tastes. And I'm not saying you know, there isn't a place for all of this stuff. I mean, obviously, if you look at the numbers, there's a place for Brian's Avengers. I oh, mean, definitely. obviously, it's at the top of the list. But... You know, there's also room to you know bring in new readers with and and make it fun for other people. And I know that Marvel has a Marvel Adventures line, but in my mind, from my eyes, from seeing retail stores, um, from going to comic book re- you know, comic book stores, going into like your uh, local like Target stores and stuff like that, I would at least think, okay, if we if they can't get you know standard Marvel books into a store, maybe they can get more Marvel Adventures stuff in there. And sometimes. I'll see it, and sometimes I, I just won't. And to me, in my mind, that's one of the easiest things to push would be Marvel Adventures books because those are all-ages stories. Now, granted, in some adults' minds, when people say all-ages, they think, oh, this is just for kids. I'm like, no, that's not the point. It's not. It's for everybody. Right. And you know, you can get into it, and your kids can get into it, and everything should be cool. And, and that's where like, I personally get irritated because I feel that the Marvel Adventures line should get a strong push. And but when you had talked about um, the Disney store and how the Disney store and how um, the Franklin Richard, Richards book does well there, or how the Pet Avengers book does well there, or you, that you saw it there, I think that's a good start. But mm-hmm. there has to be a way. There has to be an easier way to, you know, to get it out there. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just put, using that as an example of if you put it where the eyes are, you know, where people can find it. They're gonna pick it up and they're gonna look at it, and you know the kids may see it and go, "Ooh, I want that." You know, it's just like you know the the quote unquote old days when these books were out, you know, in the Seven Elevens or in the you know in people's you know candy stores or wherever it was. If it was there, people had a tendency to look through it and maybe 
get caught up in it and pick up a copy and maybe get hooked. But we're not doing that now. We're sort of stuck in a in a you know a market where it's just the people that have always been buying it. You know, you're not getting anybody new. But um, you know, I will say though. Um, I believe, and I don't. I, somebody told me this that the, the best or the the most subscribed book at Marvel is uh, Marvel Adventures Spider Man. Meaning, you know, anybody that subscribes, you know, get orders and has it delivered or whatever, it's Marvel Adventures Spider Man. So that means that you know, of all these books that we do, that one seems to get the most attention. So maybe the all ages thing reaches farther. I mean, I look, I look at. If you look at your bo- the box office every week, it seems like every time we have sort of a other than like you know the Spider Man, the Batman, the Iron Man, every superhero uh, movie that comes out, everybody's got high hopes. They're all freaking out. Oh my god, this is going to be the biggest box office smash! And then comes along an animated kids movie and it blows it out of the water. And why is that? Well, because there are a lot of kids and there are a lot of parents that want to take their kids. And you see Pixar movies get more eyes on a Pixar movie than anything else because it's all ages. Everybody can go see it. Everybody gets something out of it, and it's readily available. You know, If we sort of follow that model and realize that you provide content that the whole family can enjoy, you may have a chance of doing better. And you know, like you said, if somebody reads Marvel, you know, Marvel Adventures Avengers, they may like it enough to you – know, the kids like it. They'll grow up and then – start to like the regular Avengers book or the regular Fantastic Four book or the regular Spider-Man book and get into that as well. So, you know, I'm just I'm looking I'm I'm trying to be the fisherman here. I'm trying to cast out some bait and pull in some fish. Oh, my god, I'm I'm turning into like a metaphor guy. <laughs> well, as long as you don't show up at my house with the uh Gortman's uh, uh jacket and coat and there you some, go. some fish sticks, we cool. <laughs> so we all right. So. I'll, bring, I'll bring the tartar sauce. <laughs> all right, we good then. We're good. Uh, Uh, we got because I got a book at uh, Wizard World Chicago that I cannot remember the group that was putting out putting it out, but it was a hardcover. Jill Thompson was in it. I think Art Baltazar was in it, and I think Franco was in it, and I think you might have been in it, Chris. I can't remember. It was a non it was a nonprofit group that was that's trying to get money, that's getting these books and selling them for get comics into the classroom almost it's a hardcover oh. it's got a whole bunch of different orders i cannot remember the name of it okay you ready for this one i'm gonna i'm gonna stop you right there because i'm gonna tell you a little story that is not me there happens to be and you will not believe this because i didn't believe it either there's another cartoonist named chris eliopoulos out there yeah i know there's only one jeff smith you would have thought that name so like it's everywhere right anybody smith come on but no my name there comes another cartoonist named chris eliopoulos he um He's a good guy. He he he's a, a an animation director. Um, I, I don't know if you know that uh, kid show uh, Yo Gabba Gabba. Yo Gabba Gabba. Uh, yes. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, he's a, so he's an art director on there. He's he lives in Chicago, and so he's been sort of doing a little bit here and there of, of comic work. But he had contacted me a couple of years ago and basically saying, I, "I my name is Chris. I'm a cartoonist. I'm coming up." And I swear to God, I I didn't mean to steal your name, but you know that's the way it goes. 
So it's it's really odd. So like now I start seeing his name around here and there, and people go, "I love your work," and I go, "Thanks, not me." Yeah. So uh, you know, it's 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 hysterical. It used to be most people thought I was Chris G. Russo and would say, "I love your G-Man stuff. I love the the mini Marvels." I'd say, "No, not me." And G. Uh, Russo's in it. That's who I remember also being. Yeah. So it's sort of hysterical that you know now I've got two people that people uh, assume I am, and I am neither. So uh, hate to dash your your bubble there, but. Uh, I figured I would grab that one right off the bat. Before you got into uh, the world of comics and uh, doing this for a living, what what was that decision? What was that that moment that made you say, you know what, this is where I want to be, and this is what I want to do? I was going to college at the Fashion Institute of Technology. I did not grow up reading comic books. Uh, I was more of a comic strip fan, cartoon fan. I had to take uh, in my last two years. I had to take a minor. I was in graphic design and advertising, and I had to take a minor. And I decided to take a minor in illustration just because it seemed the thing to do at the time. I don't know why. It was better than fashion illustration. It was better than you know, jewelry design, whatever. I took a course on sequential art with some guy named Gene Colan, who you may know did comics in the golden age, you know, with Stan and – did Iron Man and Daredevil and Dracula and stuff like oh, that. Definitely, yes, yes. Didn't know who he was. I just, you know, he was a comic book guy. He was, uh, he took us on a field trip to Dis- uh, to Marvel. Just at that time, um, I was told that I had to come up, with, I had to find an internship in some kind of business. We went through Marvel and uh, as we're walking through, this guy walks by and he's wearing a ripped t-shirt, ripped sweatpants and flip-flops. That was the moment I knew I wanted to work in comics. <laughs> I realized if that's what you could wear to work, much better than a suit and tie. I uh, I applied for an internship. They they accepted me, and I um I started working at Marvel. That that was the moment when I saw when I saw what how you could dress and work in comics. Definitely can't get away with that in my job. <laughs> that's yeah. for sure. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, setting up the uh, setting up the interview, um, you're a man of many hats. Um, you know, lettering, writing, uh, doing artwork, uh, inking, and coloring. Is this just I mean, does all this just was this all just something that just came natural to you, or is it one of those things where you wanted to get your story across your way, and in order to do so, you just had to put it all in your hands? Eh, a little. Well, I've I've always drawn cartoons. I always wanted to write and draw a comic strip. I always wanted to tell stories and and draw. When I started lettering, it was out of necessity. You know, you sort of you know just like anything, you want to do one thing, but in the meantime, you'll get a job doing whatever it is you can do. But I enjoy doing the whole package. I enjoy doing it soup to nuts. I like being the one to blame if it's bad and the one to praise if it's good. So I would start – I actually started pitching Marvel all the time for stuff, uh, to write stuff. But you know, they, you, you, know, you get sort of that um, stigma that you know, you're just a letter and that's it and you'll never be anything more or less because everything is so compartmentalized in comics uh, or at least mainstream comics. Um, but I'd always wanted to do everything. It wasn't sort of like um, something where I said, uh, I only want to do this. I just wanted to do it all. I wanted to tell stories and, and do it all. When I started doing Franklin, I just knew what I wanted to do. I When I pitched them, I gave them drawings of it, and they still weren't sure. And I was like, well, let me just show you what I'm doing. And so it was a lot easier for me to show them than to, to tell them. So I started drawing stuff up and showing that to them. And, you know, I, it went from there where it was just, it was just sort of a, it was a very natural progression. It was like, okay, I want to do comics. I want to write this story. I'm going to draw this story. I'll just show you. I can do it all and, and move forward. So it wasn't um, any kind of 
master plan, like, okay, if I could do this, I'll get the next thing and I'll do the next thing. I just was lucky enough that they listened to me and said, okay, let's let's give this a shot. And I said, well, I also want to write it. I want to color it. I want to letter it. I want to draw it. I want to, you know, and they, for the most part, said, yeah, okay, you can do it. Let prove it. Show us. And and they, you know, gave me that ability to do it. So, um, and then, you know, once I did Franklin for a while, they said, wow, you know, you can actually write this stuff well. Let's give you something else to do. You know, do you want to do something else? And so, um, but I, my passion is is doing it all, top to bottom. I envy people that can wear all, that can wear all those hats and, and perform them. I mean, I know here, yeah, there are th- a lot of things that I do, but one thing I can't do as of this moment is mm-hmm. draw. Um, right. I, I just I just can't. It, and trying, I'm trying to put myself in that that mental state to where I can learn the process and be patient. And it's trying to balance out that time of trying to have time to do that along with everything else that's that's going on. Yeah. And then yeah. at the same time, you know, yeah, hey, you got a marriage that you got to handle and you got a nine to five that you got to do. So, oh, yeah. so you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're trying to learn how to ride that bicycle, but yet juggle at the same time. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. Uh, well, see, you know, it's also I, I read this book. Um, it's called um, Talent is Overrated, I believe it's called. Yep. What really separates world class performers from everybody else. Okay. And it was funny because I started to read this book and I realized that this was my story and I didn't realize it at the time. Uh, when I was young, I was lucky enough that I fell in love with comics, cartoons, comic strips and started doing them. And I just didn't stop. I kept working at it. Now, when I was five, six, I was horrible at it. I mean I couldn't draw – you know, you couldn't write. I mean, I, you know, you know how kids are. I mean, they just can't do it. Most people, you know, hit six, seven, and they just go, forget this. I'm not doing it anymore. Where their parents say, enough with this childish behavior. Stop doing this. I was lucky enough that I kept doing it and I kept working at it. I, I don't think I had any talent. I'm not overly great as an artist. I'm not overly great as a writer, but I worked at it. Um, a lot of people get get, you know, stigmatized that they are natural talents or – they're prodigies. I tend to believe that it took a lot of hard work. You just don't see it. Right. Uh, I, I work like a maniac. Like um, everybody goes, oh, you're you're one of the best letterers in the business. Well, you know, I didn't come into this business knowing how to letter. When, my first week, I got an internship. The first week that I got there, I was in the production department, and I had um, shown my samples, and they had, you know, obviously type design. And the head of the lettering department looked at me and said, well, you should work on. Get some, you know, practice lettering. The first week I was there, he set me up with supplies. And instead of, you know, going out to lunch, what I would do is I would either bring a lunch or I'd pick up a lunch and I would spend my lunch hour practicing lettering. And then I eventually got a job lettering and I wanted to draw. So I would sit at home at night after work and I would draw and I would draw and I would draw and I would draw. And, you know, Eric was nice enough to give me a couple pages in his book, and I took those two pages and I worked at getting better. Um, I I did a comic strip and I worked at getting better. It, it, I was never born with a lot of talent, but I really worked hard. And I think a lot of people forget when they're thinking about getting into this business that it's not just you know, hey, I've got the talent, I'm going to do it. There's a lot of work involved. Mm-hmm. Um, people see the the successes, but they don't see the work behind the successes or the the work 
getting to that point where they got to be successful. You know, you're saying about your artwork and you can't draw. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen Brian Bendis's artwork. It's not the, the greatest thing in the world, but he was able to produce books on his own before he got at Marvel. He worked for like 10 years self-publishing books and doing his own stuff. And what he would do is sort of do photo reference and he would kind of ink it in and sort of muddle his way through. And it wasn't the greatest artwork in the world, but he was able to tell a story and get it out there. And um, But he worked at it, and it took him 10 years toiling away before he became the overnight success that he became. Oh, yeah. And so you know, I know it's really hard to find time. I mean I sit here you know, as a prime example. I, I, I have like five jobs. Okay, I letter comic books. I run a company where I have five people working for me that I have to check their work every day. I deal with editors and publishers. I um, – I write and draw comic books for a living, and I still found the time to put out a daily strip for almost three years without missing a day. And that's dedication. Well, yeah, you know, and it's also saying, look, you know, it's not something that's easy. It's right. hard work and it's perseverance. And you can't just say, well, I'll get to it eventually. You know, like I said, I, I decided I have to do this book. And I'm doing it. You know, I've, I've been on the phone or on the phone, Skype, whatever, with um, Scotty Young, which I'm sure you know who that is. Yes. And he's sort of on the same path that I am where we're kind of going, we need to reach kids. And so the both of us have both started writing and drawing our own uh, kids, you know, OGN. And, but it's not something you just sit there and say, I'll get to it eventually. You have to do it, you know, and, and he's, you know, we egg each other on, but, you know, he's already blown it out of the water. Obviously, he has more time than I do, but I don't, I don't use that as an excuse. Like, it's not, you know, fair to say, well, you know, he's got all this time, so of course he can get ahead. I, if, if I'm, if it's that important to me, I make the time. And, you know, I was at, I was at the con this weekend and, and there was just sort of the same thing. People were asking how to break into comic books and the, the questions are always like, you know, is there a certain person I should talk to? Um, is there, you know, a, a shortcut to getting in? And the answer is hard work, perseverance, you know, and being right there at the right time after doing all this work and being available to do it. I, I've learned that even though I may not be able to, you know, draw to draw well, I, I, I put my English degree to good use, and and I write and I plot the hell out of books, mm -hmm. and so and the goal uh, for me is to always be able to at least publish. Um, either a trade-sized book or a few comics every single year. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, I, I, then for me that for me that's a major that's a major accomplishment, and it's something that I can say, okay, I collaborated with all these people. I served as writer slash editor slash publisher. So hey, we did okay. But what can I do next year? And what can we do next year to be even better? Yeah. So you know, it's there's always that start. But I always say, just like you said, if you if you work hard. And you put something out there, and and you're actually proud of the work that you've done. You know, who knows how far you can go. And yeah. and I really wish that a lot more people would understand that philosophy. Yeah, I mean that, that, that's the sad part, and I get it. You know, it, it reminds me so much of um, you know we were talking earlier about weight loss and you know dieting because my guy my wife brought home cannolis tonight, and. I, I people are always looking for that quick answer to losing weight, right? They always say, you know, oh, here's the, you know, the the Slim Master Five Thousand, you know, or the the diet pill that will, you know, allow you to eat, you know, whatever you want, and or you know, the diet that lets you eat everything you want, but in the right proportions and stuff like that. 
you know, everybody knows to lose weight, you exercise and you eat healthy and you will lose weight and you'll become healthy. But everybody goes, yeah, 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 that's great. But how can I lose weight quickly? Like, how can I lose it now? How's it easy? I don't want to get off the couch. Just tell me how to lose weight. It's the same way I, I tend to hear a lot from people is like, yeah, 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 great. Okay. Work at comic books for, you know, and write and draw stuff. I got that. Okay. But isn't there like a, like a way that I could just give you my work on the side and you could just sort of give me some work, you know? And it's sort of like you want to say, no, you know, it's not easy. And, no. it, it, you know, it's, there's a reason why there's only a select people that are making comic books right now because, you know, it's hard. I mean, I labor over a script like you wouldn't believe. I mean, I labor over every panel. I, it's, I, it doesn't come easy. And I don't think there anybody that would tell you that it comes easy to them. If they're saying it comes easy to them and, you know, oh, it's writing a story is easy, they're not doing it right. If they're telling you it's easy to draw a book, they're not doing it right. Um, I always tend to try and push myself a little further every single time to do something better, to do something different, to not just rest on my laurels, not to sit there and go, okay, I, I, you know, I could, but you know, that's not getting yourself any better and that's not being a professional and it's not going to get you any more work. <laughs> Unfortunately, it takes a lot of hard work and nobody wants to hear that. I mean, well, not, not nobody. Uh, people, some people hear it and usually the people who hear it are usually the ones you see at the top of, you know, the, the, the business and, uh, you know, like Brian Bendis, you could you could say his books are boring, you or or you don't like them or whatever. But you know what? He's one of the hardest working guys I've ever seen. Yeah, he does not stop, and he's never satisfied. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I I work with him behind the scenes, and you know he has that persona online or in public where he's very um, gregarious and and like look at my books and I'm great, I'm wonderful. But you know behind the scenes, he's like, is this good? Am I is it? I need to get better, and I I'm not happy. I need to improve. You know, he's always pushing to get better and it's one of the things I envy in that even after all this time and all the accolades he's gotten he still wants to do better yeah now, see, and, yeah. I, and I feel you I feel you on that and John I'll let you I'll let you talk in a second no um, you won't no John I don't want to hear from you um, no it's fine like, <laughs> no, no, when I used to pick up my Marvel previews book and I would start like thumbing through to see what was coming out in the following months, book by Bendis, book by Bendis, book by Bendis, book by Bendis. And like even I, w I mean, and I would get like frustrated, but not in a bad way. I'm like, how in the hell can he do all this? Plus, go talk to studios about, you know, possible TV and or movie deals and mm -hmm. do this and do this. And then I said, that's that hustle. And I'm like, I can't, you know, you can't knock that. Yeah. You know, you can't knock that. You can't be mad at that. You know, like and like I said, like even though during that, that period of time that like I didn't read his Avengers books didn't mean like it, you know, at the same time, I'm like, I respect his hustle. I'm like, I'm just not feeling this right now. Let me come back yeah. later. And and I did. And I was like, OK, we're cool again. You, you know what I mean? And it's just it's just one of those things. I, I You can never knock a person's hustle. Yeah. You know, I, I, no, I mean, everybody's got different. Like I said, it's not a, it's it's all about what you want on that end of things. Like if if. If you don't enjoy what he's doing here, you go enjoy another book. I, there's nothing wrong. Everybody's got their own personal tastes. And, and I would be the first person to say, you know what? You're entitled to your opinion, especially if you're, you're putting down money. You're entitled to your opinion, and you're entitled to choose not to buy something if you don't like it or buy something if you like it. I'm just saying that you know, um, as an artist, he is never resting, and he's always trying to get better. Mm-hmm. As a, as, a, as a craftsman and you know and, and usually the best people you see like I talked to Scotty Young the, the man 
you know, is like a top talent and he's always trying to get better. Just about everybody you talk to is – I mean Eric Larson has been doing this for how many years? And I saw him this weekend and it was just about, God, I, you know, I want to get better at this and you know, how do I tell a better story? And you know, even the people who have achieved the greatest heights are always trying to get better. And I think that's an example that everybody, even down to the person who's trying for the first time, should follow. John, go ahead and ask your question. Go. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I was going to make a statement. It's, uh, it's a friend of mine who shall remain nameless uh, who always used to say, if you're not being like a shark, then you're going to be dead. Then you're shark meat is what he said because you've always got to be moving forward. You've got to always be improving. You've got to move forward and keep on going. Yep. Yeah. It's uh, – it's- you know, it's hard sometimes and I get it. I mean, look, I, like I said, I, it's, it's, you know, I've got the wife, I've got the kids, I've got a business to run. It's, you know, I'm, you know, everybody goes a freelancer. You sit at home and you watch Oprah every day and, and eat, you know, bonbons while you're watching. You know, I, I tend to probably work more than anybody I know because the work doesn't leave, but I still try to find time to move forward on, on things that I want to you know keep going on and you know everybody's got to do it. I mean if you want to do it you keep moving forward, keep doing the next step, keep you know don't I you know I've heard so many excuses from writers, I can't find an artist. Do it yourself. I don't care. Do it as stick figures. Who cares? Just do it. Tell a story. I mean I look at John, look Jonathan Hickman. He is a graphic designer. He wasn't really an artist, but he he was able to do books and image that totally broke the mold cuz he couldn't do it any other way, you know. There's, there are no excuses not to do – I mean there's a webcomic out there called XKCD, Stick Figures. If you look it up, it's all math, math jokes. I honestly don't get them at all. Very popular. He draws stick figures. Not even with faces. They're just stick figures. So you, know, you always have to keep doing things and not stopping. Well, you know, you've said it about I think five times now. You have your Oops. own business. What exactly is that business? Well, if you look at your comic books, um, you'll see in the lettering column or the, in the credit it says VCs like Joe Caramagna, Corey Pettit, VCs Clayton Coles, whomever it may be that says VC ahead of time. That is my company, Virtual Calligraphy. Um, I have guys working for me, and we letter a bunch of books all over the place. I oversee them and. We letter a bunch of books. So I have to, you know, basically it's my business. Now you know if you ever see those books, all few hundred books a month, they're from us. Yay. <laughs> that makes any sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. Couple, <laughs> we have a couple of questions for Mr. Eliopoulos, uh, courtesy of Twitter. User Peter Parker 1810 wants mm. to know if you uh, sell your Franklin Richard pages. Oh, I think he did. He tried to Twitter me directly. Um, I have some. I haven't really sold them. Um, I was about to say because I know I asked you if you sold any of the Misery Loves Sherman and you said no. You know what it is? Number one, it's weird to me because I don't think anybody would want them. Number two, I figured they wouldn't be worth much to sell anyway. Like, you know, I, you know, I, I remember years ago I, I picked up a, a page uh, because it was Tom Orsikowski lettering. It was uh, – 
who was it? Mark Silvestri artwork. And he was selling them for like $10 a page. And I'm like, if he's selling for $10 a page, can you imagine what I would sell mine for? There'd be nothing. You know, it, would, it, it seemed like it'd be, you know, a real waste to sell them for nothing. And then, you know, I'd rather just hold on to them. So I, I, I haven't been selling them. I don't say that I won't, won't ever sell them, but, um, it hasn't been sort of on my to-do list. Right. Yeah, because I know, was it Daniel Corsetto of Girls with Slingshots? Well, she monetizes everything she does. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the thing about web comics is um, you have to do stuff like that. I mean, I'm uh, like, I, I'm lucky as can be. You know, I, I, I've got a business. I'm doing well in the industry. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm paid okay. Like, I'm doing okay. Um, a lot of these guys that are doing web comics, that's their only source of income. Oh yeah. And they, and they need to make wherever they can. So, you know, they've got they do prints, they do books, they do plushes, they do they sell the original artwork. I'm lucky enough not to have to do that to make a living right now. Who knows? Maybe someday I will. Um but, you know, I don't I don't fault anybody for selling their artwork. It's not like I'm holier than thou. I'm not pulling a Bill Watterson, like, you know, there's no way I would ever you know, do the. It just. It, it's just right now. I don't have to. So I. I sort of am sentimental more than anything else. Don't want to sell it. Fair enough. Um, hmm. Twitter user Nuggy ninety nine wants to know if you will be at Mid Ohio Con this year. They invited me, but it's funny because I was. I was like, I really loved. It. I went a couple of years ago, and it was such a great show. It was a fun show. It was a smaller show, and you, I definitely had more time to hang out with. Um, the fans and you couldn't find nicer people in the world hosting it or being there um, and so they had said yeah if you want to come this year you're invited and um, I should be really I should call them back or whatever um, but we had some family stuff going on here yeah. around that time so I actually have to stay home um, but I'm going to see about next year I'm going I'm to try and plan ahead now that the, I know that they're interested in having me and maybe I'll go next year Okay. plus the cartoon uh, the um, oh god, where what is it? Uh, the Columbus, it's a college there, and they have a uh, um, the uh, cartoon art museum in, in their part, and they have like all of like the Calvin and Hobbes stuff. They have all of Jeff Smith's bone, hmm. you know, originals that you can actually view. Oh, I did not know that. So I want to go just, I mean, obviously to go for the con, but I want to like stay a couple extra days and go to that place and check them all out and like. Drool. I mean, I, I feel bad that I get drool on the artwork, but you know. But that's okay. But but still, you you know, this is something that you want to do. So hey, go. Can you it. imagine like it's just all of Jeff Smith's bone artwork in one spot? Yeah, that's kind of that is kind of crazy. I mean, that stuff is just absolutely stunning. I I, I want to punch him every time I see him. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, question from TPB podcast uh, yep. he, um, TPB podcast wants to know do you have any art that uh, you collected from another artist that means a whole lot to you and why I have a bunch um, I've actually been framing as I go along um, one of the pages I got um, it was funny speaking of people who don't sell their artwork um, Eric Larson does not give away or sell any of his Savage Dragon artwork um, we did uh, an issue. It was a crossover with DC. It was a Superman, Savage Dragon crossover. He gave me uh, one page of that, which I 
cherish. But uh, one of the first pieces I got from him uh, was one of the first jobs we worked on together, which was uh, a Spider-Man book, Revenge of the Sinister Six, or Return of the Sinister Six, either or whichever one. <laughs> and uh, he gave me this almost full splash page. It's like Spider-Man, Ghost Rider. Uh, it's just it, – it's this big, giant splash page to the Hulk all coming at you that I lettered that he inked. And it's like – it was like the first piece he gave me. And he's like, here you go. I mean, you know, and if he sold it, it would have worked. He probably could have gotten a few hundred bucks, you know, like a thousand bucks for this thing. Mm. And and he just gave it to me. Um, that's awesome. A couple of years ago, just before he passed away, uh, a good friend of mine, Terry Austin, who's big-time famous thinker, done X-Men back in the day and a whole bunch of other stuff. And he does Sonic. Uh, he does Sonic too, right? Sonic the right, Hedgehog? right, right. He's yes. Sonic now and stuff. Um, he uh, was good friends with Dan DiCarlo, like the originator of like the sort of modern-day Archie comic style. Um, he did everything. He, he invented Josie and the Pussycats. He... You know Sabrina the Teenage Witch. That's all him. He uh, the the that that style that you see in Archie was done by Dan. He was up with Dan one day, and he got me an original piece of artwork from Dan. And um, Dan made it out to me. And what's so cool about it is this this happy go lucky all ages stuff on the front, and on the back he sort of was just doing like I guess you'd almost call it um, good girl art. You know, sort of the sexy kind of, but cartoony stuff on the back, and so I actually had it framed so that it's on the front, but then glass on the back as well, so that you could flip it over and see it. It's really like a really cool piece. I got to start taking pictures and twittering those. Um, and uh, one more that I um, uh, I just got this weekend. Um, Carl Kershaw did the covers to uh, the original, the first Pet Avengers series, and. Um, he popped. He came up to me over the sh- at the show this weekend with the cover to the second issue made out to me, and uh, without prompting, without me asking, without wanting a dime, he just gave me this beautiful piece of artwork, and I'm like, I, I you know, when somebody does that, you don't even. I, I was at a loss for words. I didn't even know how to thank him for it. Um, those have been sort of the the big things for me lately. I wish I, there was a, a number of years ago. Way like I, I had to be about almost twenty years ago. I was at a con, and there was a Peanuts daily strip for sale for two hundred dollars. And I was this close to getting it, and I said, "Ah, eh, there'll be plenty of time to get a different one or or whatever." And uh, as we all know, he soon passed away, and mm-hmm. an original is worth like forty thousand dollars now. <sighs> Beat myself in the head every single time I think about it, but that's the way it goes. You know, I think I think that's um pretty pretty great that like you still have you know pieces of art that you know that you know that you know get you that excited or you know leave that you know internal memory um, for you to always remember. Um, and then you know and I think we all, and we all have that I know because I know John collects uh, you know sketches and artwork and pages and and when you know when I have money to take take to cons after you know setting up and you know if things go well at the show if there are certain artists that I see I try to pick stuff up and every now and then I'll get that one piece of art that I didn't really expect to really be all that awesome but come to find out it was just you know it it blows you away I I yeah. remember here I was at Heroes Con in 2009, very first show, very first Heroes Con that I had ever done, and it was me and some friends. We had a big booth selling books. They're doing the art thing, and we were just having we were having a blast. And I said, you know what? I'm going to get some. I'm going to get some sketches. I'm going to get some art. I'm going to get some commissions today. 
And I walked past the table, and there was a lady by the name of Stephanie Gladden. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stephanie had done um, a few Johnny DC books, um, like you know, say for instance, she had done stuff like you know Powerpuff Girls um, and a couple other things, and she had also worked on some Simpsons comics. So, and she wasn't really charging a lot for you know for sketches or commissions, and she was just sitting there chilling. I'm just like, wait a minute, you've done all this stuff, nobody's bothering you. I I, I just I just didn't get it. I didn't I couldn't my mind could not translate that. Maybe hmm. it's because I'm a big cartoon I'm a big cartoonaholic. So, you know, I said, you know, I was like, if you have any time, could you do Bartman versus Mojo Jojo? <laughs> and Little she, monkey. <laughs> yes. And she, she said, she's like, I sure can. Again, like I gave her the money and I walked away. She's like, come back in an hour. Came back and and it was Bart and it was Bartman swinging on a rope and Mojo Jojo's got his gun ready to shoot at, at Bartman. And that made me so happy. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and. You know, and it wasn't you know that much too. It's just Bartman swinging, Mojo Jojo with with a mean scowl on his face, holding a gun. That's right. it, and it just brings this like internal joy that my inner child and and the adult mm-hmm. side of me shake hands and go play a game of Uno and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just enjoy yeah. life just for that small period of time. Plus, it's also the moment that you had with her, and and you know that that moment of connection, and uh, that a lot of the artwork that I have is also the memories that I got from it mm-hmm. as much as the artwork itself i really wish there was just more more art in schools nowadays i don't know what it's like over in your school district but where i live and in, back in my hometown that stuff's pretty much non-existent now yeah i mean i think it's like a once a week kind of let's make a clay ashtray or something you know it's not which is interesting you know it, it's funny i think i've corrupted my children you know they sort of see what's going on they're very, they're very into storytelling, which is is telling. So I, I don't know which direction it's going to take, but the 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 pragmatist in one of my sons, um, I had gone to the, the convention this past week and I was selling books, and he he had said, "Do you do you make money off of that?" And I said, "Oh yeah, yeah, you know, you you go and you sell the books, people pay for them, and you make money off it." And he was like, "Huh." So he came home today, and I don't know if he was doing this in class. I'll probably laugh because it was like me. But he started writing and drawing a comic strip that he brought home with him. And he showed me a couple of strips. They were absolutely hysterical and sat there this afternoon making them. And I said, well, what what prompted you to decide to do this now? He said, well, I've been trying to make some money. I want to make some money to buy toys and stuff. And I heard this weekend you said you made money off of your comics. So I figure if I can make some comics, I can make some money. Hmm. So he's he's already he's he's got the brain for it. But so if he even if he doesn't get in school, he'll he'll probably pick it up from me. So but that's only you know my kids. Yes. Every know. day I'm hustling. <laughs> yep. <laughs> see, he's moving it. What cons are you planning to do next year? Are you going to come back to a super show or do anything else? I haven't been asked anything yet. I would assume um, I probably would do super show again if they want me there. Wait a minute. You were a super show last year? Yeah, that's where I got the book and I got the plush, and that's why I discovered. That's how I discovered the comic and wanted to eventually interview him. Now I feel like a complete and utter ass because I, <laughs> I I was there too, and I did not and I did not talk to, I did not talk with Chris Eliopoulos. Now now I am sad, dude. I was right next to Walt Simonson. If you, even if you didn't want me, dude, or knew me, 
or Dude, whatever. No, you don't understand. Like Walt Simonson, because of Walt Simonson, like Beta Ray Bill is like one of my favorite superheroes ever. And mm. he had a long line. And I was, and I know I should know better, but I was so scared to talk to him and, or go up there. And like, and Louise Simonson was responsible for like Steel being a comic book. And, and like, I was so freaking frightened to go over there. And really? I, yeah, I was so frightened because they are like the two nicest people in the world. I mean, you could not find two more welcoming people than those two. Yeah, I know. And see, that was the whole thing. And I, and I just, I was just so nervous because they do, you know, what I love. And, you know, I make, I make comics because, of, because of the, the Simonsons, the Dwayne McDuffies. And mm-hmm. like, you know, you know, people like yourself, like, you know, all these people that get me inspired and get me hyped to make comics. And, and I've talked with a lot of creators in my time, you know, and, and it's never been a problem. It's never, ever been a problem. And, but with them, I really freaked out. So I just said, you know what? Let me just stay at my table. And then there's somebody, and then, and then there's me who Corsetto for my wife, and then Chris and Gia, uh, well, Iliopolis, Gia Russo, and that like, because my kid's five. He's, this is going to teach him how to read and how to love something to grow up with it. And so that's why I was like, ooh, you do a comic. It's got kid yeah. stuff. Ooh, it, it, I like it. <laughs> if you if you are at Super Show and um in twenty, I will make you a deal. If Walt and Wheezy are at the show next year, and I'm at the show, yes, I will introduce you to Walt and Wheezy, and because uh, like I mean, you know, Walt and I go back years. Hell, you know, I I actually um in in the Pet Avengers, I reintroduced, I guess you could say, a new Frog Thor, mm-hmm. because I I'm sure you know, uh, Sean, that he in, first invented the Frog Thor. Yes. Years ago in his Thor run, um, and uh, I actually—I'm uh, trying to remember if I called him or I emailed him, and just said, "I'm planning to do this in this book." Um, and if you remember from the original series, there was another character that was Puddle Gulp that became the new Frog Thor, and I'd said, "If the, you're okay with this, um, I want to add a Frog Thor to this Pet Avengers book." And he was just like, awesome, love it, go for it. You know, anything that keeps this stuff going, I'm all for. That's awesome. So, uh, you know, and then Wheezy, you know, I've known her for a year. You know, it's just, they're just really genuinely nice people. Mm-hmm. You know, forget about comics and forget about how talented they both are. You know, they're just, you know, they'll sit, you know, I mean, it was funny. I was sitting there um, at the table, it was towards the end of the show, and um, he walked up and, Kind of just we started talking because you know again, you just talk about this that he was telling me actually about his visiting the Thor set. You could just see people people started filtering over, and one by one people started. Next thing you know, we had like ten people just standing around listening to us having a conversation, which was a little unnerving. But you know, Walt's talking about going to the Thor set. That's a big thing. So I get it. I'm I'm I, I I'm in. I forget that I'm in awe, but I am in awe of of Walt. So, and I actually took a picture of him with a bust of Frog Thor, which I posted somewhere. I was going to say another show that uh, actually is run by a, a friend of ours in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, the Summit City Con, which is I'm sure Sean can attest to this is a great show for kids. Yeah, it it, it really it really is. I mean, because it's it's about it's about art, it's about you know cre- creators, and it's about books. I mean, that's it. There there, there are no you know bootleg DVD tables. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's you know I mean, there's I think there's only one 
area that actually like one or one or two booths that were actually selling toys. It was all creators, artists, and comics, and that was it. One day show, and it was absolutely fantastic. Um, I got to sit on a panel. I got to sit on an indie comics panel with it was me, Steve Bryant, Andy Jewett, Jim Rugg, um, and like two or three other creators. Uh, and I and I and I feel like a, a total jerk because I can't name them all right now. They're just so impressive that you their their names escaped you, right? Yes, they're just so amazing, amazingly talented that uh, you don't want to say their name because you don't want to give them any more leg up <laughs> of you, right? That's you know, what it is. Uh, Matt Kent, that was another one, and and like I'm like, how did I get on this panel? <laughs> that was the first thing. That was the first thing I said to myself, but. It was just it was a it was a fan it was a fantastic one day show and that was mm. that's that's an experience I will never ever ever forget you know just like and, Super Show it was great yeah. and the table's free yeah, yeah oh there you go so other than that let me I guess I should answer the the full question anyway and obviously I think I'll go back to New York Comic Con um, but I think at this this point that's usually where I'm going I'm uh, you know I'm I'm I. I would love to go to Heroes Con someday. I'd love to go to Dragon Con, um, maybe Baltimore one day. I'm at the point now where I've got so much work and, and that family life. Unless they're inviting me, I'm not really going to make the effort to go. Now, where are you based out of? My house. I know a little it's a more. Joke. I know. <laughs> I was just think a little uh, more meta. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm about 25 miles out of New York City. So, okay. That's right, um, New Jersey. Yep. Well, I tell you what. Is there anything that you want to uh, before we end this uh, episode? Is there anything that you want to pimp before we go? October twenty seventh, Avengers versus the Pet Avengers number one is out in stores. It's um, same crew as before, but now we got humans involved. So uh, it's a uh, it's a big one. And even if you don't like the writing, the artwork is absolutely so stunning you will not believe it. Cool. And if and if people are looking for a comic book shop, if they don't know how to find one, there's a phone number for that, right? Yeah. What what what's the one eight 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 comic books? Is that right? Let, let me check. I'll check right now. Look in your look in your little comicbookshop.com or I I it's it's like on every Marvel comic. It's always usually right at the bottom there. Comic. You can go to comicshoplocator.com to oh, to go. do a search. To find your to find a comic book store. So yes, if you go to www.comicshoplocator.com, um, you can get a copy of this comic. Yes. Yes, sir. You'll be able to find a store close to you. And before and when you do that, and when you use the site and you find a store, give them a call just to make sure they're open first. Yep. <laughs> because lo and behold, I've been a sucker for that many a times. Um, yeah. But but that's another story for another time. Yep. Um, in all in all seriousness, Chris. Um, we appreciate you coming on the show. Had a great time, and um, this has been really cool. And thank you so much for being a part. No, thank you. It was fun. Anytime you want to do this again, I'm I, I'm doing nothing. I'm just hanging out and waiting for your phone call. Cool, man. And- Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. And and um, if you want to put some of uh, those cannolis in, on some uh, in some dry ice and ship them on up, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm cool with that. They look good too. <laughs> she just left them on the desk. They've been sitting here waiting, but I was afraid to start munching in the middle of the conversation. Uh, no, no problem. I understand what I tell you, but we're going to let you get. <laughs> we'll go ahead and let you get to your cannoli. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. And uh, seriously, have a great night and uh, continued best to you. Thanks. And, Good luck uh, with everything. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. And definitely see you at Super Show. Hopefully, will do. All right, sir. Have a good night. Have a good night. All Take right. care. Bye. 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 
And that concludes this week's PKD Black Box. The PKD Black Box is available via iTunes, or you can go to pkdmedia.com to get our show, check out our form, and read comics like Mercury and the Murd, XO one on the Rock Solid Steelbots, Agents of Colt, and Luke Foster's The Gang from the Store, six days a week for free. And if you're on iTunes or our forum board, drop us a line or email us at blackbox at pkdmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. Until then, dream big and hustle hard.